Lecture 20, Propaganda War. In this lecture, we'll be examining the fascinating topic of propaganda war. That's to say, not actual combat on the battlefield, but rather the battle of beliefs, of ideas. Uh, propaganda defined as the politically instrumentalized attempt to form people's attitudes and thoughts certainly grew to tremendous importance in a time of total war. In total war, hearts and minds themselves would be a key strategic resource, just like guns, ships, or industrial production. In this lecture, we'll examine the varying propaganda styles and approaches of the combatant powers. We'll see their increasing sophistication as they moved away from narrow censorship to far more effective propagation of entire organized media campaigns. We'll see how, paradoxically, governments were slow to understand the potential value of propaganda that came not from above, but from below, what we might call spontaneous propaganda from the populace itself. We'll examine how such spontaneous inner propaganda is part of what some historians have called a larger war culture. Voluntary propaganda in this war culture could take on the form of rumors, myths, common stereotypes of the enemy, all of which could assume great psychological significance. This lecture will also critically evaluate a debate that really is still going on about how important propaganda really was to the outcome of key moments in the war as a whole. First of all, we have to address the fascinating phenomenon itself of propaganda. And it's a satisfying one to undertake for our course because propaganda as a topic is one of those moments where so many of the major themes of this course come together. We've accented the role of ideology. That certainly plays a great role in the the mobilization of belief and of ideas in the propaganda war. Another of our themes is the totality of the conflict and certainly the reaching out to form people's beliefs and their minds themselves. That certainly speaks to the totality of war. Another one of our major themes, you'll recall, are the multiplicity of meanings assigned to the war. And that's precisely what one or another form of propaganda sought to do, to to convince people that this is how the war is to be understood, and this is how your participation in it has meaning. And finally, we also have examined the psychological phenomenon of the eagerness with which the war was met, and that certainly shows up in the spontaneous propaganda we'll be discussing. Propaganda itself uh, is a term with fascinating origins. It originally has a religious meaning, coming from the age of the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. In prior centuries, propaganda was the term that implied propagating the faith, the spread of belief. And certainly, though in a more secular sense, propaganda, as we'll see in today's lecture, certainly involved ideology. It makes clear that the common assumption that the First World War had less ideological content than other modern wars uh, is unwarranted. And indeed, there was a lot of ideological content. Paradoxically, the warring powers themselves only slowly came to understand how to mobilize the propaganda resources at their disposal. Today, there are truisms in the study of propaganda, which are Um, so self-evident as to be obvious, 
but they can be usefully thought about in this context nonetheless. The most effective propaganda is not that which tries to create beliefs where they haven't existed before, but instead the most effective propaganda builds on established opinions. The most effective propaganda builds on what spontaneously is believed or felt in the group of people that one is seeking to influence. So beyond censorship or the restriction of news, states would only slowly begin to, with ever more art and organization, craft what one might call positive propaganda campaigns, building on a certain spontaneous enthusiasm that was there before. Most immediately, and in a very conservative way, all of the warring powers were very concerned about censorship, in particular, aiming to keep from the populations under their control bad news, or news that might threaten the cohesion of the war effort. Censorship was crucial. And one just needs to think of a classic phrase, which indeed uh, came to be the title of, of probably the most influential piece of literature to grow out of the First World War, the uh, Eric Maria Remarque's novel, All Quiet on the Western Front, which had an ironic meaning. The f- classic phrase, All Quiet on the Western Front, from which the title of the novel was taken, came from those terse dispatches of the German high command as to what was going on on the Western Front. And it obscured the horrors, the reality of trench warfare under the phrase of all quiet on the Western Front as if nothing had changed, as if all was normal. Soon, however, in order to mobilize for total war and to meet its ever-growing demands, a positive motivating message would become crucial beyond simply hiding information or obscuring it. Propaganda has undergone a a transformation in how historians have sought to um, analyze the phenomenon uh, in the last years. Earlier, and this is still most certainly largely the case in in how the word popularly is used, propaganda uh, often is understood and was understood earlier as implying, above all, the top-down manipulation of opinions by elites. That's to say, a devious government setting out to, through lies and falsehoods, to reshape and manipulate the opinion of an innocent populace at large. Scholarship of late has tried to rethink the relationship between propaganda, governments, and populations at large. And one tremendously provocative way of thinking about this a newly conceived relationship uh, comes from the French historians uh, Stéphane Audouin Rousseau and Annette Becker, uh, French historians who have proposed maybe not even speaking of propaganda anymore, but instead talking about war culture, war culture, by which they mean the process through which societies propagandize themselves. And rather than having ideas or notions imposed upon them from above by devious manipulative elites, instead, uh, through a social process uh, that could be considered a horizontal phenomenon, not a vertical one, but a horizontal phenomenon, come to take on and reinforce within themselves beliefs that are of use to the war effort. Let's examine some of these provocative ideas by looking more closely at varieties of propaganda as they showed up on all of the warring sides within the war. 
Let's begin with official propaganda and how governments presented uh, at first the message of what the war was all about. At the start of the war, uh, and with tremendous effect, as we've seen in an earlier lecture about the August madness of 1914 and the, the self-mobilization of all of the European great powers for the war, all warring sides proclaimed this to be a war of defense, a holy war of the nation against the threat of outside powers. And I think that it goes... A, a certainly significant distance towards tra- uh, starting to explain for us some of those scenes of jubilation and celebration to keep in mind the central truth that Europeans, as they marched off to war, felt that they were engaged in a war of defense. But over the long term, it would be essential to motivate the home front to a total exertion of effort, such as required by total war, by offering yet further reasons, a a greater and more detailed articulation about what this war was all about. Beyond that, in the battle for neutral opinion that we discussed in an earlier lecture about the, the global context of the war, it was also true that through one's interpretation of the war, through one's propaganda, neutral opinion could be swayed. International sympathies could be won or lost. At the same time, it was true that, uh, a certain inequality obtained in this propaganda war. There were national differences involved in the challenges that were faced by individual powers in making the case to their own populations as well as other populations and neutral countries as to what the war was about. Let's consider, just to get a handle on on this phenomenon, some of the cases that were of special importance. In France... The case was, once again, fairly straightforward, as with French war aims. The defense of national territory was a holy duty. France had been invaded. France needed to be uh, defended against the hereditary German enemy. This was a fundamental grounding theme and certainly was present throughout French propaganda. In Britain, by contrast, the national interest the protection of a European balance of power so that Germany would not dominate the channel and thus be in a position to threaten Britain's earlier splendid isolation, these were somewhat bloodless concepts. And instead, they needed to be explained or couched or framed in terms of larger political principles and idealism. The defense of international law, the rights of small nations like Belgium, uh, the holiest principles of civilization. German propaganda, for its part, had also claimed that the war was a war of defense. It had argued that Germany had, in the years before 1914, increasingly been surrounded in devious and threatening ways by jealous great powers, which aimed to encircle Germany and to choke off this young, rising, dynamic power. Uh, Certainly, many Germans felt that this was an accurate presentation of their own existential state. But over the longer haul, after the initial clashes of the war, when Germany stood in northern France and in Belgium, or had occupied vast territories in the Russian Empire, German propaganda faced serious internal weaknesses. It was difficult to argue for a war of defense when your armies were standing on enemy territory 
while your own was unoccupied. Further, the increasing articulation of war aims was also a dangerous one in terms of German self-understanding and propaganda. And that's one reason why in the first years of the war, before uh, the generals Hindenburg and Ludendorff uh, established their uh, far more aggressive military dictatorship, uh, there was a, a certain unwillingness to tolerate open discussion of war aims within Germany itself and, and certain wilder expressions of uh, expansionist sentiment were censored. The problem lay in this fact that presenting ever larger shopping lists of areas that one wanted to annex or strategic territories that would belong to one in the future ultimately could break down the conviction of a defensive war even as it might certainly be alluring to certain segments in society. At the same time, the threat was the largest, most significant one within Germany of breaking down the Burgfrieden, that internal truce that was so essential to the fighting of this total war. To state the uh, a crucial existential fact about the reality of the propaganda challenge for the great multi-ethnic multinational conservative and authoritarian empires of Austria-Hungary and Russia, they simply could not, without peril, without great risk to their own sense of, of imperial cohesion, frame their appeals in national terms. For Russian propaganda to present this as a patriotic Russian war was certainly dangerous. What of the other minority groups that were being mustered into the fighting forces? What of the Poles? What of the Baltic peoples? Similarly, in the case of Austria-Hungary, to present this as an Austrian war or a Hungarian mobilization certainly could uh, lead to disaffection among the many other minorities of that empire. Over time, on all of the warring sides, propaganda would grow in sophistication as the war progressed with more targeted messages, with coordination across different media of one message. Poster campaigns, which borrowed a lot from advertising techniques uh, and that later would be brought to a high pitch of sophistication by American propagandists, uh, as we'll be discussing later when we uh, note American involvement in the war, um, as well as film campaigns were systematically deployed to present a propaganda message. In the German case, uh, an entire film company, the UFA, was produced for precisely these purposes uh, and uh, represented, in some sense, the start of a dynamic German film industry which produced classics after the war in the 1920s. Propaganda imagery is also a fascinating topic. Women played a very important role in that imagery. It was very much gendered in terms of its appeals in often very complex ways. Women were universally used in propaganda to symbolize the home country and the home front. Whether in the figure of the mother of the family or the wife or uh, another female relative at home who needed to be defended or perhaps in allegorical representations of uh, France or of Great Britain or of Germany or of Mother Russia or in symbolic representations of the principle of justice or the principle of a righteous peace. At the same time, hearkening back to the uh, religious origins of the word propaganda itself, religion also played a role in propaganda imagery. It could be deployed to portray the war as a crusade against evil, 
or to offer consolation for sacrifices by identifying it with the doctrines of Christian theology. At the same time, as we've already noted in the past, uh, the messages of uh, bloodthirsty propaganda uh, could often only uh, with great difficulty be reconciled with the traditional Christian messages of peace and charity. Moreover, it's fascinating to observe a particular dynamic that really set German propaganda off from that of other powers. In the competition for effective propaganda, German propaganda in particular often backfired catastrophically. I want to give just a few examples of this that are very suggestive. One of them was um, one of these initial enthusiastic poems of the war. It was called the Hymn of Hate, the Hymn of Hate Against England. It was written by a, a German-Jewish writer, Ernst Lissauer. The Hymn of Hate was directed against Britain in particular. Um, it was felt that Britain had played a treacherous role by not making clear that it would enter the war, even though this is something German policymakers certainly should have understood uh, well before 1914, uh, and also because of the British role in the economic blockade, which was choking the German home front. The Hymn of Hate uh, is a, a, a ludicrous piece of, of poetry. It talks about uh, all Germans being united in one hatred against Britain, hate of the heart and hate of the hand, hate by sea and hate by land. It goes on and on, really a hymn to hate. Well, this piece of propaganda turned into a disaster because it didn't even need to be mocked by allied propagandists. They simply needed to reprint it as an example of bloodthirsty nonsense. Another example of this sort of uh, catastrophic backfiring came after the sinking in 1915 of the liner Lusitania with many civilian casualties. Uh, even though this was a private initiative, uh, its result was disastrous. In Germany, a commemorative medal was struck of the event itself, and it's really a, a gruesome creation. On one side, it shows uh, the Lusitania going down under the waves. Uh, on the other side, it shows Death himself selling tickets to unwary allied uh, uh, customers or travelers uh, who are letting themselves in for uh, a ride to perdition. Uh, this sort of thing, uh, once again, simply needed to be reproduced and shown uh, as uh, an example that was soon decried. More generally, German propaganda stressed less inspiring themes uh, uh, than that of Allied propaganda, themes of endurance and just holding out. In all propaganda, however, there were certain unifying themes, the key concepts of what one was fighting for, civilization and culture. At the same time, if one was engaged in a crusade for civilization or culture, the enemy was increasingly dehumanized in propaganda, often in racialized terms, which are, are surprising to an audience uh, uh, of contemporary times um, to think of Europeans as seeing themselves as distinct races rather than all being Caucasian uh, or another designation, uh, but increasingly to be German or to be French or to be British was thought of in terms quite distinct from that of the enemy. The terms of civilization and culture thus took on great significance in identifying oneself against that demonized enemy. In German rhetoric, this was turned into an entire world philosophy. German culture or Kultur was supposedly 
completely juxtaposed with or opposed to the concept of civilization. Now, this is a little bit mysterious to English-speaking audiences because we use the words culture and civilization as synonymous. But supposedly, German Kultur was something organic, rooted, idealistic, and real, as opposed to the Anglo-Saxon and French civilization, which was technological, artificial, commercial, uh, uh, and deeply inauthentic. It was argued that the Germans were a people of heroes fighting against the forces of commercialization and capitalism, especially the trader people, uh, the British, as the economist, the German economist uh, Werner Zumbart argued. Um, at the same time, Allied propaganda would, in turn, present Germans as the enemies of culture and civilization, as barbarians or as Huns. Uh, which, uh, unfortunately, from the German perspective, was actually not a term that was invented, but borrowed from a speech by Kaiser Wilhelm II in which he'd urged his soldiers uh, to be as fearless as Huns in one of the colonial uh, conflicts of previous years. And in making the case that the Germans were barbaric, uh, they certainly used many ample instances of Belgian atrocities, the burning of Louvain, as well as fabricated stories of German cruelties. On all sides, professors and academics and teachers join in a furious debate concerning culture. Who had it and who was the enemy of that culture? Um, just to add another disastrous example of German improvisation in this regard, in October of 1914, an entire manifesto signed by over 90 German intellectuals was published, which was called a, a Manifesto to the World of Culture, which denied German atrocities, which argued that Germany was fighting a war of self-defense, and which further, and this was especially damaging uh, to public opinion, identified German culture, the, um, the, the, the great achievements of, of German writers and German composers, with militarism of the Prussian variety, arguing that these were in an inextricable relationship with one another. Uh, this was um, ultimately to have very bad effects on uh, public relations in neutral countries as German intellectuals were identifying themselves uh, with military values. Uh, the initiator of this piece of propaganda uh, was, as it turns out, a German-Jewish writer who felt very deeply that he wanted to participate in this way in patriotic mobilization. And these German-Jewish cases, even though they represented a small, small portion of a far larger mobilization of German society are especially poignant because here you had the very enthusiastic self-identification of German Jewish patriots with a national cause, many of whom later would be uh, uh, hounded and uh, denounced as non-Germans uh, by the Nazis, as was the case uh, of the author of this uh, manifesto as well. Images of the enemy would be sharpened into overwhelmingly negative stereotypes which ultimately cut off even the possibility of compromise in a coming peace. Kaiser Bill, as Kaiser Wilhelm II was known to the Allies, was demonized in Allied propaganda paradoxically at precisely the time when he was being sidelined and, and uh, uh, increasingly irrelevant uh, in the face of the German military dictatorship. Images of the enemy also led to the scapegoating of foreigners in one's midst, including a, a hysterical fear of alleged spies, so that German stores were looted in Britain and aliens interned on the Isle of Man. But this same pattern of harassment and internment took place in all of the warring countries. 
we need to conclude with an examination of the spontaneous propaganda and war culture that's being accented by newer research. The war obviously unleashed a spontaneous upwelling of profound sentiment. You'll recall that more than one million war poems, most of them of really horrendous quality, were written in the first months of the war in Germany, not ordered by the government, but spontaneously produced. Rumors also circulated with tremendous speed and could function as effective propaganda. We've talked already about stories proliferating about German atrocities uh, uh, on the Western Front, uh, many of them with bases in fact. Rumors on the Eastern Front concern scorched earth policies and fears of entire populations being deported, also with elements uh, of truth. Um, at the same time, propaganda could also lift the spirits of discouraged populations. Um, at times when the, uh, the fortunes of the Allies were not going well, uh, rumors might circulate, as they did in Great Britain, of reinforcements that were arriving to tip the balance. Uh, there was a story of a secret shipment of Russian troops arriving in Scotland, in Aberdeen, with, as the phrase went, snow on their boots. They were, the, so the rumor went they would be placed into the, fight, uh, the fight on the Western Front, and thus hopes for victory were reinforced, even though it turns out that this had no basis in fact at all. Social pressure represented an aspect of this spontaneous propaganda and self-mobilization of a society. And in a particularly eloquent, um, though I th certainly not unproblematic example of this sort of self-mobilization, um, was the instance in Britain of young women uh, fanning out through the streets of British cities looking for young men not in uniform. Uh, these young women, upon encountering such a young man, uh, would pin a white feather to his suit or through his buttonhole uh, as a badge of this young man being condemned as a slacker. This was a mockery of the manhood of someone who was not in uniform and was intended as a very vivid expression of social disapproval at someone who was not participating. Over time, such instances of trying to put social pressure on those who were not conforming to expectations uh, could really backfire and led to a, a sharp reaction against precisely this sort of activism because there were cases where a, a soldier on leave from the front, glad no longer to be wearing his uniform, had walked out into the street and precisely someone might be targeted uh, for this sort of abuse. Uh, at the same time, there were also instances of shell-shocked soldiers who had been invalided out of the service uh, or who had been wounded otherwise uh, being denounced as slackers when indeed ultimately they had contributed uh, more than their fair share. The reaction against this sort of activism on the part of young women showed that even as women's roles were changing, something we'll be discussing uh, in more detail in coming lectures, uh, there nonetheless uh, were still social sanctions uh, that were negotiating what was an appropriate role and what was not. War culture is a phenomenon that has been described by historians today to denote that fervor with which the war was participated uh, in, with dynamics that were quite distinct from those of official manipulation ordered from above. Very clearly, there could be a, a confluence of official propaganda and this sort of impulse from below. And um, the historians I'd earlier mentioned Audouin, Rousseau, and Becker are so 
suspicious of the problematic use of the word propaganda for this sort of self-mobilization that they propose only speaking of propaganda in quotation marks uh, to do justice to the historical reality. Very clearly, older social forms could flow into a larger self-mobilization. Older forms of folk art, for instance, were in a real sense enlisted into the battle. A traditional French kind of woodcut called the image de Epinal, showing heroic French soldiers or the idyllic uh, France of nationalist longing, uh, were deployed as modern propaganda. And similarly, the traditional Russian woodcut, the Lubok, connected to older customs and older ways of a society. In a similar process of trivialization, all sorts of knickknacks and souvenirs sought to domesticate the ferocity of the war by rendering them in forms that were familiar or at least less threatening. Heroes in Germany like Hindenburg or Ludendorff, and there were certainly equivalents in the other countries, would be celebrated with Hindenburg ashtrays or vases or postcards. And indeed, a vast wooden statue or idol of Hindenburg was set up in Berlin and ordinary civilians could buy nails, um, depending on how much they had contributed to war bonds, in order to hammer into this wooden idol so that over time, in a, in a very eloquent, um, symbolic rendering, this wooden idol would become clad in sort of sheathed in metal that represented the projection of an entire nation's desires and hopes. One thing is clear. The massive proliferation of such objects, such souvenirs and trivialities suggests in part the eagerness of an audience for this kind of expression. And yet disillusionment would follow. With growing war weariness, a distrust of propaganda and authority would set in. For front soldiers, there was often a radical disjuncture between what they read in propaganda from the home front and what they had lived in the trenches, a reality that was obscured. Soldiers' morale could be affected by communication with the home front as well and hearing of the sufferings there. Though some soldiers would often resent what they perceived as the unthinking jingoism on the home front that persisted. Propaganda would be increasingly mocked by such disillusioned soldiers as eyewash or, in the French phrase, head-stuffing. And indeed, it's been argued that heroic language itself increasingly became discredited. In a paradox, this disbelief with which propaganda was met would soon extend to cases of true atrocities, such as those in Belgium. In conclusion, we might ask, what was the ultimate effect of propaganda? Well, after the war, one man in particular, Adolf Hitler, would grow convinced that Germany's poor propaganda had lost the war. And he would devote himself, in the lead-up to and within World War II itself, to perfecting propaganda as a weapon. In fact, historians often argue that it's not so much that Germany's propaganda was intrinsically worse in terms of quality, but that Germany's propaganda had a harder case to make, given the realities of its position and its aims in the war. Paradoxically, the democratic allies had an advantage in harnessing popular energies because democracy as a way of government had already started to create social cohesions. The notion of war culture, thus, as proposed to us in current scholarship, is a very valuable insight because it brings to the surface something that afterwards disillusioned participants later wished to forget. They had showed wartime enthusiasm, at least at the start, and the participation they had felt had been real. In conclusion, now that we've examined the attempt to influence the home front, we'll be turning in our next lecture to examine the reality of endurance and stress in the civilian population.
Lecture 21, Endurance and Stress on the Home Front. In this lecture, we'll be examining a key aspect of the First World War, which really speaks to its identity as a total war, as we've been describing in earlier lectures. The endurance and stress on the home front as a phenomenon. The home fronts in all of the warring countries reacted to the privation, the shortages, rationing, surveillance, and government control with a variety of reactions, both endurance as well as signs of growing stress, which we'll outline in this lecture. In particular, hunger confronted the German population in 1916 to 1917 very sharply as a result of the British naval blockade, a form of economic warfare. In all of the warring countries, as masses of women entered war industry factories, as children experienced militarized educations, as well as increased independence without adult supervision, social roles and moralities were felt by many people to be, to be buckling or in the process of being transformed. In this context, religious institutions, churches, would often seek to reinforce social stability and underwrite the spiritual war effort. At the same time, the home front itself could experience a disconnect from the experience of the troops in the trenches. This could often drive a wedge between men and women, civilians and soldiers, but another symptom of societies under strain. And as a byproduct of that enormous strain, it was also often the case that minorities within warring societies could be scapegoated. And we'll examine key instances of this as well as the evidence of rising anti-Semitism in Germany itself. First, let's consider physical life on the home front. It was most certainly part of the logic of total war, an all-encompassing conflict, that civilians would be targets as well as participants in the larger war effort. Civilian life on the home front showed evidence of how civilians were being targeted and suffered in this war in the profound changes that their lives went through, as well as the privations that they experienced. A key example of this civilian suffering and the effect upon civilian life of total war was the imposition of the blockade on the central powers by Great Britain. Britain's imposition of the naval blockade was a very important form of economic war. And we already have discussed uh, some of the ways in which this worked in terms of naval warfare. After 1915, as the blockade really started to bite on Germany's economy, the economic balance of power shifted to the Allies because of this fundamental fact. The Allies had access to overseas trade, to trade with the United States and other neutral countries, something that the central powers, and in particular Germany, with its earlier vibrant economy, now uh, was without. And increasingly, the vulnerabilities of Germany's position was revealed were revealed. Before the war, Germany had imported about 20% to 30% of its food supplies, and these imports were now cut off. Likewise, other pressures were at work in terms of total war on Germany's economy that further exacerbated these problems. The drafting of farmers to fight in the war. 
the requisitioning of horses, which were essential for the agricultural economy, as well as other factors, led to a dislocation of agriculture in Germany, producing food shortages. And in our earlier lecture on wartime states and the mobilization by the government of economies, we had noted that in the German case, civilian needs had tended to be shortchanged at the expense of producing ever more for the war economy in terms of materiel and war industry and munitions. It was especially the case in Germany as well that the, uh, the weaknesses, the liabilities that had been revealed uh, through the economic blockade of Germany had to be made good through the use of technology. And in our earlier lecture on the role of technology, we had talked about the phenomenon of ersatz, or substitutes, uh, which were intended to make good some of these losses. That's to say, uh, the uh, ability to fix nitrate uh, from the air in uh, the process that had been pioneered by the German chemist uh, Fritz Haber, uh, also essential for the production of um, agricultural fertilizer as well as munitions. Uh, we had also seen the way in which substitutes increasingly played a role in the food supply, so that, for instance, a, uh, a product called K-bread or war bread uh, increasingly was substituted for earlier German forms of bread. Uh, this was a, a far uh, rougher substance with potato meal substituted uh, for wheat, and many people felt that this was a very key symbol of the privations that they were undergoing. Uh, recently, uh, on a visit to the German Historical Museum in Berlin, I had the opportunity to see behind glass uh, actually a piece of this wartime bread uh, and it certainly looked as if it was about in the same state as it had been uh, in the war itself, largely indigest indigestible. At the same time, as people felt this to be a keen privation, worse was yet in store. Because in the harsh winter of 1916 to 1917, blockaded Germany experienced uh, a further ratcheting up of its misery when the potato crop had failed. The result then was something that many Germans remembered for decades afterwards with a sense of horror, the so-called turnip winter of 1916 to 1917. With the potato crop failed, the unappetizing root vegetable, the turnip, became a staple food. Uh, earlier, this had largely been used as feed for uh, livestock, so there was certainly a sense that this was part of uh, uh, a significant change taking place during the pressure of war itself. It now became common to uh, have patriotic urgings from the government uh, that one use the turnip creatively to stand in for all of the earlier foods that people had enjoyed. And soon, experiments were being undertaken, not very successful as it turns out, to produce turnip coffee, turnip hamburgers, turnip pudding, turnip dumplings, anything one could imagine now produced with a staple crop. Food supplies were massively curtailed within Germany, and the caloric intake, which already had suffered as a result of wartime privations, was cut even further. Even middle-class people who had prided themselves on their economic independence further were now standing in lines at the soup kitchens along with the poor. The caloric um, intake cuts were significant, and there's one particular statistic that for me really sums this up. According to estimates of the time, while the average German on the home front 
had consumed in 1916, in the second year of the war, about 1,350 calories daily. Uh, That number plummeted in 1917 to about 1,000. And if you look at current dietary recommendations in the United States, for instance, today, you'll see that 2,000 calories a day is really what's recommended for an active person. For example, somebody working in the munitions factories of the home front in Germany at the time. So we're talking here essentially about a near-starvation diet of half the recommended calories, 1,000 per day. This has produced um, a large historical debate, which we had hinted at in earlier lectures, concerning how many civilians died as a result of hunger and the disease associated with that hunger as a result of the British blockade. And this is still very much the subject of vigorous historical debate. Uh, historians, Some historians uh, tend to downplay the results of this economic warfare, arguing that those who unfortunately were the victims of the greatest cuts in terms of caloric intake uh, and uh, nutritional values uh, were those who were already the most vulnerable in society and in some sense uh, didn't this didn't affect uh, the largest outcome of the war in some strategic sense. Uh, other historians argue that given the totality of the war, uh, even vulnerable people being uh, targeted in this economic warfare certainly would in the long run have an effect. Some historians cite a figure of 750,000 starvation deaths or hunger disease-related deaths in Germany at the time. Uh, This figure is contentious because it's obviously very difficult to parcel out, as it were, neatly or conclusively those deaths that resulted from starvation or associated diseases from uh, the general privation, the general suffering of war itself. What's clear is that civilian mortality within Germany rose dramatically. Now, these statistics in themselves are, are stunning. Uh, if that figure of three quarters of a million dead in Germany as a result of the blockade is true, that would mean that German civilian deaths in World War I uh, as a result of the blockade were larger than the deaths in the Second World War on the German home front as a result of the air war and uh, strategic bombing. What's also very difficult to um, exactly quantify, in a sense, or pin down exactly, um, is nonetheless uh, the sense that some contemporaries had at the time and expressed afterwards of the feeling that the value of human life or the perceptions of the value of human life was changing as a result of wartime suffering itself. And in this context of economic war within Germany, and the uh, civilian suffering and civilian mortality rising, there are haunting hints that are being explored in some of the most recent research uh, that in Germany, during the war, in mental asylums, something amounting to passive euthanasia may have been taking place uh, through purposeful neglect of those who were most certainly the most vulnerable in German society. And some estimates suggest that about 70,000 Uh, inmates in mental asylums and other medical institutions uh, may have died as a result of this neglect and lessened diets as well. It's very clear that economic life in all of the combatant societies was changing as a result of the privations on the home front and this immense economic pressure uh, that was taking place as well. We've already mentioned in an earlier lecture that inflation became a universal phenomenon 
in the warring countries as it was used by governments quite deliberately uh, as a way of deferring the costs of the war for later, largely in the expectation that the defeated enemy side would end up paying. The result of this inflation was quite severe for ordinary civilians. In France, prices roughly doubled during the course of the war. Most workers' wages did not entirely keep pace with inflation, though we've mentioned that valued industrial workers had their salaries um, uh, more in line with the rising prices. Britain was an exception in this regard. Workers' wages uh, seemed to keep pace with inflation better. In terms of ordinary experience of civilians now, standing in line to buy rationed food became a common feature of life on the home front. And in these queues, in these long lines waiting for food, discontent and rumors could certainly circulate and could lead to disturbances and riots on occasion as well. One might mention as well that for the women who were increasingly being encouraged to uh, take on new roles in the factories of war production, having also to stand in line during their lunch hours or after work in order to get food for their families represented a double burden, an added uh, imposition in terms of the privations of life on the home front. The unavoidable nature of the black market also tended to erode ordinary civilians' confidence in authority itself. Uh, And it's estimated in Germany by 1918 that maybe a third of all food that was circulating in the economy was being sold on the black market. The common figure of the profiteer, the, the wartime black market salesman, or for that matter, the munitions producer who was making huge profits, was seen as an increasingly hateful figure, but one who was needed to keep this war economy humming. Private initiative could also take over as civilians would spread out to the countryside to find food there as well. Um, There was even a word coined for this in German called hamstern, that's to say going out like a hamster and trying to find food where one could. This could lead to clashes with farmers who didn't enjoy uh, people privately coming in and stripping their fields bare. Rural areas, while uh, while they were often spared the food shortages of the the cities, uh, nonetheless experienced uh, the loss of manpower as farmers in particular were recruited to serve in the armies and women were expected to take their place. The regimentation of the war effort on the home front became part of ordinary life. Ordinary people were subject to increasingly intense conscription, pressure, and surveillance by their governments. The skilled industrial worker was often valued and exempted from service at the front, while farmers, seen as sort of the backbone of the vigor of the nation, were conscripted for their armies. Even as valuable industrial workers gained bargaining power through their importance, attempts continued to militarize their service and to stop them from changing positions or uh, seeking out better wages where they might be offered to them. In this context, the trade unions took on a very interesting new role. The increasingly formal role that unions had in coordinating the war economy, cooperating with governments, was fraught with paradox. Were they winning a new kind of social acceptance and political role? Or were they, on the contrary, as many union laborers started to worry, were they being domesticated and tied into the war economy in a way that wouldn't allow them to effectively represent their membership? Due, however, to the growing influence and uh, role of the unions, they certainly took on new membership during the war itself. We've also mentioned 
in an earlier lecture, the extent to which the government's new perceived role of providing for those who were left behind by the soldiers, their families, uh, and the payments that were then paid out as subsidies to these families or to wives represented in the long run the laying of a basis for the welfare state. The churches played a very interesting and in many senses equivocal role in the attempt to regiment and to firm up the conviction of the home front that the war that was being fought was just. Certainly there were sermons uh, preached from the churches of many denominations urging endurance, urging holding out to the last in what was a just struggle. Uh, there were certainly bloodthirstier sermons uh, as well uh, urging the annihilation of the enemy. The churches institutionalized as they were, part of government structures as they were in many European societies, also represented part of the war effort. And this was made very vividly clear in the role of chaplains in the armed forces as well. We want to turn to a fascinating and very important aspect of this increased mobilization of the home front, changed roles of women in particular. Women were urged in this new situation of total war to take on a more active role, a challenge that indeed was very often eagerly accepted. Just before the war, there had been waves in Western Europe of suffragette activism and protests. And suffragettes were uh, protesters and activists who were urging that women be given the vote and finally a role in politics and a voice. This sort of activism and protest ended all at once as the war erupted. And leaders of the suffragette movements often saw war work, which they threw themselves into very often enthusiastically, as opening the way for a greater political role and the vote after the war. Women's roles in the workplace also changed. Now, it needs to be emphasized that women's work in industry, in the factories, was not fundamentally new, not caused by the First World War. Women had certainly been working in the factories during the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century and often paid far less. But now, women entered the munitions factories and harder, heavier labor in the factories in great numbers. And the influx of women into jobs that earlier were male preserves was especially dramatic. This included positions like clerical posts. Uh, in the Before the First World War, uh, the position of secretary, for instance, was seen as a man's job. Uh, now it's stereotyped as a woman's position. Uh, and the result was that this transformation came during the First World War itself. In Britain, the number of women in banking, for instance, increased more than sixfold. The number of women in other branches of commerce doubled. And other statistics in this regard are especially striking. One figure that's suggested is that within France, for instance, about 40% of the workforce was now female during the course of the war. In Vienna, about half of the metal workers in uh, that center of production were women as well. Women working in uniforms also were, this was a new site, trolley conductors, as police, or as military auxiliaries. And this was a very eloquent statement about women's participation in war itself. Women also were more conspicuous in heavy labor, including in munitions factories and other heavy industry. In the Krupp armaments plants in Germany, famed for the monstrous guns that they were producing in 1918, 38% of the workers were women. And this munitions work was certainly not without its dangers. This was shown by the case of the so-called yellow canaries in Britain. They were sometimes also called canary girls. 
These were young women whose skin was over time turning yellow because they were slowly being poisoned by the chemicals that they were handling in the production of high explosives. And certainly many of them later with their health problems or inability to bear children as a result of this poisoning had sacrificed in the war effort. But these changes, the entry of women into the workplace, often led to friction with resentful men workers. Even though women continued to be paid less than the men's wages, uh, there was anxiety about the dilution of the workforce uh, and this new role for women. The expectation that, however reigned, uh, was often shared by many women workers themselves, uh, was that employment, women's employment in these factories and in these new roles would end with the war's conclusion. And indeed, that would often be the case as the war closed. Women would be fired and men returning from the battlefield taken on. Nonetheless, important changes had taken place, altered ideas of what a woman's scope of activity would be, as well as changed manners and dress, all of this representing a significant psychological alteration. In a dramatic fashion, women could also play roles in espionage and resistance. An archetypal case here was that of the famed exotic dancer Matahari. Uh, her real name was the less uh, exotic Margaret Gertrude MacLeod, uh, who was shot by the French as a spy for the Germans in 1917, uh, though it appears far more equivocal about whether her activity really, um, in fact, uh, w- amounted to much in terms of espionage. Uh, More effectively, women in German-occupied northern France and Belgium did participate in networks which smuggled Allied soldiers out of the country, and in a notorious case later trumpeted by Allied propaganda as a German atrocity, in 1915, the Germans executed one of these women, a British nurse by the name of Edith Cavell in Belgium, who had helped more than 200 Allied soldiers escape to Holland. Children's lives were also affected. Increasing demands for manpower meant that recruits in the armies included young men only coming of age at the time, uh, and sometimes the smallness of helmets that have survived from the First World War fairly sends a shiver down one's spine when one realizes it because of the youth of the new recruits being drawn in. Even children too young to be recruited into the armies were increasingly affected by the conflict. Primary school education was militarized in subject after subject, Children were urged to join in raw materials collection drives, and even in their free time, the maps which allowed them to follow the movements of the armies or children's books or outdoor games of capture the flag tended to lure children into psychological involvement in the war and perhaps preparation for later combat. Being orphaned or losing a brother became a common destiny to many children. And historians still debate today whether a broad social process of brutalization was taking place as war seemed increasingly normal. Contemporaries did feel anxieties about how moral life and roles were changing. Social structures tended to buckle under the pressure of war, and earlier certainties were eroded. A key example of this was the passing of traditional castes or classes, with a decimation of European aristocracies that had been overrepresented in the officer corps. Junior officers' death rates were often three times higher than those of other soldiers as they led the feudal charges at the start of the war. Some social Darwinists grew anxious about the war producing a process of negative selection, as they called it, as these elites were mowed down while those they considered less fit, by contrast, were spared. Traditional morality was also under strain. The armies ran brothels or houses of prostitution under medical supervision, afraid of explosions of venereal disease. 
In occupied territories, fraternization was a common reality uh, as relationships developed between the occupiers and the occupied. Within society, economic burdens, which had a moral dimension clearly, were uh, visibly not even. Earlier hierarchies were reversed when skilled industrial workers fared better economically than some members of the middle class. And social critics agonized over what they saw as symptoms of chaos, swearing by women at work, profligate spending, and juvenile delinquency on the part of young people who no longer had fathers at home. Outward changes in women's roles were often most visible in the middle class, for other women had long been working. But in the middle class, changes in dress, living alone rather than in the family context, smoking, as well as the free disposal of wages that were now being earned, were criticized by social critics. In many countries, women were at last granted the right to vote as the war drew to a close or uh, as the war ended, in part in recognition of women's role in the conflict itself. Women gained the right to vote in January 1918 in Britain, in Germany and Austria immediately after the war, and in 1920 in the United States due to the 19th Amendment. We want, however, to turn now to a final example, unfortunately, of how the strains of wartime society might express themselves. And this is the phenomenon of scapegoating. With a certain grim inevitability, elements in society might be singled out as undermining the cohesion and the health of a society under the strain of total war. Vulnerable elements within a wartime society could be singled out and blamed for larger problems. Very often this was summed up under the concept of defeatism. The notion was that uh, a society which had to gird itself for the immense exertions of total war had within itself, so it was claimed, so it was charged in this sort of conspiracy theory, elements that were working for defeat, quite literally, in order to pursue nefarious purposes. It was often the case that groups which had ethnic relations or relatives across borders were especially vulnerable to this sort of scapegoating. The Poles were a key example of this because they were divided between the three empires of Austria-Hungary, Germany, and Russia as an ethnic minority. Ethnic Germans in the Russian Empire could also be quite vulnerable. Armenians, uh, who had populations both on uh, the side of the border that was part of the Russian Empire, as well as Ottoman Turkey in the areas of the Caucasus and Anatolia, could be vulnerable in this regard as well. And in particular, the Jewish minorities of Europe, strewn as they were throughout all of the countries involved in the fighting, could take on this role of being scapegoats, unfortunately, as well. Poles were considered suspect from the start of the war, especially in the German eastern provinces, as a Russian invasion uh, unfolded in 1914. And, and rumors circulated uh, which expressed these fears. Some German nationalists claimed that when the Russian armies had first invaded, they had been helped in East Prussia and in other German borderlands by Polish populations. Uh, one rumor suggested that Poles, uh, even though they were subjects of the German Empire, had somehow mysteriously been handed red cards by Russian spies that allowed them to be spared the depredations of Russian invasion. Um, in a parallel case, in the Russian Northwest Territories that would soon come under German invasion, 
ethnic Germans had been deported at the start of the war, suspected of spying for the German side, even if their families had lived there for generations before. In the Ottoman Empire in particular, the minority Armenian community was considered suspect because, as a Christian minority, it allegedly sympathized with the Russian Empire across the border and planned to make common cause, so the conspiracy theory ran, against Ottoman rule. As the Russian army met disaster in the first two years of the war, in the borderlands and as as Russian armies retreated, Jewish communities in particular were persecuted and ethnically cleansed from areas under military control in forced evacuations. A final and riveting case is one that I think really speaks very largely to a theme that will continue to explore the breakdown of internal truces and a sense of social cohesion. In earlier lectures, we've spoken a lot about the role played by patriotic German Jews in the German war effort. They represented 1% of the German population, roughly, and had felt that the war offered a chance to be fully integrated into a society that earlier had subjected them to uh, harassment and social discrimination. In Germany, however, as the war unfolded, these hopes were to be cruelly disappointed. German anti-Semites demanded and finally got from the German army a so-called Jewish census. Uh, The German word that was used for this was, in fact, much uglier uh, than it's rendered in English. The word was Judenzählung, or a count of the Jews. The anti-Semites charged that German Jews were not serving in the German army in numbers proportionate to their presence in the German population at large, and that they were not fighting in the front lines. And the result was that in 1916, at long last, after this sort of slander had been circulating, that the Jews allegedly had been shirking their duties, um, the army finally undertook a count of how many were fighting in the ranks and how many were participating in the war uh, effort, uh, more largely at the front. Though the census results showed, in fact, that this was a lie and that German Jews were participating in exactly the proportion that they represented to the German population at large, the results, for some reason, were not announced publicly. And anti-Semites proclaimed loudly that this was evidence that their claims had been true. It further fed their hateful rhetoric. And while in reality 12,000 German Jews Uh, it's estimated, died in the war as a result of their conviction in in the national cause, uh, one could discern a growing anti-Semitism and targeting of this vulnerable minority within one's own midst. We've examined in today's lecture the pressures operating on home fronts and wartime societies. In our next lecture, we'll be examining the voices that were lifted in protest and in dissent against the war. Lecture 22, Dissent and Its Limits. In this lecture, we'll be considering dissents, that's to say, those voices raised in protest against the war and its madness, and the limits that were placed on that dissent by warring states. 
in our earlier lecture, we had discussed the tremendous pressure which the war experience placed upon the home front and civilian societies. And obviously, such a tensing of national energies for all-out war would very clearly reduce social tolerance for dissent. Many who had objected to the war in the abstract before 1914 as a principle, as part of a principled or philosophical political stance, had actually found themselves swept along by the riptide of nationalism in 1914 and the August madness, prominent among them many socialists. Nonetheless, a range of voices started to speak out against the war, often at considerable cost to those who were engaged in this dissent. This lecture will discuss the waves of strikes and growing workers' unrest that expressed the increased war weariness, which was gripping many of the fighting societies. We'll examine the quiet protests of pacifists and often lonely conscientious objectors who were opposed to the war on principle. We'll examine the angry condemnation of the war by a decorated British officer, Siegfried Sassoon. We'll also investigate the growing confidence of radical socialists, including Vladimir Lenin, Rosa Luxemburg, and Karl Liebknecht, who were not only opposed to the war, but also saw the war in a larger sense as an opening for a world revolution growing out of this disaster. Let's begin by examining the growing unrest which already signified, in a very real sense, that the earlier announced domestic truces were crumbling. After the first two years of the war, this growing discontent could be seen in many of the fighting countries. Before the war itself, workers' strikes and militancy of unions had reached a new intensity in Europe. With the outbreak of the war, however, in 1914, strike activity was suspended. This was part of this uh, supposed domestic truce, the sense that everyone was working together for total victory in total war. But after such an initial period of a lessening of uh, domestic and industrial tensions, strike activity reappeared in 1916. Strikes increased and would become more vocal over time And obviously, the implicit threat was that dissatisfaction with working conditions or with the the state of one's own uh, life or living standards could over time start taking on political overtones, which might very well undermine the cohesion of a fighting country. To give just some key examples, in Germany, where the Social Democratic Party had integrated itself into the domestic truce, It wasn't always capable of keeping the workers under its control. And indeed, a certain militancy from below might start disrupting the internal truce. In May of 1916, for instance, in Berlin, 50,000 German workers stopped work for three days in order to protest the arrest of radical socialist leader Karl Liebknecht, who was speaking out against the war. Strikes at this time were also increasing in France, and in Britain. They would, this sort of strike activity would also reach a new crescendo in April of 1917 when 200,000 Berlin workers again went on strike to protest reduced food rations. Similar strike activity was growing in France as well as in Britain in the time. And interestingly enough, women workers would be taking a very important role in these protests 
and in these meetings and strikes. Nonetheless, governments had insisted from the first on limiting the expression of protest against the war. Censorship was the rule of the day in all of the warring powers. And opposition to the war, wherever it might be expressed, was harshly suppressed as a symptom of defeatism, a symptom of a lack of will, or maybe even the positive intention of undermining the war effort of one's own country. And indeed, the effort to suppress this sort of opinion, even voices for negotiated peace, could go to extremes. In France, even a former prime minister by the name of Joseph Caillot was sent to prison, charged with treason. A former interior minister of France was exiled as well. Suspect newspaper editors were imprisoned, and some were even executed in France. In Great Britain, the Defense of the Realm Act allowed for extensive censorship as well. Nonetheless, desires for peace in this world conflict were strong enough that they could indeed find expression at many levels and in many different ways. One important example of voices for peace came from the neutral powers. And in this context of diplomatic history, one of the most important phenomena were the repeated attempts made by the United States President Woodrow Wilson to urge the warring powers to find a basis for negotiation and to come to the negotiating table to work out some sort of plan for peace. After repeated attempts, in December of 1916, Woodrow Wilson made a last unsuccessful effort to get the opposed opposed sides to state their war aims. This was unsuccessful, but Woodrow Wilson's formulation of a suggested peace without victory, as the phrase went, the notion of somehow bringing the, the murderous madness to a close without a decisive total victory for one side or another, was resisted by the political leaders of the warring countries, but could hold increasing appeal to ordinary people as war weariness set in. The case of Austria-Hungary was especially keen. Its leadership was increasingly desperate to somehow bring about a peace, intuiting that only an immediate peace offered some chance of survival for an imperial regime that was visibly starting to break down. The young Emperor Karl, who had replaced his granduncle Franz Josef in 1917 on the throne, started to make indirect secret diplomatic advances to the French in particular to test whether there were chances for peace, whether there was the possibility of a negotiated settlement. And it's fascinating that he did uh, did so, he made these diplomatic advances uh, through the use of very traditional channels, uh, through the aristocratic network of kinship that still obtained even in a warring Europe. Uh, one of his relatives, uh, an aristocrat, was serving in the Belgian army on the opposing side, the allied side, and thus uh, was used for uh, the ability to channel his messages to the French leadership. However, these overtures, which didn't amount to anything in the last analysis, were finally revealed to the public, to world opinion, by a spiteful French leader, Georges Clemenceau, uh, in part uh, simply a, a way of showing that, well, the central powers must be weak if they're making such advances for a negotiated peace. Uh, the, emb- the embarrassment that followed for Austro-Hungarian leaders uh, was keen, as well as for the central powers at large. 
Austria-Hungary was forced to grovel before its senior ally, Germany, uh, in uh, repentance of this uh, ill-advised gesture. And many German leaders started increasingly to feel that if Austria-Hungary was slated for extinction, well, then perhaps Germany found itself in the position, as they put it, of being shackled to a corpse uh, and uh, that this represented a liability in Germany's war effort. Nonetheless, another very important voice in terms of attempts to bring peace about uh, came with the intervention of the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. Pope Benedict XV had been elected Pope in the very first weeks of the war in 1914. And he really represented an attempt to speak out against the murderous madness seen on the battlefield, which he condemned as a senseless slaughter. He circulated a peace note as a special papal initiative for peace in August 14 of 1917. This letter was simply disregarded by all fighting sides. In the encyclicals, the papal letters and appeals which Benedict XV published, he urged peace. And he also maintained a very strict neutrality in the conflict and in the process was criticized for this neutrality by both sides. The reason for the neutrality was clear. Uh, On the one hand, uh, the Pope, after all, was the spiritual leader of Catholics fighting on both sides, on the part of the Allies as well as the Central Powers. At the same time, it was felt by uh, Benedict XV that a neutrality which was thoroughgoing offered the best chance of bringing about compromise. And so, to give but one example, Benedict XV condemned both the cruelties of German submarine warfare and the sinking of the Lusitania, for instance, as well as the British naval blockade against Germany, which was causing so much civilian suffering. The result was that both sides found his stance completely unacceptable and saw him as undermining their war effort. By an almost perfect parallel, French nationalists accused this Italian pope of being essentially Germany's pope, while German nationalists accused him in turn of being the French pope in his sympathies. Nonetheless, through quiet diplomacy, the Vatican organized special collections for the relief of war-ravaged areas, but its diplomatic initiatives amounted in the last analysis uh, to nothing more than a moral voice speaking out against war. In spite of such widespread desires as as could be perceived among civilian populations for peace, government leaderships felt the need to continue the war because their fear grew that anything less than a total victory, which would vindicate the sacrifices that had been made in the long years of the war, would be seen as weakness and bankruptcy of their own regimes and revolution might follow. Uh, To put it more, more basically, Victory seemed to be the only promise of security and stability for one's own regime and society. And thus, clearly, likewise, any expression of readiness for peace by the enemy was viewed as an admission of the enemy's weakness, and thus, all the more reason to fight on to a successful conclusion. The admission on one's own part of war weariness also was condemned as defeatism. Nonetheless, one could find particular and compelling individual cases 
of pacifism, that's to say the praise of peace as an ultimate value, and personal pleas for an end to the war. We need to be clear on one key fact in discussing pacifism. Pacifism was not a single uniform philosophical stance. If it had been, it might have had more effect. Pacifists could be people who objected to any war, to any war as such. They could also be people who objected to this war and its war aims and how it was being fought. fought. Uh, Or they could be people who simply objected to allowing this war to go on any longer, feeling that if it had initially a meaning as a war of defense, then certainly one could, through negotiation, bring the war to some sort of satisfactory close. And one's pacifist convictions could be rooted in any number of philosophical stances. Uh, The reasons could be religious conviction or simply ethical convictions or both. When the draft was instituted in Great Britain in January of 1916, pacifists came to the fore. They did so uh, entitled as conscientious objectors, meaning people who, for reasons of conscience, for reasons of their world outlook, objected to the war itself. Uh, Such a stance was often not popular in a population that was mobilized for war, and conscientious objectors were sometimes derisively nicknamed conchies. These conscientious objectors who protested against being drafted into military service were grilled repeatedly and very aggressively by examining boards that were very reluctant to concede uh, any compromise in this regard. And nonetheless, there were some 16,000 British conscientious objectors who were uh, um, recognized as such by these examining boards. And most of those served during the war in alternative capacities as stretcher bearers or behind the lines. Even when the objections and the reservations of such conscientious objectors were accepted, they were often personally vilified at home as traitors or defeatists. And the practice we had earlier mentioned of young women pinning white feathers on men not in uniform underlined this in Britain, but the emotion was to be found in other countries as well. At the same time, very eloquent and heartfelt statements of sort of a a personal plea against the madness of war were to be found among writers and poets. While many were mobilized for the war, others took a different stance. The French writer Henri Barbousse, for instance, in 1916, published the novel Under Fire. This was a realistic portrayal of the reality of war and combat, and literary historians are still amazed to this very day that a book so realistic and so unsparing in its descriptions could have been allowed to appear even under wartime censorship. The famous British poet Siegfried Sassoon was a highly decorated soldier who had fought on the British side in the trenches of the Western Front, who, as a result of his experiences, came to question the war. And in a public letter in 1917, rejected the further conduct of the war as senseless bloodletting and threw away his medal in a symbolically powerful act. Only the diagnosis of shell shock, which was given by military doctors, uh, a a, a diagnosis that he didn't agree with himself, Uh, averted the harsh punishment that likely would have awaited his principled stance. Similarly, the British novelist and poet Robert Graves 
survived a long ordeal in the trenches and wrote one of the great memoirs of the First World War, Goodbye to All That, stressing many of the same emotions. Writers who themselves were not soldiers, who were more remote from the war itself, were also to be found among those who took a stance against the conflict. They included the Austrian writer Stefan Zweig, the French writer Romain Roland, who together mourned the slaughter that they saw destroying a European civilization that they prized. And indeed, Stefan Zweig entitled his memoir of this wrenching period, uh, The World of Yesterday, a feeling that entire civilization was lost in the course of the bloodletting of the First World War. In the great comic masterpiece, The Good Soldier Schweik, the Czech writer Jaroslav Hasek depicted an ordinary soldier, Schweik, who, without enunciating great principles or personal pacifism, nonetheless, in his own bumbling fashion, by misinterpreting orders willfully and by simply being inefficient, in a very real sense also was engaged in a kind of protest or resistance against the war. We need to turn to examine the case of a group, for political reasons, who had been committed to opposition to war. And the tremendous overturning of the earlier philosophical and political stances that they had taken before the war that 1914 represented. And this was the socialist movement. The international socialist movement had experienced an internal crisis in 1914 that quite literally tore the movement apart. In the days of the August Madness, the earlier commitments to frustrating a global war and the commitments to stop a capitalist conflict simply went by the boards. We need to go back a little bit to examine the prehistory of these commitments and the ultimate disappointing rift in the movement. The so-called Second Socialist International had been founded in 1889 to join together different socialist parties from different countries, different national socialist, uh, different national parties, into a worldwide movement that would coordinate its ideas and its actions, and they were officially pledged to resist the outbreak of a capitalist war. Of course, as we know, that's not what happened in August of 1914. Instead of doing what they had pledged, closing down the war with a general strike, the individual national parties of the socialists, the German party, the French party, uh, other parties, had rallied to their individual nation's cause and had voted for war. The most prominent, the largest, the best organized socialist party in the world had been Germany's Social Democrats. And it's compelling to see how, at this hour of crisis, Germany's Social Democrats saw themselves as caught up in the national cause of self-defense, further arguing that, in particular, by fighting against the conservative Russian Empire, Germany's workers were, in some sense, serving the larger cause of progress and socialism. Other socialists in other countries found similar reasons to support their own states. And this came as a great surprise, indeed, to many socialists themselves and to the governments that earlier had been suspicious of socialist motives. Government plans in a number of countries for the arrest of socialist leaders at the outbreak of the war were simply shelved because the enthusiastic support for the war that socialists showed 
made them unnecessary. Socialists indeed entered the governments in Britain and in France, showing the sort of newfound acceptance that socialists enjoyed in the political establishment. At the same time, it needs to be pointed out that not all socialists went along with this turn of events. Not all socialists went to war enthusiastically. Italy's Socialist Party, for instance, consistently resisted the war. And so too did so-called radical socialists. Among them, the Russian, Russian radical socialists called Bolsheviks, led by the revolutionary Vladimir Lenin. Radical socialists denounced the war and argued that now that war had come, it should be used as an opportunity for international revolution. In April 1917, in Germany, a group split off from the Social Democratic Party, disappointed with what they saw as its failure of nerve in the crucial moment of the outbreak of the war. This was the so-called Independent Social Democratic Party, which saw itself as upholding the real social democratic ideals. It included radicals like Karl Liebknecht, who had refused to vote for war credits in December of 1914, one of the first voices within the Social Democratic Party uh, really renouncing and denouncing the war. Uh, also, his colleague Rosa Luxemburg, uh, a really remarkable woman revolutionary, originally uh, of Polish-Jewish origins, who had moved to Germany and had started to champion a very internationalist understanding of how the masses in all countries should renounce nationalism and rise up to overthrow through their revolutionary spontaneity the existing regime and usher in a new age. Such radical socialists broke with the moderate social democrats and set off on a more radical course. The Russian Bolsheviks in particular, led by Lenin, had denounced support for any side in this war. Attempts were made during the conflict itself to repair the damage that had been done to international unity of the socialist movement, in particular in international conferences. In an attempt to rebuild this fractured sense of unity, Socialist representatives met in conferences that were organized in neutral Switzerland. At the Zimmerwald Conference, for instance, in September of 1915, the splits were clearly in evidence and could not be repaired. In the April 1916 Kienthal Conference, a renewed attempt to resolve differences failed once again. But a powerful voice was to be heard, that of Lenin and other radical socialists who sought to promote their notions of an immediate revolution whereas the majority of socialists were instead trying to come up with a formula for peace. The radical socialists emphasized using the war as an opportunity for revolution. A planned international socialist conference, the Stockholm Conference of September 1917, failed to bring together the movement finally. And as a result of these failures, the voice of Lenin grew in volume and significance. Let's turn to examine his message. Lenin's background uh, was a fascinating one. He was born not as Lenin, that was his revolutionary pseudonym. He was born originally under the name of Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov into an upper middle class family in the Russian Empire. But he was radicalized, as many intellectuals would be, uh, but in his case, when his older brother was executed as a terrorist uh, uh, in 1887 by the Tsarist regime. Hating that conservative regime, Lenin took on a new identity as a committed revolutionary, denouncing traditional religion, denouncing liberalism and democracy, denouncing the Tsarist regime, and espousing radical Marxism. 
Active as a revolutionary conspirator, Lenin devoted his life to the revolution. Indeed, a contemporary said that, that Lenin was remarkable for living the revolution every moment of his life. Lenin was, in quick order, arrested, deported to Siberia, and then lived in exile, as many Russian revolutionaries did, outside Russia from 1900 to 1917. In 1903, Lenin led a split in the Russian Social Democratic Party. He led a faction called the Bolsheviks, the name means majority in Russian, uh, which he claimed represented a new type of party. Now, it said something about their ability to maneuver and uh, political acumen that even though this was a smaller uh, fraction of the party itself, they had won for themselves the title of majority by being in the majority at crucial party meetings when the split took place. Lenin argued that the Bolsheviks were a new type of party, one that was marked by severe internal discipline, professional revolutionary identity, and centralized control, all acting together as a vanguard of the people at large to show them the way and in order to direct their efforts in a purposeful fashion. The Bolshevik party, according to Lenin, could actually force history to speed up. It could accelerate the sort of natural development towards a workers' revolution that Marx had foretold. And indeed, the Bolshevik party, through its discipline, through its visionary understanding of the science of revolution, could lead the masses towards the future. But in his theories, Lenin faced a very serious problem. Marxism seemed to be very unsuited to Russian conditions of industrial underdevelopment and the lack of a strong proletariat or industrial working class in Russia's lagging industrial scene. This was a very serious problem. Essentially, you couldn't make a workers' revolution, it seemed, without a working class. How would Lenin deal with this problem? It was a key philosophical challenge for him. As Lenin wrestled with some of these issues, the outbreak of the war found Lenin in exile in Austria-Hungary. Um, at first, he had to evade uh, arrest as a suspected spy for the Tsarist regime. Nothing could have been more absurd. And with difficulty, he managed to flee to neutral Switzerland, uh, that um, veritable beehive of diplomats, spies, and revolutionaries in exile. While there, Lenin formulated a clear answer, as he understood it, to the theoretical challenges he had wrestled with of how to make revolution in Russia when Marxist orthodox theory would have suggested this was unlikely to happen. In a book that was produced in 1916, entitled Imperialism, the Highest Stage of World Capitalism, Lenin laid out a clear argument. Uh, and in fact, in some sense, the title said it all, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of World Capitalism. Lenin argued that the world war was a historical milepost. It was a sign that history was moving towards the inevitable crisis which Marx had foretold. The outbreak of the war had been caused by the crisis in capitalism and the tensions that had grown between nations as a result of capitalist competition. That meant that history was now reaching a decisive turning point. Lenin argued that this war between nations and empires could be exploited. It could be turned into a civil war between classes, not nations, 
but between the proletariat, the toiling masses, and the ruling classes exploiting them. And this is where Russia came into the picture. Imperial Russia, with its industrial underdevelopment comparatively, represented in some sense the most promising spot to break through. Russia was the weakest link in the chains of the capitalist world system, according to Lenin. And thus, it was the ideal location to stage a revolution growing out of Russian defeat. Lenin would now present himself quite explicitly as a defeatist. Russian defeat could produce revolution, and this in turn could spark a larger process. It's very important to keep this in mind. For Lenin, revolution in Russia was not an end in itself. It wouldn't stop there. Indeed, precisely because of the globalized nature of capitalism, according to Lenin, revolution in Russia would only be the beginning. It would be the spark for a revolution that would sweep the world. The revolution would be internationalized and spread. But the question arose, how could that revolution be started? Lenin, after all, was in Swiss exile, and he could only sit and wait for some opportunity for action. In his darker moments, Lenin sometimes despaired of seeing the revolution break out in his own lifetime. Nonetheless, as it turns out, the opportunity he'd been longing for was just around the corner, and in 1917, he would feel that his hour had arrived. We've discussed in this lecture the voices raised in protest against the war and condemning it, in counterpoint to the massive mobilization for victory in war. It was precisely in the contest and in the debate of such voices that one would increasingly hear contemporaries talking about the last years of the war as, in essence, not so much a race towards victory, but a race to see which of the fighting sides would collapse first. And this would call forth a new and remarkable effort after years of violence and sacrifice to remobilize for the last stage of the war. This remarkable remobilization of 1916 and 1917 on the part of all of the fighting powers we'll consider in our next lecture. Lecture 23, Remobilization in 1916 to 1917. In this lecture, we'll be examining the case of the challenge that faced the warring powers in 1916 and 1917 of regathering the energies that had earlier been mustered already in 1914 for one final effort in order to win total war. In our earlier lectures, we've talked about the increasing strains felt on the home front and the rising voices of dissent or protest that were audible as well. In this lecture, we'll consider how the challenge that faced these wartime societies was that of reinvigorating the war effort in these last years of the war. Historians have called this phenomenon a remobilization of energies for the fight to the finish. If the initial internal truces and sense of domestic unity had started to crumble, now, very clearly, it would be necessary as the war dragged on and as its disintegrating effects 
could be seen on the home front as well as in the armies and in the breakdown of political unity, as well as in the growing waves of worker strikes, it would now be necessary in case after case to remuster those energies. And we'll be examining in this lecture some selected cases of precisely this phenomenon of remobilization. We'll examine how in Britain, a new energetic wartime government under David Lloyd George, sometimes nicknamed the Welsh Wizard, came to power. We'll examine how in France, Georges Clemenceau's new government reasserted civilian control over the war effort and infused it with new energy. We'll also turn to the case of Germany, a very different from these uh, uh, earlier, more democratic countries, where the silent military dictatorship, as it's sometimes called, of Generals Hindenburg and Ludendorff sought to shore up the popularity of these war leaders with a propaganda campaign of patriotic instruction, as it was called, and an exp expansive list of war aims that it was hoped would appeal to German society and motivate it. And then we'll turn finally to examine two cases of failed remobilization. In the case of Austria-Hungary, remobilization didn't happen. And we'll examine some of the background reasons for that absence. In the case of Russia, the picture was complicated further by the tremendous strain of the war and revolutionary events that we'll close with. First, we need to speak to the increasing strains that we've already been outlining in previous lectures. After the first two years of the war, growing strains and weariness were to be felt in the warring societies. And political leaders in all of the warring countries recognized an urgent need to reconfigure the war effort, to put it on more efficient and more systematic footing. It was clear that the domestic truces of the start of the war, so important symbolically fused in those moments of the August madness of 1914, that those domestic truces were everywhere either under desperate strain or already breaking down. And strikes, as well as voices of dissent, were symptoms of this breakdown. In this context, and this is a, a real key towards an understanding of some of the dynamics at work in the First World War, democratic countries like France or Great Britain, though they were not perfectly democratic in terms of, of the franchise, the women were not allowed to vote, uh, the franchise uh, uh, in Britain, moreover, uh, still had its limits, but uh, democratic countries such as these seem to have an inbuilt advantage in remobilization and in mobilizing for war as well. Because in some sense, by their very democratic tradition and process that predated the war itself, they had the advantage of having mechanisms already in place for compromising, for creating some sort of cohesive consensus out of these frictions. By contrast, even though perhaps less fractious, less given to vigorous internal debate, and thus seemingly more monolithic, perhaps seemingly more powerful, the empires were at a disadvantage. In particular, Russia and Austria-Hungary, uh, with their limited experience of this sort of vigorous democratic debate, were most decidedly at a disadvantage. And they also faced the problem of not being able to use the powerful ideology of nationalism as a motivating factor for all of their populations at large, given their multi-ethnic nature. Germany itself, as we've stated before, had in the years before the First World War been an odd combination of authoritarian mechanisms 
as well as some pressures for democratization. But as Germany took on a more authoritarian visage with the wartime dictatorship of Hindenburg and Ludendorff, it too was at a disadvantage in this sense. Nonetheless, special urgency was given to the efforts for remobilization on the part in particular of the Allies by crises that hit them at precisely this period. We've talked about some of these crises already in the course of our lectures. Just to recall them, offensives on the Western Front by the Allies were defeated. Italian armies had been thrown back at the Battle of Caporetto in October of 1917, and Italy seemed in dire straits at the time. And then as well, Russia withdrew from the war. We'll be talking more about this phenomenon in our later lecture on the Russian revolutions. When the Bolsheviks come to power in Russia in November of 1917, they simply leave the war in pursuit of their revolutionary agenda. And this came as a tremendous blow to the Allied side, having lost a key geopolitical partner in the conflict. Uh, At the same time, it appeared to the central powers that they had very well won half of the war, the war on the Eastern Front. So in particular, this period, the period of 1916 to 1917, saw crises and reverses for the Allied side and a will to remobilization to summon a revitalized sense of energy to fight the war to a finish. Let's turn first to examine the case of Great Britain. Britain's remobilization was driven by a remarkable personality, that of the politician David Lloyd George. David Lloyd George was a man of immense energy and ambition. Uh, He's in fact been called a one-man Welsh revolution. Uh, He functioned as a transformative power in British politics. He was a uh, both a stormy and effective orator, as well as a keen observer and practitioner of political behind-the-scenes dealings, as well as having the sort of outsized personality that exercised a lot of charisma in terms of pushing through his vision in politics. Before the war, Lloyd George had been instrumental in crafting legislation that had already started to lay the foundations for the modern welfare state, that's to say a form of government that saw itself carrying obligations towards the civilian society at large. And in this sense, there was uh, a a certain internal coherence to Lloyd George later taking up the challenge of the mobilization of the wartime state uh, with all of its new powers. The fact, however, that Lloyd George had cooperated across the aisle, as it were, from his own radical liberal convictions with conservatives in British politics in bringing down Herbert Asquith's government uh, created a lot of mistrust toward Lloyd George. His critics saw him as a man without convictions, as a man whose ambition would know no bounds and would allow him to engage in uh, uh, politically inconsistent actions simply to advance his own agenda. But more fundamentally, David Lloyd George had objected to what he saw as a weak and irresolute conduct of the war in the years before he personally came to power. In this sense, his convictions dovetailed precisely with his own personal ambition. And so it was in December of 1916 that David Lloyd George replaced Herbert Asquith as prime minister of the British government and led its war effort. Lloyd George 
reshuffled the deck fundamentally. He replaced the previous large cabinet, which had intended to express by its very inclusiveness the uh, domestic truce uh, of the first stages of the war with a war cabinet of only five persons whom he saw as able to provide much more deliberate and targeted and energetic wartime leadership. Under his own dynamic leadership, victory took priority. And indeed, one of his slogans became, the fight to the finish. In this context of seeing his own personal vision as taking priority, consultation with Parliament was increasingly disregarded in favor of a much more personal approach to the conduct of the war. And as we've seen already in an earlier lecture on the war at sea, Lloyd George was not shy about offering advice to military leaders as well. You'll recall that Lloyd George had been particularly insistent upon trying the uh, approach of using convoys to carry uh, shipping across the Atlantic uh, as a way of frustrating the submarine warfare and his intuition, which ran counter to much of the received wisdom of military experts of the day, uh, had certainly been vindicated in the success of the convoy system. Uh, a man who had a very strong personality likewise and didn't take kindly to Lloyd George's interventions or suggestions was the controversial British General Haig. And a running feud between Lloyd George and General Haig intensified and was carried through the entire war but Lloyd George never succeeded in ousting his own opponent. Instead, this rivalry remained in place. Let's consider the case of France, where similarly, in a democratic system, a new and more vigorous approach to the war broke through. The Union Sacre, the sacred union, the domestic truce of 1914, the opening stages of the war, had progressively broken down in French politics as some of those earlier, very vigorous fault lines of pre-war French Republican politics had reasserted themselves. In addition, in dispute was the question of whether civilian authorities or military authorities should have priority in the conduct of the war. And in its first stages, emphatically, the military authorities had been expansive in their claims, and those claims had, to a great extent, been uh, agreed to by the civilian leadership. This would all change with the arrival of a new leader on the scene. President Poincaré, who had been uh, uh, the, the figurehead of the French uh, government at this time, uh, found himself in dire straits, needing uh, a new premier, a new prime minister. And he overcame a personal antipathy, a personal dislike and feud for one French politician in particular, Georges Clemenceau, and appointed him prime minister in November of 1917, in recognition, in spite of their personal differences, that here was a man who would be capable of vigorous conduct of the war. Uh, Clemenceau's nickname in French politics was the Tiger, and that was suggestive, uh, along with his, his uh, very dramatic uh, mustache, uh, of the, the vigor and the, uh, the energy with which he would approach the challenges of the war effort. He was 76 years old at this time, but nonetheless remarkable for his energy and determination that had initially given him that nickname, the Tiger. Clemenceau was not only a politician, he was also a journalist. 
He had a long career in French politics. He was a former mayor of Montmartre in Paris and really a long-standing presence in French political life. He established civilian control over the French effort with himself at the helm and really viewed himself as a war dictator. This is a paradox. In spite of his democratic convictions, he very much personalized the conduct of the war. And Clemenceau had several explanations for why this was vindicated, why this was justified under the circumstances. Clemenceau insisted in, I think, a a very witty, uh, but also very telling formulation that, quote, the war is too serious a matter to be left to generals, end quote. The suggestion was that war in its total reality, as total war, had decisive political aspects that needed to be taken in mind. At the same time, Clemenceau emphasized again and again his commitment to total victory. He would have agreed entirely with David Lloyd George's slogan of the fight to the finish. And in fact, at one point when Clemenceau had been asked what his particular war aims were, he said, uh, what are my war aims? I'll tell you. Victory. Victory. He gave priority to victory in the conflict over the details of a peace settlement, emphasizing his total dedication to total victory. Uh, And another point, uh, he had a a gift, as it turns out, for such phrases that were intended to mobilize and invigorate French public opinion. Uh, He was asked, what are his policies? Clemenceau answered, what is my home policy? I wage war. My foreign policy, I wage war. Always, I wage war. And in this context of total commitment to victory, Clemenceau uh, had uh, very little toleration for those who urged uh, the course of negotiated peace. Dissenters were arrested, jailed, or even executed under his uh, direction. In both Great Britain and France, in these more democratic mobilizations or remobilizations, of a society for war, propaganda of the variety that we already discussed in our earlier lecture on propaganda grew ever more coordinated and concerted in order to muster the will for the fight to the finish. Uh, This involved things like the deployment of film trucks and a message that was coordinated across many different media. One way of doing this was in particular to stir fears of what German victory might mean for France or for Great Britain, what these countries might be like under German rule. And so very definitively here, anxieties and fear were played upon in order to reinvigorate the war effort through fear if necessary. Let's turn now to the very interesting counterexample of remobilization in Germany. In Germany, an increasingly restive and restless Reichstag, the German parliament, had started to demand a more active role, um, perhaps a more democratic role, for its parliamentary powers and for domestic reform within Germany itself. In a very real way, this was an outgrowth of that first domestic truce, the so-called Burgfrieden. If everyone was now united, as the Kaiser had claimed, as Germans, beyond parties. Well, that meant, too, that Germans should have more of a political role in their own polity. The response, however, of the imperial government was much more symbolic rather than real. And one example of this, a visual example, came in 1916 when a German-Jewish firm 
was hired uh, to as stonemasons to carve up a slogan on the parliament building itself that read, to the German people. Well, this was in some sense just a reiteration of that implied promise that the German people at large would be taking more of a role in the future once the war was done. And this same phenomenon of deferred promises was made in April of 1917 when Kaiser Wilhelm II, in some sense to uh, help reinvigorate the war effort, um, gave the so-called Easter message of that year, promising reforms in the voting system of Prussia, which was not uh, uh, very equitable, and also for more participation in politics to come. All of these promises deferred to, however, a point after the war had been won. This wasn't enough for many politicians in the Reichstag. In particular, the politician Matthias Erzberger, who represented the Catholic minority in Germany, started to call for a peace of reconciliation, as he and others called it. In other words, a settlement of the peace that would not have clear winners or losers. This led to a dramatic political event within Germany, the Reichstag Peace Resolution. The German parliamentary majority, made up of the Social Democrats, the Catholic Center Party, and the Progressive Party, with its more democratic convictions, passed a so-called peace resolution on July 19th, 1917. It was a little bit vague in its wording, but it nonetheless suggested that one should leave the door open to a negotiated peace without annexations, that's to say occupation, without indemnities, meaning fines or reparations, and the result uh, should be a peace without winners or losers. This was most certainly objected to by the political authorities. The German Chancellor, Beethmann Hollweg, as well as the German war dictators, essentially, Hindenburg and Ludendorff, uh, disapproved of this markedly. And the reason that they disapproved of this, uh, in the case especially of Hindenburg and Ludendorff, is because they saw occupations and annexations as most definitely a key aspect of German war aims in this war. It is both intriguing as well as a little bit frightening to get a view in on their psychology as it emerges from these debates about German war aims uh, at precisely this juncture. Both Generals Hindenburg and Ludendorff were already thinking about the next war, beyond World War I. They claimed that Germany's very difficulties in the conduct of the First World War, the fact that they hadn't won an outright victory immediately, suggested that its geopolitical situation had been vulnerable. Germany needed, they argued, more territories in the West and in the East to better its strategic position, to gain more industrial as well as agricultural resources, and potentially to gain more manpower in the form of puppet regimes in Eastern Europe or elsewhere for conduct more effectively of the next war. And this is simply mind-boggling in the context of such a total war already to be thinking about the war to come. The result, however, of this peace resolution, which expressed the war weariness and desires for peace already current in much of society, was a political embarrassment for Germany and the central powers more generally. Beethmann Hollweg was simply fired as chancellor because it was clear that he had not managed to control the parliament with what few political powers it possessed in order to stop them from this gesture. And the people who had clamored for his removal 
were none other than the war dictators Hindenburg and Ludendorff themselves. It was clear that increasingly even a semblance of civilian leadership was fading in the face of their increased personal power as military dictators. As chancellor, Beit von Holweg was replaced by a non-entity, a, a largely unknown former food controller by the name of George Michaelis, a, a bureaucrat, who robbed the resolution of its meaning by saying that, well, he agreed with it insofar as he interpreted it or understood it. And the parliament itself was unwilling to push a frontal confrontation with a supreme command, given how important and popular they were at the time. Nonetheless, within a divided German society, reactions set in against what some saw as the defeatism and the inclination to opt out of anything, uh, 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 to opt out of a total victory um, expressed in the peace resolution. Reacting against this initiative, there was a remarkable mobilization of German nationalists as well as militarists. And they came together in a movement that was called the Fatherland Party. The Fatherland Party was severe in its aims. It aimed to push for nothing less than a total victory, what they called a Hindenburg peace, a peace, in other words, of annexation, in which Germany would dictate the terms. The Fatherland Party was founded in East Prussia in September of 1917 by Wolfgang Kapp, a Prussian politician, and a historical actor that we've already talked about before, Admiral Tirpitz who had resigned in disgust from the German Navy uh, because he viewed its disinclination to fight unrestricted submarine warfare as irresponsible and weak. This man, who had done so much to raise naval tensions in the year bef- years before World War I, now joined in this nationalist mustering of forces. And in short order, the Fatherland Party claimed to have a million or more members. Whether those numbers are accurate or not, it was clear that this was something new, a mobilization not by the government but almost from below of forces clamoring for total victory. And historians today still debate how we're to understand the Fatherland Party as a mass movement. Some see it as an uncanny precursor to the later Nazi Party, in part because some members of this movement later in the 1920s and 30s would go on to join Hitler's movement as well. So there are perhaps certain continuities there. The German government at the same time also launched a new propaganda campaign in July of 1917 and called it Patriotic Instruction. Lectures, talks, pamphlets, posters, all urged the German people to hold out just a little bit longer until final victory arrived. National energies needed to be tensed up for one last final effort that would bring victory, a promise of tremendous proportions. I want to conclude by talking about less successful instances of remobilization, or indeed their very absence, a race to collapse on the part of the conservative empires, Austria-Hungary and Russia. These once great empires seemed now to be locked in a death race, essentially to see who would collapse first under the strains of total war. Austria-Hungary, in spite of very ardent wishes on the part of its Habsburg leaders themselves for an escape into peace that might allow their fragile regime to still survive, had increasingly become subordinated to their larger partner, Imperial Germany, something that many German leaders resented calling 
themselves essentially shackled to a corpse, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The Austro-Hungarian Empire never fully managed to remobilize. And in particular, this had to do with the intense fragility of the system itself. In a very real sense, the Austro-Hungarian army had been a crucial institution in holding the entire imperial structure together. Because regardless of their ethnic background, the officers of the Austro-Hungarian army, whether they were of German background or of Hungarian background, whether they were Czechs or perhaps of another nationality, had started to understand themselves, had increasingly felt themselves to be, above all, servants of the Habsburg dynasty, somehow above whatever national or ethnic differences they might have. And it's precisely in this context that the devastating losses and tragedies of the first campaigns of the First World War for Austria-Hungary, its failures against Serbia, its defeats against the Russians, really portended trouble to come. Because those loyal officers of the Habsburg armies had been decimated in those initial failures. And increasingly, they were replaced by newer replacements who were not imbued with the same ethos, but instead could bring nationalist convictions from their own ethnic group of the 12 major nationalities of the empire into play. Nonetheless, what's truly striking is how, for instance, on the Italian front, the multinational Austro-Hungarian army had performed well into the late stages of the war. The result was that in a process that linked the home front as well as the fighting front in the largest picture, the nationalist tensions that had been present before the war in Austria-Hungary were quite literally starting to tear its structure apart to the point where the new emperor, Karl, no longer dared even to try to reinvigorate the war effort precisely because concessions or promises to one ethnic group as opposed to another would simply serve to further heighten ethnic tensions. The case of Russia was also unfolding with a sort of tragic grandeur. From 1914 to 1916, Russia had suffered truly horrendous losses, and these losses would continue to haunt the Russian war effort. From 1914 to 1916, in those first two years of the war, Russia had lost two million men killed, four to six million wounded or captured, and now its armies were buckling increasingly in a process of disintegration, just like the Austro-Hungarian army having lost that very valuable uh, core of uh, officers who would be capable of leading the armies into battle. The Great Retreat of 1915 had also shown that Russia was not ready for the strains of the war itself. And then, at a time, really in a form of what one might call remobilization, although not steered from above, revolutionary events took place in Russia in 1917. The Tsarist regime was overthrown as a result of popular protests, and a new democratically oriented regime in Russia with liberal politicians at the helm was installed. This new regime would try to engage in that same process of remobilization to continue the war to a successful finish that we've described for other regimes uh, in the course of this lecture. That attempt, however, would end in disaster, which we'll pursue in a later lecture on uh, the Russian Revolution. We'll be turning next to examine 
a tragic case in which the attempts at the mobilizing and the national reinvigoration of a war effort would lead to nothing less than racial mass murder, the genocide against the Armenians in Ottoman Turkey, examined in our next lecture. Lecture 24, Armenian Massacres, Tipping into Genocide. In this lecture, we'll be examining a tragic episode, the Armenian massacres of 1915, that in the enormity of these events stands out even against the, the vast tragic backdrop of the war as a whole. We'll examine in this context how scapegoating of one particular group would tip into genocide as a phenomenon. The First World War formed the context for the launching of what is considered the first full-scale modern genocide, the 1915 Armenian massacres in Ottoman Turkey, one of the central powers allied with Germany and Austria-Hungary. It's estimated that between 500,000 and 1 million men, women, and children of the Armenian minority in the Ottoman Empire were killed or died from abuse in the government's resettlement campaign and massacres. The Christian Armenians were considered a suspect population and a liability on the home front by the leadership of the Ottoman Empire. At a time of worldwide suffering, generally in the context of war, international reactions to these murders when news emerged of these events were muted. This important example shows how the war itself, as a total war, seemingly normalized mass violence. And the targeting of civilians would be an ongoing reality of the very phenomenon of total war. Beyond this as well, the Armenian massacres would form a precedent for later genocides of the 20th century. We want first to examine the origins and background of this phenomenon as a whole. The intensity of total war, historians argue, helps make genocidal conditions possible. Genocide simply means the uh, mass killing of an entire group of people because of their identity, uh, of the killing of a group of people or a part of that people, according to the formal uh, judicial definition of genocide. War, as it makes mass violence seemingly normal, in some sense, lowers inhibitions against this sort of particular form of uh, mass murder. In World War I, what's often considered the first modern genocide took place in Ottoman Turkey. Uh, clearly, there had been massacres before in the past, but this uh, form of mass murder united to the technological energies of the war uh, was something new. Between half a million and a million Armenians were annihilated. An earlier history had preceded these horrific events. The Armenians were a Christian community within the Ottoman Empire with a long and proud history in the region. Indeed, it's very much a brutal irony that in earlier ages, the Armenians had been considered very nearly a, a model group or an exemplary minority among the many different ethnic groups of the Ottoman Empire by their rulers. This, however, would change over time 
as nationalist ideas grew. The Armenians lived mostly in the eastern portions of the Ottoman Empire, in Anatolia and uh, uh, south of the Caucasus Mountains, essentially near the border with Russia uh, and with Iran. What was very important in this context was that other Armenian communities along the border with Russia uh, spilled across the border. So in some sense, this was a community that had on both sides of these imperial borders uh, related uh, ethnic groups, which uh, uh, gave them sort of a transnational identity. Uh, but the Armenian communities weren't only limited to these particular geographic locations in concentration, they were also, as a minority, spread throughout the empire as a whole. They were spread throughout the empire's cities and towns and the ports on the Mediterranean as what's commonly called a commercial diaspora, as a people who excelled at trading and in commercial ties. Uh, they very clearly had fulfilled a tremendously important economic and commercial role in the Ottoman Empire, uh, a role that eventually would uh, nonetheless lead to friction that would uh, produce the scapegoating of this group. In the late 19th century, their status as a model minority had started to change. And in particular, uh, outside forces played a role here. In the late 19th century, Europeans started to speak of an Armenian question. And the Armenian question was part of a larger Eastern question. That's to say, what will become of an apparently declining Ottoman Empire? The Armenian question, however, took on a specific significance. It was a way of asking, what of the Christian minorities of the Ottoman Empire? If they face discrimination, who might speak up for them? Well, on the one hand, this anxiety over an Armenian question was motivated by a real concern for a, uh, a religious minority that was related to that of other European Christians, but it could also, on the other hand, function as a, a pretext or a premise uh, legitimizing the involvement of European great powers in Ottoman affairs as, in their own self-image, protectors of vulnerable Christian communities, uh, as those who were defending the rights that had been accorded to these minority groups and thus fulfilling an important uh, and very legitimate international legal role. Now, obviously, uh, such claims of uh, um, humanitarian intervention uh, would at times be grounded and at other times would be seen by the Ottomans instead as outside interference that would be resented. With the decline of the Ottoman Empire's traditional structures, uh, a growing nationalism grew up in reaction. Uh, in particular, uh, the dominant, uh, uh, the ruling classes of the Ottoman Empire uh, came to identify with Turkish identity. Uh, what earlier had been a multinational, multi-ethnic empire was now to be reconfigured as being somehow, at the same time, Turkish in identity. And the result was that Armenians, as a group that were quite distinct ethnically, fell victim to both stereotyping, discrimination, as well as violence, as this nationalism grew. Uh, both uh, on occasion the commercial prosperity that they had won while fulfilling an important economic role, as well as their status as religious outsiders or religious minority, 
uh, and their status as a protected group in whose favor the great powers could threaten to intervene made them very conspicuous as uh, a minority. They fell victim to massacres in the 1890s, as already well before the First World War, uh, with the estimated toll somewhere on the number of 200,000 casualties. Uh, these massacres of the 1890s were notorious. Uh, they led to even more furious demands by the European great powers that the status of the Armenians be respected, uh, and in turn, uh, increased resentment uh, against this group as well. At the same time, a very important change was taking place in the internal politics of what was often seen as a moribund Ottoman Empire. A young group of determined activists had emerged with a determination to modernize, to reform, and reestablish the Ottoman Empire on an entirely new basis. This group of young reformers or modernizers, self-conscious modernizers, were called by the name the Young Turks. And indeed, uh, this is a phrase or a, a, a term, an appellation that uh, continues to our own times. We talk about someone who's ambitious or who's a go-getter as a Young Turk, and that indeed hails from the reputation for dynamism and for ambition that these Young Turks uh, had evidenced at the start of the 20th century. The Young Turks were an elite leadership group that grew out of a secret society called the Committee for Union and Progress that had been founded in 1900. The Committee for Union and Progress, as its very name suggested, pursued plans to revitalize the empire, to reform it, to make it more efficient, and in other words, to give it a lease on life for later in the 20th century. The Young Turks infiltrated secretly at first important positions of power. They came to exercise important influence in the officer corps as well as in the bureaucracy. And they came to power within the empire as a whole in 1908. Important changes, however, were taking place in the ideology of the Young Turks. Initially, their ideology had focused on somewhat vague ideals that were called Ottomanism. Ottomanism. This ideology suggested that it was necessary to cultivate and craft and celebrate an overarching Ottoman identity, which privileged loyalty to the state and to the Ottoman dynasty over the uh, whatever ethnic differences of language or of background might also obtain. So in some sense, their hope was that the establishment of a strong state and centralized state traditions would produce, out of their very vitality, an identity called Ottomanism. The very vagueness of these ideals, which in many senses could be quite inclusive, because one didn't have to be Turkish to share in this identity of Ottomanism. It was not an ethnic identity. It was a loyalty to the state that was being accented here. The very vagueness of some of these ideals, however, made them unsatisfactory to some young Turks. And their ideology started to change in this regard, fatefully. Instead, ethnic nationalism came to be emphasized ever more. And the ethnic nationalism that was celebrated was that of a Turkish identity. The First World War would give a great boost to this development in a more ethnic nationalist 
and less inclusive direction. Because now, groups like the Armenians or other minorities of the Ottoman Empire did not have equal access to this celebrated, overarching identity. When World War I broke out in 1914, Ottoman state officials, among them young Turks, feared that the Armenian Christian minority was in some sense an alien presence in their own midst. And in the scapegoating and the focus on this ethnic group itself, suspicions arose that the Armenian Christian minority might actually collaborate with the enemy. These suspicions were stirred by the fact that the Russians, just across the border, had Armenian minorities of their own who might engage in uh, uh, propaganda to lure Armenian minorities in the Ottoman Empire uh, for the cause of achieving independence under Russian patronage. And thus, it was ordered that measures should be taken against the Armenian minority. At the same time, the some of the war aims of the Ottoman Empire, its goal quite expansively and unrealistically, as it turns out, to uh, seek to achieve a pan-Turkish empire, even larger than the present extent of the Ottoman Empire, stretching into Central Asia and taking populations that currently were under the rule of the Russian Empire, once again accented an ethnic basis, an ethnic foundation for the identity of a future state. And this once again left the Armenians and other minorities isolated. The key figure in the measures that now were organized against the Armenian minority was Talat Pasha. Talat Pasha was the interior minister and a young Turk leader who directed the police forces of the Ottoman Empire and who was instrumental and later quite candid about aspects of the planning and of the actions taken against the Armenians. In particular, these first plans dictated that threatened strategic areas were to be, we would today say, ethnically cleansed of minorities. These were areas that were particularly vulnerable, it was felt, to um, outside influence and having populations that were considered, precisely because of their minority status, less uh, uh, loyal, perhaps, less reliable. Uh, these were areas that needed to be, in essence, remade ethnically through expulsions. And in particular, Greeks as well as Armenians, who were seen as notoriously unreliable, both of them, precisely because they had ethnic uh, relations across the borders, uh, were singled out. The strategy that was pursued was that of deportation. And indeed, deportation had a longer history in this region. The Ottomans earlier, as well as other Middle Eastern empires, had practiced the, the picking up and the removal of entire ethnic groups from one region and settling them down into another region as a strategy for how to deal with ethnic difference and ethnic minorities in past centuries. But this was taking place in a modern context, in the context of modern total war. And so these policies of deportation would turn into something different as planning and actions continued. At the same time, special security units were organized and established to enact these plans. These special security units were called the secret organization, the Teskilat-i-Masusa. They were established to enact the plans that had been organized in advance. And now the massacres began. 
the killings opened with um, a preparatory stage that made clear that they were not entirely spontaneous, but indeed uh, uh, that preparations had uh, been taken, which now unfolded. Armenian soldiers who had served in the army of the Ottoman Empire had been previously and slowly, cautiously, reconfigured into units in which they were no longer in mixed ethnic uh, military forces, but instead Armenian units themselves. And these then were disarmed, and the men in those units were killed. Then another wave of killing took place, and it started on April 25th, 1915. This first wave of arrests followed by killings coincided, and it's probably not a coincidence, with the Allied Gallipoli landing, which aimed to force uh, the defeat of Ottoman Turkey in the war, the opening of the Dardanelles, and a strategic breakthrough that would yield final victory in the First World War. This Allied Gallipoli landings had taken place in April of 1915, and in some sense were creating at this very moment an urgent sense of crisis and of emergency, which the Young Turk leadership uh, saw itself as responding to. The plans were also spurred on or accelerated by some armed resistance by Armenian communities and communal violence. Uh, in one case, uh, when there actually was uh, resistance towards uh, the Turkish forces as they moved in to an Armenian community, uh, this was quelled with difficulty but with immense violence. And this was pointed to afterwards in a sort of catch-22 as proof, allegedly, of the fact that Armenian communities had been planning a revolt or an uprising, even though, in fact, they'd been reacting to outside aggression. Indeed, at the same time, Russia had been, as an outside power, encouraging some of the Armenian rebels as part of the sort of program that all of the fighting powers were pursuing towards minorities in their enemies' populations, that policy of revolutionizing one's enemies' uh, discontented groups that we've discussed in an earlier lecture. What was especially telling, however, was that the massacres that now followed were focused not only on communities in which resistance had taken place or which were suspected of disloyalty in particular, rather the massacres focused on the Armenian community as a whole. In particular, the first stages of this process saw an attempt to, we might say, decapitate the Armenian leadership of this ethnic community. Armenian intellectuals and community leaders who had a long-established presence in the imperial capital of Constantinople, today Istanbul itself, were among the first targets they were arrested, and uh, also at the same time, such natural leadership groups in the provinces were arrested as well, and several hundred were immediately taken out and shot. After the arrests of the leadership, which might have coordinated a, a, an energetic response and which might have pleaded internationally for intervention, now events continued to unfold. Deportations began of larger Armenian communities, often announced on extremely short notice, people were simply told by proclamation that measures were being taken to ensure the safety of the Armenians, who it was claimed had shown their disloyalty but would be protected from the righteous wrath 
of the population at large by being moved away from the areas in which they had earlier lived. The men of these communities were often killed immediately, insofar as they hadn't actually been drafted before, moved into Armenian units, disarmed, and killed uh, in uh, the uh, opening stages of this campaign. Women, children, and the old were now rounded up and were told to prepare for marches. These marches amounted to death marches, and there are stories or witness accounts of women begging to be shot on the spot rather than being launched on this long, agonizing trek towards death. Over the next two years, it's estimated that two to three million Armenians were deported from eastern Anatolia and other parts of the Ottoman Empire and marched, they were told, towards Syria, towards the Syrian desert. It was on occasion explained that they were simply being resettled there and that camps and settlements awaited them. No such preparations, in fact, existed. By some estimates, a third of the Armenians were massacred, a third perished en route in these marches, and a third survived. It's estimated that half a million to one million died, killed outright or from exposure in the desert. And these numbers are tremendously difficult to reconstruct accurately, and debate still rages about which numbers are most accurate. The numbers I've mentioned represent lower estimates. Some estimates run as high as one and a half million dead. These campaigns, these marches, and the massacres were marked by immense brutality. Men were bludgeoned to death in front of their families. On occasion, children were thrown into rivers. Young women were taken away, raped, or forced to convert to save themselves, or uh, uh, included as uh, slaves or as wives in the households of those doing the killing. The Young Turk leadership encouraged these measures, but many historians believe today that no one single order was issued for the killings. Rather, measures had been planned in advance and took on a dynamic as well of their own. We might ask how this phenomenon of ethnic cleansing tipping over into genocide in the context of war, how this would play internationally, what sort of reactions it might elicit. And what's involved here, what's at stake, is obviously a key insight into how, in the context of total war, civilians themselves become targets. And war and conflict and and battle can become cover for things taking place behind the front lines, cover for genocide. This is precisely what would later happen in the Second World War when the Nazis would, under cover of the war itself, at the same time, fulfill their plans, the genocide of the Jews of Europe as well, uh, seeking to hide it during the uh, reality of, of war. Let's speak then to the international reactions that followed. There were attempts made by those enacting the massacres to hide the program as it unfolded. So, for example, even though the leadership elites of the Armenian community in Constantinople, in the capital, had been arrested and executed, the entire Armenian community of Constantinople was not removed and instead seemed to be spared as an example uh, of uh, the massacres that were not taking place. Nonetheless, in spite of these efforts, news did trickle out to the outside world. 
And it really is, an, unfortunately, a tragic but eloquent statement of the enormity of these events as they were taking place, that the first reports that filtered out were simply too brutal and too monstrous and barbaric to be believed at first. But soon, such testimony was pouring out in a volume that could not be denied. In May of 1915, the Allies, that's to say France and Great Britain, warned Turkey against these crimes against humanity. A new concept coming to the fore at precisely this time, and also in a really revolutionary sense, promised to hold the leaders responsible for these crimes against humanity uh, uh, to account after the war. An especially tragic case was that of the anguished American ambassador, Henry Morgenthau Sr., who was horrified to start receiving reports from his consuls of what was happening out there among the Armenian communities. He didn't hesitate to pass along news of these events through the diplomatic channels to America's political leadership. But American neutrality at this stage in 1915 and in the following year, uh, American neutrality in the war at this date complicated the chances for any stronger American response. Nonetheless, while the government sought to avoid uh, the sort of statements and strong, strong condemnations that might have, as they worried, uh, impinged upon their stance of neutrality, news was flowing out of these events. And American newspapers carried news of these tragedies in some detail throughout uh, the events themselves and the aftermath. In Germany, uh, a very special case obtained. Germany was the ally of Ottoman Turkey. And nonetheless, Turkish actions against the Armenians did not meet with strong reproof, precisely because Germany saw itself as needing the full energies of its ally in this conflict. Nonetheless, on the part of some Germans, voices of conscience could be heard, urging their own government to demand a stop to the atrocities. The German ambassador to Turkey, Count Wolf Metternich, for instance, pleaded that something needed to be done. Horrified German missionaries who had been working in the uh, hinterland of the Ottoman Empire uh, also uh, didn't spare in their reports uh, a full picture of what was going on. And nonetheless, in these cases, these voices of conscience were brushed aside. The German political leadership simply explained that it was necessary to fight one's way through to full victory in the war with one's Turkish ally, regardless of what was going on. In some sense, the very scale of world events in this time of war, with millions dying on the battlefield with such rapidity, probably served to obscure a clear picture, a clear understanding of what was happening to the civilian population in the Ottoman Empire. It's probably also true that the fact that the victims were not Europeans or that their their life, their way of life was not fully uh, and clearly known by many people at the time, this probably also unfortunately reduced a sense of concern and urgency about the tragedies as they unfolded. We need to speak then to some of the outcomes and the precedents of this example of genocide. Because the very lack of a strong international reaction, in some sense, established a precedent. 
This first modern genocide seemed to establish a terrible record that would be followed by later instances. And indeed, one could observe that a truly remarkable amnesia seemed to set in as the horrors of the events themselves, which had been reported, they were not unknown, which had been reported at the time of the war itself, increasingly were forgotten. Nonetheless, at first, there were attempts, as had been threatened, to hold those in leadership positions who had allowed this to happen or had planned it uh, to take place. Immediately after the war, the British in particular insisted that Turkey put the perpetrators on trial. And some trials did take place, but the results were mixed because some key leaders, in fact, fled abroad and escaped justice, at least for a time. Among the leaders who had fled was the interior minister who had controlled the police and had been instrumental in these actions, Talat Pasha. Talat Pasha had fled, defeated Ottoman Turkey, and instead had resettled in Germany. In defeated Germany, he was uh, not turned over to the Allies, but instead was allowed to continue uh, living now as a civilian. In 1921, however, he was hunted down and killed by a young Armenian. A young Armenian whose own family had fallen victim to the massacres. A young Armenian whose uh, uh, actions had in part been planned by a Armenian exile conspiracy called Operation Nemesis that had been organized from Boston in the United States, whose aim was to hunt down and to take a vengeance upon those who had enacted uh, the Armenian massacres. And the reference here, the classical reference to Nemesis was to the, uh, uh, to the inevitable revenge of the fates, uh, which had figured in Greek legend as inevitably chasing thou, down the guilty. Um, this uh, murder, which took place in Berlin, uh, became a celebrated um, legal case. Uh, the young man who had assassinated Talat Pasha was declared not guilty, essentially by reason of uh, uh, mental faculties not being uh, uh, fully in play. We would today call this the, uh, uh, the, the plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. Um, and though this case had been celebrated and had attracted international attention, in following years, attention faded, and, and the memory of these events also likewise uh, increasingly was not present to collective consciousness. Nonetheless, this new phenomenon was striking enough that a new name was given for it. The Armenians had been targeted not because of who they, uh, what they had done, because of their actions in particular, but because of who they were as a group. To find a name for this crime under international law, a lawyer of Polish-Jewish origins, Raphael Lemkin, coined a new word, and the term was genocide. Taken from classical languages, this implied the killing of an entire group of people or a portion thereof because of who they were, their identity. Now, the Armenian massacres were not the same as the later industrialized murder of the Jews, the Holocaust, the Nazis' genocide against this group on such a more efficient scale. But later, most certainly, from our present-day perspective, seemed to be a step on the way to the larger mass murders and genocides that unfortunately mark the 20th century. And indeed, one doesn't need to speculate about precedent. We have, in fact, testimony in this regard. 
justifying his destructive plans on the eve of the Second World War, Hitler is supposed to have said in a rhetorical question as he talked about his own plans for the future, who today remembers the Armenians? And the argument was clear. The amnesia that had befallen this genocide paved the way for later genocides. It's tragic as well that to this day, the Turkish government denies this tragedy in its full scale and also denies full access to the archives that might give us a clearer picture of the tragedy itself, that it unfolded in the strains of war. We'll be considering next how the strains of war could produce as well social and national revolts examined in our next lecture. These lectures are part of the Great Courses series. They are produced by The Teaching Company. These lectures are titled World War One: The Great War, Part 3. Lecture 25, Strains of War, Socialists and Nationalists. In this lecture, we'll be discussing how those enormous pressures that had built up on the home fronts as a result of the phenomenon of total war straining the societies at large could ultimately produce revolutionary events. We'll be examining the outgrowth both of social as well as national revolts growing out of the world wars tearing at the structures of established states and empires in what came to many to seem to be a race towards collapse. In this lecture, we'll explore the growing divisions in wartime societies and the revolts that they might on occasion produce. We'll examine also the fascinating phenomenon of attempts not merely to uh, uh, win the war on the battlefield, but also through a policy called revolutionizing of actively promoting such revolts in one's enemy's camp. In 1917, war weariness had most certainly become a common phenomenon in the combatant countries. 1917 in particular was marked by this war weariness as the suspicion dawned on the part of many contemporaries that in a very real sense the war might last forever. And now this sounds to us most certainly at our remove like an exaggeration, perhaps a figure of speech, but after years of grinding warfare, one reads in the accounts of contemporaries the feeling that this war might very well last a generation or that it might be succeeded by yet more conflict to come, a, a tremendously depressing and dark intuition. Nonetheless, the war would be fought on all sides to the end, increasingly because the alternatives seemed to be internal collapse. Revolutionary pressures, both social as well as nationalist in nature, were growing. And we can usefully distinguish between these kinds of revolts, though often the factors might work in tandem or coincide. Social revolts were ones in which demands were raised for changes to the structures of authority within society or how that authority was disposing of the lives of troops or of civilians. Nationalist revolts, on the contrary, tended to be directed against an authority of a different ethnic group. Nationalist revolts would demand independence and self-determination for so-called submerged peoples, ethnic groups who didn't have their own independent nation states, people like the Irish 
or the Poles would be key examples of this. Let's start by examining social revolts and then move on to consider national revolts. Radical socialists, as we've already seen in our earlier lectures, came to favor a radical prescription. Lenin's idea in particular of turning the war between nations and between empires into the occasion for a breakthrough towards a social revolution. As the formula went, turning a war between peoples into a civil war of classes. At the same time, one could also see social revolts that didn't have anything so far-reaching as a plan for the revolutionizing of all world politics, as Lenin was championing. In particular, the armies of many of the combatant powers started to experience a process of disintegration, a loosening of discipline, a decline in morale. And a key example of this, we've already discussed briefly in an earlier lecture on the Western Front, where we talked about the French army mutinies that followed upon the disastrous Champagne offensives of Nivelle in 1917. This is truly a fascinating subject, and it merits a closer examination, because the French mutinies of 1917 could certainly have changed the entire course of the war. If the German forces had attacked in force against troops weakened in their defensive powers, a breakthrough might have resulted, the sort of thing that generals on all sides were dreaming about through the First World War. Nivelle's attacks on the Anne River in April of 1917 had brought French units to the breaking point. In part, this had to do with the massive expectations that Nivelle had raised. He promised that in the course of several days, it might be possible to smash through the German lines and achieve what earlier attacks had not. When those initial high expectations were disappointed, and when the attacks nonetheless dragged on, French troops reacted in ways that were really striking and quite radical. Protests began to grow through the ranks of the French army. Some troops that were ordered to move forward to attack would actually go into battle and as they passed their officers would start making bleating noises like sheep, implying that they were essentially animals being sent to the slaughter whose lives didn't matter in the larger strategic picture. Some units didn't engage in this sort of symbolic action but simply refused orders to go on to the attack. And soon disobedience was spreading through the ranks of the French army in May and June of 1917. But what it's interesting to observe is that this series of mutinies, in fact, was not directed against all authority and against the notion of a defense of France. In fact, it was more carefully delimited and circumscribed. Mutineering soldiers explained, even as they were refusing orders to attack, that this was a patriotic strike that they were what they were protesting was not the defense of France, nor were they advocating, most of them, the overthrow of the government. What they were protesting, rather, was the way in which they were being treated, the way in which their lives were not being carefully husbanded in the process of the war itself. And a slogan of these mutineering soldiers that really summed up much of this complicated nuanced position was, we'll defend the trenches, but we will not attack. Very clearly, those French soldiers who were refusing orders had simply lost confidence in the current leadership. 
what's astonishing to observe in this context and really speaks a lot to the patriotic nature of this military strike was that news of this did not trickle out to the Germans on the opposing lines. This was not a mutiny aiming to destroy the French war effort and news of it was not communicated to the Germans. In fact, the German opposing forces didn't even learn of these mutinies until they were all over and had been quelled. And in a fascinating way, the Germans, as it turns out, had been unable to exploit this situation, which, if exploited, might very well have produced a final German breakthrough of the kind that had so long been hoped for on the Western Front. The French authorities took determined action as the mutinies spread. And in part, they did so by bringing up a man who did have the confidence of the troops. This was the hero of Verdun, General Patin, who was brought in to restore order. And he did so largely because of the charisma that attached to his reputation as a man who had defended Verdun, but also understood the troops and valued them and their persons. Patin now imposed a combination of harsh discipline and the restoration of order within the ranks, on the one hand, with the assurance, on the other hand, that no more senseless offensives, unrealistic in their expectations, would be launched. And the result was fascinating. In demonstrative disciplinary acts, many of the mutineers were court-martialed in considerable numbers. But in point of fact, few death sentences were actually carried out. At the same time as the impression was being produced of severe discipline and no toleration for such mutinies, rations and leaves for soldiers were being increased. In other words, the stick was being combined with certain incentives. Petain's reputation as a commander who had a very fatherly, paternal concern for his troops was crucial in this entire mixture. Nonetheless, even Petain's uh, own increased personal stature and charisma his reputation as a national hero, even this couldn't alter a fundamental fact that the mutinies had revealed, the offensive spirit of the French army with which the war had been launched, the cult of the offensive, all of this would never be recovered. At the same time, though less dramatic than the French case, there were also instances of discontent in the German ranks spreading as well. This was less dramatic, but certainly there was a simmering sense of disquiet among German troops that could be uh, summed up, uh, as it has been by military historians since, as a hidden military strike. Nothing quite so outspoken as the French army mutinies of 1917, but a slower sense of a growing resistance towards the sort of orders that earlier had been followed. Um, Desertions would increase. Uh, German officers complained that troops were often unwilling to accept orders to attack. And all of this began to spread its influence through the German ranks as well. One reason for this was that many German soldiers could sense that the strategic and material balance in this industrial war was turning against Germany. And never more so than when they actually uh, had successfully taken Allied trenches and discovered in the bunkers and in the fortifications Uh, a wealth of material provisions of the sort that they themselves did not have. In part, these were supplies coming from the United States. 
At the same time, the cohesion of the German army, which was intended to be uh, a, an expression of that internal domestic truce or the Burgfrieden that was supposed to obtain in German society as a whole, was breaking down as ethnic minorities within the German army were increasingly distrusted. These include Poles from the German eastern provinces or Alsatians. That's to say, in many cases, French-speaking soldiers from Alsace uh, and Lorraine, who had been incorporated into the German Empire after the Franco-Prussian War. They were distrusted precisely because it was felt that they could not be entrusted with the task of holding the line against people who might be related to them on the enemy side. So, for instance, soldiers from Alsace were left on the Eastern Front when troop transfers took place to the Western Front after the fighting died down in the East. It was assumed that they simply could not be trusted to fight the French. And this was resented as a sign of distrust. Another blow to morale, um, paradoxically, came uh, through a measure that was intended to increase that morale. As more medals, as in particular the coveted iron crosses, were handed out in ever greater numbers to stiffen the morale of German troops, some German Fighters, by contrast, felt that the honor that they had earlier won through the award of such medals was being cheapened and maybe even mocked by this sort of profligacy. In fall of 1917, there were disturbing signs in the German ranks. As troops were shifted from the Eastern Front that now lay quiet, instead towards the Western Front to prepare for offensives, in many cases, 10% of those troops being moved would simply jump off the trains and desert as they passed through the German home territory. At the same time as these sorts of more social revolts and protests against military authority were to be seen on the ground in the armies, nationalist revolts were also gaining steam. Let's consider first a, a truly remarkable case, that of the Irish Easter Rising. Because this represented something very threatening to the British Empire itself. This was unrest exploding not in faraway colonies where it might be quelled by colonial troops. This was unrest exploding in Britain's own colonial backyard, its Irish possessions. And there was obviously a longer prehistory of, of repeated revolts and uprisings within Ireland itself, which had seemed to come to a head in 1914. In fact, just before the outbreak of the war, many British politicians were more worried about the situation in Ireland than of the prospect of, of a general war breaking out in Europe. Just before the war, conflicts over the prospect of home rule, that's to say more autonomous political representation within Ireland itself, had brought Ireland to the brink of civil war as, on the one hand, Ulster volunteer forces, which championed the notion of uncompromising union with Britain itself, faced off against nationalist Irish volunteer paramilitary forces, which demanded Irish autonomy and eventually independence. When the First World War broke out, that conflict was put on hold. It was part of the phenomenon of the, the enthusiasm that grew for the war itself, but it also had another interesting subtext operating at the same time. Many Irish nationalists felt that this issue of precisely how home rule or Irish self-rule should be worked out had to be put to the side for the moment, and that in fact, by joining in the war effort and by showing a loyal attitude, they might very well be able to win over the long term 
more concessions when the peace had arrived. And so it was that 200,000 Irish, for varying reasons that depended on the individual, joined the British army and participated in the fighting itself. Not all Irish nationalists agreed with this calculation of deferring the problems till after the war. To the contrary, the revolutionary nationalist Irish Republican Brotherhood planned a full-scale revolt while the war was going on. And they had influential friends. Sir Roger Casement, who was an Ulster Protestant who had been knighted for his work, his diplomatic service in the British Foreign Office, joined the nationalist forces and secretly worked on the plans for the revolt. In line with the German hopes for revolutionizing Ireland to to, uh, encourage trouble and unrest in the enemy camp, Casement traveled to Germany to get German assistance and also tried to recruit Irish prisoners of war who had been taken on the Western Front fighting for the British to organize them into a brigade that might fight for Irish independence. Um, When he returned from the secret mission, uh, he was arrested, captured by the British Secret Services, and then executed in a London jail in August of 1916. Uh, Other plans, like casements, were quickly unraveling. Uh, The Germans didn't support the Irish effort nearly so much as the Irish nationalists had hoped. A German arms shipment, for instance, that was sent was also intercepted by the British two days before the planned uprising, tending to kind of give away the fact that something large was being prepared. Nonetheless, the planned Irish nationalist revolt went ahead anyway. And the calculation on the part of these desperate and often very romantic revolutionaries was that even if they failed, Irish nationalism would be galvanized and martyrs would be given to the cause. And that's precisely what ended up happening. On April 24th, 1916, as part of this Easter Rising, the Irish rebels seized in downtown Dublin the central post office and other parts of the downtown area, but failed to take the Dublin castle where the administration was housed. They proclaimed an Irish republic. But after a week of fierce fighting taking place in downtown Dublin itself with large civilian casualties, the rebels capitulated. The British reaction, in part suggesting just how worrying British politicians found this, was a harsh one. British forces reacted with severity by executing 15 of the rebel leaders and incarcerating other of the nationalist volunteers in camps in Britain. These harsh reprisals had a remarkable and, as it turned out from the British perspective, perverse effect upon Irish public opinion at large. At first, these revolutionaries had been seen as um, a force of of chaos, uh, as an unnecessary intrusion of unrest. But as a result of these harsh reprisals, that public opinion turned from an initial disapproval to increased sympathy for those who were now regarded as martyrs for the nationalist cause. This nationalist turn, this galvanizing of public opinion in favor of Irish nationalism, which the rebels had hoped for, later would lead to independence in Ireland in 1921. In the most famous poem that grew out of this event by William Butler Yeats, actually entitled Easter 1916, the act was celebrated as being, uh, though violent and perhaps overly romantic and misguided, nonetheless a terrible beauty, an act of tremendous political and moral significance. In the popular Irish culture, uh, there was another song that's still heard uh, today, a song entitled Foggy Dew, which memorialized the rebels who had fought in this lost cause and bitterly pointed out an irony 
that was present to the mind of Irish nationalists. This was a world war going on at the same time as the Easter Rising, which the British claimed was being fought for the right of small nations like Belgium so that they might be free. And the irony that was being underlined by the nationalists was, why not Ireland? Why was Ireland exempt from this equation? The result was that ideologically, claims to be fighting for self-determination for the rights of small nations might very well start having unintended effects by galvanizing nationalist movements in many parts of the combatant powers. And this was also true, especially in multinational regimes like Austria-Hungary and Russia itself. And thus, let's turn next to examine some of the crumbling cohesion of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and its vast multinational diversity. The Habsburg armies, as we'll recall, had faced disasters at the start of the war. Uh, Their experienced and committed officer corps had to a great extent been decimated. And the result was that German forces increasingly, as the phrase went, had to corset or reinforce uh, uh, Austrian uh, or Austro-Hungarian armies uh, by serving side by side along with them and infusing them, as it were, with greater discipline. Many Germans resented this. They frequently talked of the feeling of being shackled to a corpse. And there was very frequently the sense that Austria-Hungary itself might not long survive a continuation of this war. This, in turn, led to a process, really, of national differences starting to tear apart what earlier had been a pillar of the Habsburg Empire, its own armed forces. Entire units, as well as individual soldiers especially from Slavic nationalities of the Habsburg Empire, at times simply defected to the Russians on the Eastern Front, Uh, in part because of their ethnic affinity to those fighting on the other side. They might often simply lay down their uh, rifles as they were ordered to advance and walk forward with raised arms, shouting out brother uh, or comrade. And in turn, the stereotype of this kind of disloyalty, which was certainly there in individual cases, but was not true of all of the soldiers of different ethnic groups, minority groups of the Habsburg Empire, this sort of stereotype that they were all supposedly disloyal, further undermined ethnic relations and increasingly became a self-fulfilling prophecy. As troops felt that they weren't trusted by their own officers, their motivations certainly sank. And that comic masterpiece of world literature Yaroslav Hasek's good soldier Schweik gives ludicrous testimony to this. It shows how the soldiers of the Habsburg armies are very frequently involved in brawls on an ethnic basis in taverns and in bars rather than fighting side by side against uh, the enemies of the empire. Um, but this could take on a more serious significance as prisoners that have been taken from the Habsburg armies could be organized into foreign legions to fight against their earlier rulers. From fall of 1917, for instance, in Russia, a a so-called Czech legion was organized from prisoners of war and was set to fight against the Austro-Hungarian forces, which they'd earlier served with, in the cause of Czech independence. Growing nationalism was reflected in a very vivid way in the advanced Czech national movement, which was uh, a key model for other nationalist groups as well. Much of this was taking place in exile as activists organized to defend their national cause. Uh, in Paris, for instance, Tomasz Mazarik and other exiles were busy forming a so-called national council, 
which spoke not only for the Czechs and claimed independence for them, but for a larger grouping, what they called a Czechoslovak Union, as the allied Slavic people of the Slovaks made common cause with the Czechs. And as the Allies recognized these claims for Czechoslovak or Czech independence, the future existence of the multinational Habsburg Empire was very clearly being called into question in an existential way. Other nationalities were at the same time galvanized to seek independence as well in a wave of rising expectations. And this sort of phenomenon was to be seen also in the growing disarray of the Russian Empire as well. The Russian army was in a state of disintegration. They were losing their confidence in their leadership. As the saying went, they were voting with their feet by simply leaving the front. And food riots in Petrograd, in the imperial capital, in spring of 1917, with a very important participation by women workers as well, led ultimately to a revolution in which the Tsarist regime collapsed in the spring of 1917 with incredible, unprecedented speed. And we'll speak more about that in our next lecture. But the case of one ethnic group that uh, was divided between all of these empires was a classic one uh, and spoke to the growing nationalist aspirations of many ethnic groups, and that was Poland. Poles had been divided between the three empires of Russia, Germany, and Austria-Hungary over the course of the last centuries, and now Poles increasingly grew restless once it was clear that the future shape of Europe was going to be changed and was about to be decided when the war ended. Now, tragically, about one and a half million Poles were serving in the different armies of the different empires and often could be facing one another on the battlefield. This was a tragedy that nationalists wanted to work against. And the Polish socialist as well as nationalist patriot, Josef Piłsudski, who was from the Vilnius region in Lithuania, planned to establish Polish military forces that could serve as the basis for later independence and the core of an army for a future Poland. Those volunteers and his legions soon adopted the slogan, We are Poland. And it was clear that a very militarized kind of nationalism was coming to the fore here. In November of 1916, as we already discussed in our lecture on occupations, Germany and Austria-Hungary had declared, though with very vague details, the founding of a Polish kingdom, hoping to create large Polish armies that would fight on their side. Polish nationalists saw this as just an invitation to be cannon fodder for the central powers, and the plan failed. There were very few volunteers. Piłsudski, who had worked against the subordination of Polish volunteers to anybody else's command, was soon arrested and jailed by the central powers, um, sent to a prison in Germany. At the war's end, he would emerge from jail with great prestige, would lead the Polish nationalist movement, and later would become the dictator of Poland. Abroad, and working in tandem with these efforts, uh, other Polish activists were also at work. Uh, a man whose relations with Pilsudski were not very good, he was a rival, in fact, Roman Dmowski, uh, sought to rally support for Poland from the Allied side. This was a case of trying to play the sides off of one another in order finally to win national independence. Finally, we want to consider the phenomenon of a broader revolutionizing with some key cases. This was a phenomenon to be seen on all sides of trying to subvert minorities on the enemy's side and produce unrest. But a key example of this on the Allied side was the Arab revolt that had been fomented by the British in particular. The British had encouraged an Arab revolt within the southern lands of the Ottoman Empire with political support and advice as well as arms. The revolt had broken out at Medina in June of 1916. It was led by a famous family, 
the family of Sharif Hussein ibn Ali of the Hejaz. An Arab army, now rising up in revolt, was rallied to the cause of fighting Ottoman forces, and the revolt soon was spreading through Arabia and to Syria, raising expectations someday of a great Arab uh, state. The young British archaeologist Thomas Edward Lawrence, who later acquired legendary status as Lawrence of Arabia, championed this Arab cause and identified with it intensely and celebrated the preeminence of one of the leaders of the revolt, Faisal ibn Hussein, the son of the Sharif. An Arab surprise attack uh, made news headlines with the capture of the port of Aqaba in July of 1917. Significant Turkish forces were pinned down by this revolt, and the rebels later were able to cooperate with the British in their campaigns in the Middle East. News of Allied diplomacy, the Balfour Declaration and the Sykes-Picot Agreement, however, would lead to keen disappointment of those initial hopes for Arab independence. The German initiatives of trying to revolutionize the Allied sides are also fascinating and turned out in some cases to be disastrous. The Zimmermann telegram of January 17, 1917, was a secret initiative. It was a telegram sent by the German foreign minister, Arthur von Zimmermann, to the German ambassador in Mexico, urging action and negotiations to try to bring Mexico into the war on the side of the Central Powers. And what was being offered in this war that would pit Mexico against the United States was the prospect of regaining lost provinces that now had been incorporated into the United States, provinces of Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. Uh, Suffice it to say that this attempt at revolutionizing America's neighbors ended catastrophically as this really outraged American opinion and galvanized support for war. The German Supreme Command also sought to use Russian revolutionaries as revolutionary weapons, and in particular, they used the Bolshevik leader, Lenin. Just weeks before the outbreak of the revolution in Russia in March of 1917, Lenin was in Swiss exile, essentially sitting there despairing over how he might be able to someday produce the revolution he had longed for. And then, on the orders of the German general command, Lenin and 31 of his other revolutionaries, who also were in exile, were transported by train through Germany itself to Russia in April of 1917 to spread the virus of revolution and defeatist ideas to take Russia out of the war. As soon as Lenin arrived in Petrograd, and he was a man whose dreams were coming true, he preached Russian defeat as a necessity and the overthrow of the government, precisely what the Germans had wanted. Lenin very cheerfully accepted the German assistance while pursuing his own plans. As critics called him a German spy, Lenin was using the Germans just as much as they were using him. And this successful revolutionizing of Russia was in one sense the greatest success of this policy during the entire war. It knocked a great power out of the conflict, but it was one that was a double-edged sword because German elites would come to regret it as the same revolutionary ideas would spread back to Germany towards the end of the war. Let's speak to the outcomes of these strains and social and national revolts. The growing revolts revealed a paradox. To many political leaders, it seemed that the only way to quell dissent within was to win total victory, because otherwise revolution would erupt and defeat would uh, be the result as well. This dynamic, in turn, made the conduct of the war more extreme and less likely to compromise. In general, as the war drew on, one can observe a revolution, you might say, of rising expectations taking place among general populations. Within Europe, nationalities and ethnic groups hoped to win independence in the post-war order. Outside of Europe, similar effects could be seen as well. Colonial troops, as well as colonial laborers, 
were participating in these rising expectations. Among them, for instance, would be the later Vietnamese communist leader Ho Chi Minh. And in the context of these rising expectations, revolutionary events would come to a head in 1917 in particular. The war would enter its revolutionary phase most vividly in a series of revolutionary events in Russia itself that we'll examine in our next lecture. Lecture 26, Russian Revolutions. In this lecture, we'll be examining the revolutionary events in Russia of 1917. Historically, wars have often brought revolutions, and in this case, in the context of the First World War, in an almost perfect symmetry, in the year 1917, total war would provoke an attempt at total revolution. The Russian Empire was the first to break down, the the first to collapse under the pressure of the demands of this industrial conflict uh, in the context of pressures that were operating on all of the combatant powers. Russia, as it turns out, had won the race towards collapse. We'll be examining in this lecture the March Revolution of 1917 with its mobilization of forces from below, We'll also then examine, a few months later, the seizure of power by Lenin and his Bolshevik comrades in November of 1917, as they would seek to inaugurate the foundation of a new communist government and produce a social revolution that would craft a new utopian society. Thus, the year 1917 would be a crucial one in modern history, not only because of the Russian revolutionary events, but also because of other things taking place at the same time. And the British historian A.J.P. Taylor, in particular, has argued that 1917, in a very real sense, marked the start of world history, in a true uh, sense, with the Russian Revolution on the one hand, and its upwelling of ideological implications, and on the other hand, America's emergence as a world power, the entry of the United States into the First World War as well. Both events very clearly were of enormous significance because they injected new ideological energies into the First World War and in the process changed the meaning of the conflict as well. We'll be examining in this course uh, events that really touch on the main themes that we've been pursuing throughout this course. The uh, phenomenon of the shock of the new. The revolutionary events that we'll be describing here most certainly sought to craft an entirely new order. Uh, as well, we've been pursuing the topic of the ideological dimensions of the First World War. Well, here, in a very true sense, was a tremendous new infusion of ideology, the challenge of ideas. And then finally, the last of our major themes, the implications of the First World War for our own times are most certainly on display here as well as some of the ideas of communism would continue to work their way out uh, into the present as well. We need, first of all, to provide some background about the revolutionary events themselves. How had it come to this? The last ruler, as it turns out, of Russia's autocracy, of its imperial system, was Tsar Nicholas II, who had come to the throne in 1894. Historians, with their gift of perfect hindsight, have often pointed out that 
as a man, as a personality, Nicholas was very unsuited for this role of being an autocrat, of being, a, a, at least in theory, an absolute ruler. Um, it's often suggested that with his deep sense of responsibility and caring about the duties that he felt had been entrusted to him, he would have made an excellent landlord or estate owner. Not, however, uh, the bold and reforming ruler that Russia needed in its Tsar. Um, and further compounding this tragedy, his wife, the Tsarina Alexandra, who is the granddaughter of Queen Victoria of Britain and also uh, of German origins, um, unfortunately tended to worsen matters with bad advice, uh, even though her intentions and her devotion to Nicholas II were of the very best. There had in some sense been a wake-up call or a rehearsal for the revolution of 1917 years earlier. In 1905, uh, as a result in part of the trauma of defeat by a non-European power in the Russo-Japanese War, revolutionary events had come to a boil in Russia. And in that 1905 revolution, the imperial throne had nearly been toppled. In that context of the 1905 revolution, um, at a grassroots level, very interesting events had been taking place. A grassroots revolutionary movement had centered on a new institution, quite democratic in nature, called uh, the Soviet in Russian. We say Soviet, which literally simply means council. These councils spread throughout the countryside, in the cities, in the factories, in military units, and they were intended sort of as a, an expression of democracy from below, where in an unhierarchical way, people would discuss and would take collective action. In the context of this movement of the Soviets, Leon Trotsky, a brilliant revolutionary and orator, had gained a special prominence, and he later would play a role in 1917 as well. In 1905, in these revolutionary events, the Tsar and his conservative advisors had managed to defuse the revolution. They did so by granting a parliament, the so-called Duma, as Russia's parliament is called today. But this seeming concession to democratic ideas was later undermined in its significance as the Tsar continued his policies and as the parliament was not given real powers. Nonetheless, in the years after this traumatic revolution of 1905, reforms had been attempted. From 1907 to 1911 in particular, structural improvements had been proposed and enacted, but historians judge that they still needed more time to really ripen into full significance and uh, produce a larger uh, reform movement within the Russian Empire itself, something that contemporaries urged it badly needed. At the same time, an active revolutionary movement was also developing. It included the peasant-oriented social revolutionaries, whose slogan might have been described as trust the peasantry, uh, who argued that out of the, the, out of the moral health of the peasantry and the peasant masses of Russia, there might emerge a new model of sort of an agrarian paradise that could sidestep the woes of capitalism and provide an entirely new concept for how society could be organized. Another revolutionary movement was the Marxist Social Democrats. The Marxist Social Democrats were modeled on the Social Democratic Party of Germany, which was seen as the, the best organized, the largest, the dominant, uh, and uh, they sought, in essence, to emulate some of its successes. 
Within this social democratic movement that followed Marx's doctrine, a small and radical faction was that of Lenin's Bolsheviks, who had hijacked, as it were, the name the majority, even though they were a smaller radical faction, and now argued their hardline message. World War I, in this context, represented a test of strength. It would challenge the resiliency of the Russian Empire. It would put it under enormous pressure. And in essence, this was a test of strength that the Russian Empire ended up failing. In the initial enthusiasm to be seen in Petrograd and in provincial capitals, uh, there had been the same sorts of celebrations in August of 1914 as we've discussed in the case of other powers as well. Uh, different ethnic groups, non-Russian nationalities, had at first pledged loyalty to the regime. They were probably less enthusiastic about the victory and reinforcement of the Tsarist regime than some pan-Slavist or Russian nationalists. But nonetheless, the mood had certainly been one, uh, in part at least, of that sort of exultation that we've seen elsewhere in Europe. And some of the same nationalist fervor now operated to uh, include proposals like the renaming of the capital, which was St. Petersburg originally, now renamed Petrograd to sound more Russian and to shed some of those earlier, Orient, uh, earlier associations with German culture. Nonetheless, the war itself uh, took a very disastrous course for the Russian forces. Unrelenting catastrophes on the battlefield produced a crumbling of morale. You'll recall that some Russian forces had been sent into battle without adequate weapons and had simply been told, pick up your rifles as you approach the front lines and go on to the attack. The Russian Tsar, Nicholas, who had taken over command personally, uh, had, as it turns out, in that particular gesture, miscalculated badly what the requirements of the situation were. Henceforth, he would be blamed personally as well for the catastrophes on the battlefield. And increasingly, discipline itself was breaking down. Ordinary soldiers would, as the phrase went, vote with their feet by simply leaving for home, getting up out of the trenches, throwing away their weapons, burying their uniforms, and simply heading home. Within the court of the Tsar's empire, a pro-German faction, in fact, even started whispering that it might be necessary to leave the Allies and that Russia's survival as an empire, the survival of its imperial structure, might necessitate finding a separate peace, something that the Russians had pledged not to do uh, along with the other Allied powers at the start of the war. Tsarina Alexandra, who had been so very important in providing moral support uh, and firming up Nicholas's intentions, now fell under the influence of a truly remarkable and strange personality, that of Grigory Rasputin. Rasputin was a crazed holy man and faith healer, uh, something of a deranged sex maniac from Siberia, who nonetheless exercised a remarkable mag magnetic influence over men and women alike by the force of his personality. Uh, there also was something else at work that historians have not been able to adequately explain, it seemed that he was able, at least in the short term, to improve the condition of the ailing heir to the throne uh, who was suffering from hemophilia. Um, at least in the short term, this produced enormous prestige for Rasputin. And Rasputin's domination of elements of the imperial court and his influence over the empress herself uh, left many Russians scandalized. 
while Rasputin obviously was only the symptom of larger problems, not their cause, uh, the, uh, he became a vivid symbol of so much that was wrong with the ruling regime itself. And a group of nobles set about assassinating Rasputin in December of 1916. Um, it's really remarkable to read some of the testimonies or the records uh, that circulated about this assassination. At a time of mass death in the First World War, Rasputin himself seemed to be almost unkillable. Uh, the assassins, so the legends that have accumulated around this assassination go, the, uh, the assassins in December of 1916 had first tried to poison him with cyanide in, in some cookies and in wine that was served him. When that didn't work, they shot him with a gun and then shot him again when he continued to stagger out into the courtyard of the, the building where he had been lured for this assassination. Uh, he then was beaten with a truncheon, and just to make sure that he finally was dead, uh, his body was thrown into the Nieva River uh, in its icy state. The result of this assassination, symbolically important as it might have been, didn't ultimately resolve the problems. Rasputin really had been a symptom rather than a cause. And the revolutionary situation finally had built to a crescendo with the March 1917 revolution. When the March Revolution broke out, it did so spontaneously. And even revolutionaries who had been longing for revolt and upheaval were taken by surprise. Uh, the March Revolution of 1917 broke out on March 8th. In Russian history, this has often been called the February Revolution because by the older Russian calendar that then is replaced and uh, uh, replaced by a calendar that is the same as used in Western Europe, uh, by the old calendar, February 23rd was the date of the outbreak of this revolution. It had started on March 8th by the Western calendar with the demonstrations of women workers in Petrograd, uh, many of them wives of soldiers at the front who were clamoring for food, who were protesting uh, at inadequate rations. They then were joined, as they urged, by striking workers from the armaments factories of the Russian imperial capital. At this point, as the protests were growing and growing, the city garrison, the troops who had been moved into the capital itself to, to keep order by quelling revolts, as they had so many uh, times in the past decades, that city garrison, when ordered to fire on the crowds that were protesting, instead refused to do so and joined the protesters. Very clearly, this revolt was snowballing. And as more and more units joined the rebels, Tsar Nicholas ultimately faced no other option but to abdicate, which he did on March 15th. With surprising speed, three centuries of the dynastic rule of the Romanov family in the Russian Empire had simply drawn to a close. And the question now emerged, well, out of this chaos, out of this confusion, what was to uh, present itself as a new order of rule, a new authority? Of almost trying to keep up with events, a new provisional government was formed by March 15th as the Tsar was abdicating. It was made up of former Duma politicians, former parliamentary leaders who subscribed to liberal ideas, who wanted to move Russia in a more democratic direction, and who played, pledged also out of their deep sense of Russian nationalism to stay in the war and to honor their obligations to the allies uh, that had been undertaken at the start of the war. Now, one might have expected that uh, the Western allies, the uh, French and the British, might have been dismayed by the seeming chaos in the Russian Empire. 
to the contrary, and this was for ideological reasons, uh, the events and the founding of this new liberal-style government was actually greeted with a sense of relief and celebration by the Western allies. In their own propaganda about fighting for international law and justice, uh, being allied with the notoriously conservative and despotic authoritarian Tsarist regime had sometimes been something of an embarrassment. Now, by contrast, in an ideological sense, all of the Allied forces seem to be united ideologically behind the banner of growing democracy and a certain inner cohesion. The provisional government, however, of these politicians who had played role in parliament before uh, was increasingly ineffective. And the provisional government ruled for only about eight months with ever less authority before finally being overthrown. One problem that the provisional government faced, in addition to its own disorganization, was that it faced the rival authority of another revolutionary institution, the Soviets, a revival of that revolutionary tradition from 1905. The largest of these Soviets or councils was the so-called Petrograd Soviet. This was another power center, which claimed to speak for the other Soviets around the country established by soldiers and sailors and workers. For for now, at least at the first, the provisional government was tolerated by the Petrograd Soviet, but it announced that it was going to keep its eye on this provisional government to see that it was ruling true to revolutionary ideals. The provisional government continued the war and prepared in a liberal, uh, legalistic sense for the calling of elections and eventual constitutional reforms, trying to follow the rule of the law. In this context of disorganization, it was very clear that the provisional government was vulnerable to challenges. And a great challenge came about when Lenin, as a result of German policies of revolutionizing Russia, was shipped back to the Russian lands. Lenin had been enormously frustrated in the spring of 1917 to be not forming revolutionary events in Russia, but reading about them in a newspaper in Switzerland in exile. But his dreams had come true when the German general staff transported him back to Russia in April of 1917. Uh, A myth circulates that Lenin and his fellow revolutionaries were transported through Germany in a sealed train so that they couldn't spread the virus of their revolutionary ideas uh, in Germany itself. This this is a li- symbolically um, apt as this legend might be. It actually isn't uh, true. Uh, the train car was open, uh, but it was certainly cautiously guarded and watched over so that the revolutionaries wouldn't be able to propagandize German workers as they passed through the territory. Nonetheless, when Lenin emerged at the Finland station in Petrograd, In April of 1917, he immediately declared striking revolutionary messages that were summed up as the April Theses. The April Theses, or arguments, promised that with a further radical revolution, peace, land, and all power to the Soviets as revolutionary organizations would become a reality. In essence, Lenin was championing the idea of revolutionary defeatism. The worse things got, the better things get would, uh, would get for revolutionaries within Russia. Defeat was necessary for the greater cause of revolution. 
Now, by his call for the overthrow of the provisional government and for Russia, in essence, to leave the war as a loser, Lenin shocked even his own Bolshevik associates who felt that surely one had to give more time for events to evolve and that defeat might not be the answer. Slowly, however, by the force of his arguments and his revolutionary logic, Lenin convinced them. Lenin was supported in his message by a fervent revolutionary, Leon Trotsky, who had played a role in the revolution of 1905, who had only recently returned from New York, where he'd lived in exile, on news of the revolution, and who at first was not a Bolshevik, but joined the Bolsheviks in summer of 1917, and would add his powers of rhetoric and oratory and his his revolutionary passion to that of Lenin and his colleagues. It was said at the time that in a real sense, the provisional government's weakness meant that power was lying in the streets. And the only question was who would pick it up. Lenin was determined to do so. The provisional government was eventually in its last stages led by a socialist by the name of Alexander Kerensky, first as minister of war, later as a prime minister, um, who sought to emulate that sort of mobilizing of the war efforts that had taken place under David Lloyd George's leadership in Great Britain, under that of Clemenceau in France. He, too, was a great orator. He, too, was a man of, of fiery revolutionary ideals, and he sought to communicate them to the Russian soldiers to reinvigorate the war effort. Kerensky prepared an offensive into Galicia to take the fight to the Central Powers once again, but this failed in July of 1917, and the military collapse soon turned into retreat. When a premature Bolshevik uprising misfired in July of 1917, Lenin fled to Finland, but he continued plotting against the provisional government, which soon found itself threatened both from the left by the Bolsheviks and the radical socialists, as well as from the right on the part of more conservative nationalist Russian politicians. By October of 1917, the Bolsheviks felt that the moment was arriving. The Bolsheviks had managed to achieve a majority in the Petrograd Soviet, uh, infiltrating representatives of theirs into this organization and moved to seize power as Lenin urged. The time had arrived to take up power lying in the streets. And this happened in November of 1917 with the Bolshevik seizure of power. The Bolsheviks took power in a coup on November 7th, 1917, with astonishing ease. Uh, this is an event which, confusingly enough, was called at the time Red October, because by the old calendar, uh, uh, the events had taken place still in October. Small numbers of Red Guard forces, as the Bolshevik uh, Vanguard was called, stormed the lightly defended Winter Palace. Among the troops defending the Winter Palace at this time was really uh, a remarkable testimony to women's involvement in the war. It was a women's battalion that was among the defenders, uh, but they were soon overwhelmed. The members of the government who were present at the Winter Palace were arrested, and the capital of Petrograd, in quick order, with surprising speed, was seized by the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks later mythologized this Red October into a Great October Revolution. And it was pre presented in propaganda art, as well as in films, that recreated these events as a mass event. Uh, the joke, however, at the time went that the, the film of the Great October Revolution uh, involved more people getting hurt or accidentally injured than the event itself. The Bolsheviks announced that they were taking power not for themselves, but in, in the name of the Soviets, in the name of these revolutionary grassroots institutions. 
The reality, however, was that real power was held by a select steering committee, the Council of People's Commissars, called by the acronym Sovnarkom, which represented, in fact, Lenin and his comrades, who now set about establishing their power with a new revolutionary regime. First, the peace decree, as it was called, announced that Russia was leaving the war. This came as a tremendous blow to the Western Allied powers. They had just lost a key ally. On December 15, 1917, a ceasefire was signed with the Central Powers. The war, as far as the Bolsheviks were concerned, had ended and the International Revolution was about to follow. The state as well took over ownership of land throughout the lands of Russia, and the peasants were allowed to seize it even though the state would retain title. At the same time, the Bolsheviks set about quelling resistance. The so-called Cheka secret police was established very quickly on December 17, 1917. Cheka was an acronym for the words that in Russian stood for Extraordinary Commission for Combating Counter-Revolution and Sabotage. And the Cheka, as black leather-clad secret police armed with pistols, were charged with a policy called Red Terror, which moved against suspected counter-revolutionaries or class enemies who were incarcerated and brutalized. The beginnings of a concentration camp system were established at this period. Stalin would later uh, elaborate it into a vast gulag empire, but its origins lay here. One after another, rival party was shut down, even fellow socialists eventually, and newspapers were banned. State control of internal trade, factories, and land was established. And in really remarkable ways, Lenin saw himself um, trying to imitate, in this regard, the German war effort that had jokingly sometimes been called war socialism, of intense state control of resources to mobilize for war. In elections, which the provisional government had called to a constituent assembly for a future democratic Russia, the Bolsheviks allowed these elections to go forward, but they were disappointed. They received less than 25% of the seats, and thus, in their disappointment, shut down that assembly as soon as it started to meet in January of 1918. They simply sent in revolutionary guards, who declared that uh, the assembly was being shut down, it was no longer necessary, and in this case, guns trumped democratic legitimacy. Uh, Russia's brief experiment with democracy was over at the start of the 20th century. On July 16, 1918, the Bolsheviks also undertook a measure that made very clear that there was no going back to the old regime. The imprisoned Tsar, Nicholas, and all of his family were executed shot to death in a cellar in Yekaterinburg. Um, later, myths and legends circulated that some of them had escaped, uh, but there seems no evidence compelling of, of this. Uh, the family most certainly was martyred by the revolutionaries. The mood of emergency, which was current among the revolutionaries who sought the, to use this window of opportunity, was summed up in the policy of war communism, intense state control of all factors in the economy and the mobilization of society, not for war, but for revolution uh, in a very real sense. Lenin, for his part, announced that the need of the hour was dictatorship. He defined dictatorship as, quote, authority untrammeled by any laws, absolutely unrestricted by any rules, whatever, and based directly on force, end quote. The revolution demanded it. 
And the revolution the Bolsheviks were envisioning was not just the limited Russian revolt or seizure of power that they had crafted. They were instead preparing for a world revolution. The Bolsheviks felt this special sense of urgency as they expected that their Russian uprising would be followed by a world revolution that would break out in quick order. Uh, They set about propagandizing a world audience by breaking into the safes of the Russian foreign ministry and collecting all of the secret treaties and the secret diplomacy that was uh, evidenced in those uh, documents of the uh, foreign ministry and by simply publishing them. And this was an enormous embarrassment to the Western powers, the Western allies, uh, because there uh, some of the quite craven and not very honorable uh, secret treaties and discussions over territory uh, to entice one or another power to enter into the war were now laid bare for propaganda effect. Similarly, Bolsheviks on the Eastern Front, which was now quiet after the ceasefire, tried to fraternize with German soldiers and sought to spread their ideas. Uh, in uncanny ways, this was almost a, a throwback to the Christmas truce of 1914 on the Western Front, uh, but now in 1917 and early 1918, this was intended to produce not just peace for a religious holiday, but in fact, uh, a spread of revolutionary ideas. Lenin, for his part, who made no secret of his admiration for German war industry, German organization in mobilizing for war, believed that a key to world revolution would be if if Russia, in some sense, could link up with the Germans. Not the Germans of the Kaiser's regime, not Hindenburg and Ludendorff and the war dictators, but with the German working classes who were enacting this tremendous mobilization. Lenin was tantalized with the possibility that if German efficiency and Russian revolutionary fervor and passion could be fused into one revolution, a new world would most certainly result. To win time for this expected coming world revolution, which the Bolsheviks quite literally hoped for every moment after they had launched their own seizure of power, Lenin needed to convince his skeptical comrades of a further element of defeatism. It was necessary to sign a peace treaty with Germany, no matter how humiliating, no matter how harsh, because this, Lenin argued, would be the price for saving the revolution in expectation of the outbreak of a worldwide conflagration. After the December 1917 armistice, a strange set of negotiations began at the fortress of Brest-Litovsk, earlier a Tsarist fortress, now in German hands, on the Eastern Front. And both sides would be jockeying for propaganda effect uh, even as they pursued their own intentions. We'll talk more in a later lecture about these negotiations at Brest-Litovsk, but it would be suitable to take stock of the implications of the revolutionary events we've just described. The Bolshevik seizure of power in fall of 1917 represented a truly revolutionary event in world politics. It would change world politics. And I think that a hundred years hence, this revolutionary event will be emphasized even more by historians than it is today. It introduced a new factor into world politics of the 20th century, a new kind of ideologically steered and guided state, which was devoted not to smaller gains or changes, but devoted to nothing less than the overthrow of all other existing states and capitalism itself. 
The Bolshevik coup, in a very real sense, was a pivotal historical event of the century. Communism would do much to shape the ideological discourse and dynamism of the modern age. Because one thing was clear, all states and societies would be forced to respond to its ideological vision. Another pivotal event taking place at the same time in 1917 was the entry of the United States of America into the war, which we'll examine with its implications in our next lecture. Lecture 27, America's Entry into the War. In this lecture, we'll be examining a crucial event that truly changed the nature of the First World War. And this was America's entry into the Great War in April of 1917. One of the major themes of our course is the totality of war, Well, the American entry, in part, would expand the war in a geographical sense, but it would also expand it also in terms of giving it a larger ideological character. Uh, In tandem or in parallel with the Bolshevik seizure of power that we had discussed in our last lecture, worsening relations between Germany and the United States, in particular over submarine warfare, uh, as exampled by the sinking of the Lusitania in 1915, and growing economic ties between the United States and the allies with which it could trade more freely than with the blockaded central powers, finally led to the United States joining the allies as a so-called associated power. And we'll see shortly that the term there was quite significant. The American president, Woodrow Wilson, articulated in this context of American entry into the war a revolutionary set of war aims, Wilson's 14 points, which aimed, as the phrase went, to make the world safe for democracy. In this lecture, we'll follow America's path to war. Together with the revolutionary events in Russia of 1917, American entry into the war combined to give the year 1917 a truly special significance as a world historical watershed. And it's sometimes been argued that 1917 represents in a very real sense the beginning of world history ideologically as well. But first, we need to examine the record of American neutrality. In the first years of the war, America had stood aside from the war that was unfolding in Europe. Many Americans, one clearly can imagine this, of immigrant origins certainly felt grateful to be spared the bloodletting of the old world. America was a country being transformed by truly massive immigration at this time. According to one estimate, 12 million immigrants had come to the United States since 1900. Many of them coming from Europe, they had experiences of conscription or of the increased militarization of their societies that they had left behind or poverty that made them glad of a new world to replace the old. And the result was that many of precisely such immigrants could feel either relief at having left the old world behind, or might still feel residual ties and sympathies to some of the uh, old world political realities. To give one example, German Americans, for instance, might feel little sympathy for the Allies. Irish Americans, whose nationalism uh, uh, likewise would stand in the way of sympathy for the British, 
also urged American neutrality and simply staying out of old world conflicts. Elites in the United States, both politically as well as culturally, however, often felt affinity for the British and for the French and a certain sense of being involved in terms of their sympathies in the Allied cause, even if America was not involved directly. Both the Allies as well as the Central Powers would seek to win American sympathy through propaganda efforts, and truly vast sums had been invested in trying to sway public opinion for one side or another. At the same time, when we consider the evolving uh, picture of American neutrality, trade as well as economics were certainly shaping that reality. American trade patterns had been crucially disrupted by the war at sea. In principle, though America condemned both sides for violating the freedom of the seas, that's to say the British for the blockade of the Central Powers and their interdiction of materials that were considered war-essential materiel, as well as, obviously, the German torpedoing by submarine of neutral shipping, even as the condemnations came down on both sides from America, nonetheless, at the same time, trade with the Allies was growing, while trade with the Central Powers essentially had been choked off by the reality of the blockade. And there's a very interesting phenomenon to observe here. In terms of propaganda, in terms of public opinion, German submarine warfare acquired a very special notoriety. The uh, readily imagined scenes of civilians being sent to the deep by the sinking of passenger ships uh, or of neutral shipping, uh, all of this had a certain immediacy and created a visceral reaction in many neutral populations. By contrast, the British blockade of Germany which uh, America also considered to be an illegal use of sea power and obstruction of American free trade, was protested against. But the blockade, as we've already discussed, in its effects, crucial as they were in the long-term grinding down of the civilian populations and the economies of the central powers, somehow was less immediate, less vivid than the German sinkings of shipping uh, on the part of the Allies or neutral powers. German sinkings of the Lusitania liner in May of 1915 and of the Sussex in March of 1916, uh, both of which had been carrying American passengers who went to their death, provoked great protests and also started to lead to a mobilization in an American society that was quite divided on the question of whether America should maintain its neutrality or whether it should move towards sympathy for one or another side in this conflict, it led to the growth and mobilization of a so-called preparedness campaign in the United States. This was to be seen among private citizens as well as uh, parts of, of Congress, which pressed for an expanded American army and navy to ready for war if such should become necessary. There were certainly prominent personalities who got involved in the preparedness campaign as well, and Teddy Roosevelt in particular, the very picture of a, of a vigorous and often quite aggressive exponent of an American energetic foreign policy, uh, was among those who criticized the government uh, relentlessly and ceaselessly for what he saw as its lack of vigor. Uh, at the same time, a National Security League, as it was called, 
was founded and encouraged uh, in part by contributions from big business in order to promote the ideas of a preparedness campaign. Uh, Some young Americans indeed couldn't wait for American entry into the war and instead volunteered to fight on the Allied side. In particular, this took the form uh, very romantically of the so-called Escadrille Lafayette, uh, an American group of pilots who flew uh, in tandem with the French Air Force uh, in a unit that had been named after the Marquis de Lafayette, uh, a French nobleman who had come to aid the American uh, cause of the Wars of Independence in the 18th century. Uh, and uh, this unit in particular saw itself as spearheading American involvement in the First World War. At the same time, Woodrow Wilson tried to calm tempers and to lessen the outrage uh, that was felt by many over the sinkings of neutral shipping and American losses by trying to take a middle course in American public opinion. Uh, He was keenly aware that public opinion was evolving and changing, and he sought to adjust to this. He praised in particular the stance of, as the phrase went, being too proud to fight. That's to say, there was a vigorous condemnation of what were seen as these depredations, a vigorous condemnation of uh, German uh, U-boat or submarine warfare, but at the same time, it was argued that America was staying out of the war. At the same time, and this is certainly part of the complicated reality of the time, American production was booming in parallel with American trade. American iron and steel production increased in this period by 76%, a truly remarkable figure. Another remarkable figure that testifies to the way in which American trade and and economics was experiencing a, a boom as a result of the war industrialization, from 1914 to 1917, American exports quadrupled rather than going down as a result of the war uh, at sea. At the same time, America was also shifting its identity in terms of international finance. America earlier had, to a great extent, been uh, uh, trying to invite and had been dependent upon foreign investment. America's identity had been that of a debtor nation. Now, during the war, American loans flowed across the Atlantic to subsidize the Allied war effort. And America changed in this period from being a debtor nation to a creditor nation. By 1917, the Allies had borrowed the astronomical sum of $2 billion. So while there were certainly many factors at work in determining American uh, feelings towards the war and understanding of American neutrality and whether this was a course that people agreed with, it was certainly the case that American economic interests were increasingly being uh, uh, were increasingly tying the United States to the Allied powers by preference, even as neutrality was the formal policy being announced. It would be crucial in this context to take stock of the, the figure of Woodrow Wilson, something of his background, something of his personality, because he truly was playing a significant role in these events. Woodrow Wilson was a Virginian. He was an academic He was a president of Princeton University and went on to a uh, a meteoric political career as a progressive politician in the Democratic Party and governor of New Jersey. And he then became president of the United States in 1913. Uh, One might note that Woodrow Wilson was the only American president so far to have 
a Ph.D., a doctorate, and uh, depending on your estimation of Woodrow Wilson's historical role, that's either an argument for or against having academics in the position of the chief executive. But Woodrow Wilson was a truly striking personality who was marked by extraordinary confidence in his own providential calling. Woodrow Wilson very seriously believed that in some sense, in expressing his ideals, in articulating a message and an American policy, he was in some sense embodying the will of the American nation at large. And indeed, this conviction of his was reflected in his very characteristic rhetoric, a rhetoric of noble ideals and moral fervor, a certain universalistic impetus to his ideological message. Uh, In a very real sense, uh, political historians have argued that Woodrow Wilson's very outsider status, uh, his lack of a grounding as a politician uh, in a political machine, not having come up through the ranks, but instead um, having jumped from an academic career uh, to one in politics, in, in some sense predisposed him to a very characteristic approach to politics. And that was to not so much engage in the complicated backroom dealings that are so often a feature of the political process, but instead again and again to appeal or try to appeal directly to the people at large, to seek to convince public opinion, if necessary, speaking over the heads of political leadership. And this is a phenomenon that one would see repeatedly in the course of events that we'll be describing. At first pursuing a neutral stance for the United States, Woodrow Wilson also sought what he saw as an American mission, perhaps, in this entire conflict, to mediate between the warring powers after 1914, and perhaps to craft a liberal peace, which would not have victors, but instead might represent a new beginning for a new kind of democratic world politics. There was very strong sentiment, as we've suggested already, in a divided American populace to keep the United States neutral. And indeed, Woodrow Wilson, who later would lead America into the war, had won re-election in 1916 under the slogan, he kept us out of the war. Nonetheless, his repeated attempts at mediation, his repeated invitations to the warring sides to come to the bargaining table to negotiate were without success, and indeed his last attempt at mediation in December of 1916 failed. And then finally there came a key historical event that in some sense forced his hand. Germany's declaration of unrestricted submarine warfare, a return to a policy of unrestricted warfare on the seas against neutral shipping, including American shipping, came in February of 1917 and forced a crisis. German policymakers, as we've already suggested, were engaged in a gamble, one that, if ill-advisedly, they at least took with open eyes. Their conviction was, and the statistics that they had gathered, mountains and mountains of statistical evidence, suggested to them that even though unrestricted submarine warfare probably would bring the United States into the war, the American contribution to that war would come much later. And it was hoped and certainly believed at the time that the gamble would pay off because Britain in particular would be choked off by a sort of counter blockade of submarine warfare before the Americans were mobilized in order to tip any sort of balance in the conflict. 
This was a grievous miscalculation. Events now very quickly pressed the United States towards war. The United States broke diplomatic relations with Germany. It had made clear that unrestricted submarine warfare was unacceptable. And now American merchant ships were armed and already preparing for war on the seas. Woodrow Wilson then, in his careful cultivation of public opinion, made public a scandalous communication which outraged public opinion. This was the intercepted Zimmermann telegram of March 1st, uh, rather made public on March 1st, 1917, uh, which uh, had tried to lure Mexico into the conflict against the United States in Germany's policy of revolutionizing other powers that it saw as useful to its own um, balance in the war. American public opinion mobilized dramatically with demonstrations in favor of entering the war against Germany taking place in the streets. And there were also instances of German industrial espionage or sabotage uh, in some American munitions factories that stirred outrage as well. Now the time arrived for a declaration of war. The United States entered the First World War on April 6, 1917. Woodrow Wilson announced that the American aim, setting it apart from the aims of the other allies, was a vast one, a universal one. In his words, quote, the world must be made safe for democracy, end quote. And this was where the particular designation that was chosen by the American political leadership to describe its involvement in the First World War really took on symbolic significance. And I think it's worthwhile to dwell on it for a moment. The Americans joined the allies, that's to say in this case France as well as Great Britain, as not a fellow allied power, but with uh, described in the term an associate power. And the aim here was to underline that while the United States was associating itself with the cause of defeating the German threat in particular, and the central powers more broadly, the Americans nonetheless were underlining their independence and suggesting that perhaps their war aims were significantly different from those that were, uh, that obtained for the Western allies. On the part of the American public, outrage at German policies, and this included the news of atrocities in Belgium, it included what seemed to be a war of conquest, it included as well the submarine warfare, uh, as well as sabotage, all of these, together with certain cultural sympathies for the French and the British, as well as the growing economic ties to the Allied side of the years previous, all of these contributed to the American entry into the war. And the American entry into the war would indeed change the nature of that war fundamentally. Not only would it expand the geographic scope of the conflict, but it also injected a new ideological message. In American propaganda explaining the aim of the war, one could see very many of the same themes uh, that we already had discussed in our lecture on propaganda. The Germans were depicted as enemies of civilization. And in particular, Kaiser Wilhelm II was demonized as Kaiser Bill with a, a wicked twirled mustache and an evil expression, the always obligatory spiked helmet. Um, he was very much sort of an embodiment of the vaudeville villain that had been uh, current in popular melodrama. But at the same time, American propaganda also had an added ideological message of enormous force. I'd like to speak about that briefly. 
the ideological message that was allied to these more traditional themes and tropes of propaganda was summed up best in Woodrow Wilson's pronouncement, the 14 points speech, as it came to be called. On January 8th, 1918, after America had entered the war, Woodrow Wilson outlined in a speech before Congress what it was that the Americans were fighting for, United States war aims. These included principles. The principles of implicit support for the notion of national self-determination. That's to say, generally, the very democratic concept that no people should be subject to foreign rule in an authoritarian way. Rather, in line with democratic ideas, each group ought to be able to determine its own existence and to have a voice in its government, some role politically in its own administration. Another principle was explicitly called for, and that was open covenants openly arrived at. Open covenants openly arrived at. And this was, in very highfalutin highfalutin phrasing, actually simply the demand that diplomacy and international affairs needed to be conducted in a way that was open and more democratic, and we today would say transparent in its operations, a break with the secret diplomacy, which had done so much to shape international relations in the lead-up to the First World War. It was precisely the secret agreements and the treaties, which someone like Bismarck had excelled at, which here were being condemned as conducive to the outbreak of World War. Also called for was the concept of disarmament. The notion was that the massive buildups in arms and navies and armies had helped to contribute to the outbreak of the First World War, and this needed to be ended in the name of establishing peace. Finally, Woodrow Wilson's speech also suggested a new international organization called the League of Nations, which would enshrine these principles in an institutional way in order to give them permanence and ensure, it was hoped, a new world order. Other demands of this speech included freedom of the seas, free trade, which the Americans had had espoused so strongly in their outrage against the violation of free traffic on the sea lanes. Freedom for occupied lands as well that were to be evacuated of foreign rule during the course of the First World War. And then there were other specific demands as well. Italy, in line with the notion of national self-determination, was to gain ethnically Italian areas that were under the control of the Habsburgs. Borders were to be redrawn in line largely with the notion of national self-determination. A free Poland was to be resurrected after decades of non-existence. And this free Poland, whether this would be in accord with national self-determination was less clear, should have access to the Baltic Sea in order to be a viable economic unit. And then it was also suggested that the peoples of Austria-Hungary, the many diverse nationalities of that empire, as well as the peoples of the Ottoman Empire, should be given free development. Now, what this would mean in concrete political terms, that was not entirely yet clear. But this was of a piece with the rising nationalist expectations that we've described in our lecture on the stresses uh, of the war producing national revolts. It was a message that would be most welcome to those who hoped 
for national self-realization. This idea of national self-determination directed that all ethnic groups should have their own governments rather than being under foreign rule. And this revolutionary principle obviously would be enormously attractive to the so-called submerged nationalities that were parts of larger empires without free expression. A question that later would be a very open and existential one was where was national determination to be applied? On what sort of scale? How small a group could have its own government? What if groups that were dispersed or or geographically not contiguous in their areas of settlement? How would all of this be realized in practical terms? But one thing was very clear and gave this ideological message a real charge in its novelty. Clearly, these principles represented not just a statement of American war aims in the concrete, but also a rejection of what was seen as old Europe's way of doing politics. The notion, the traditional notion of the balance of power, of negotiations trading territories back and forth in order to ensure the balance of power. Secret diplomacy carried on on the part of aristocratic elites in order to ensure the balance of power. All of this which was blamed in part for the outbreak of the war, was to be replaced by something new. New democratic statecraft, a new democratic world order, and a concept of collective security, replacing balance of power, jostling, and competition with a common dedication to keeping the peace. At the same time, the 14 points also had yet another ideological significance because they were intended also as a response, a a counter to Bolshevik propaganda taking place at the same time. By the time the 14 points were published, the Bolsheviks had come to power in Russia and were announcing their revolutionary program or prescription for peace and world revolution. An ideological struggle very clearly was taking place and was being fought out in ideological terms, in such speeches and propaganda. Once it was publicized, the 14-point speech gained in popularity, not just in the United States, but also on the part of long-suffering populations in Europe and indeed in some cases worldwide. And Woodrow Wilson began a meteoric ascent in terms of his stature as a political figure. He became a figure of hope, for millions of war-weary populations on all sides. At the same time, realistic and much more cynical European politicians felt that, of necessity, they had to tolerate what they considered Wilson's very irritating and pretentious utopian notions and rhetoric. Uh, In particular, the very um, caustic and energetic French politician Clemenceau Uh, quipped that uh, Woodrow Wilson was just out of control. God himself had only needed 10 points for his agenda. Uh, Woodrow Wilson needed 14. But Clemenceau kept such comments to himself. It was clear that as America entered the war that the Allies could use reinforcements. More seriously, at the same time, the principles that were enunciated in this speech could be troubling to established Allied politicians Because implicitly, there clearly was a conflict with some of their own policies, some of their imperial ambitions, some of their imagining of the gains that they hoped to make in the peace settlement that would follow the war, 
and with some of the promises of their secret diplomacy. Uh, To state just one obvious instance, the secret treaty of London, which brought Italy into the war, in some of its measures and some of its territorial promises, ill comported with the notions of national self-determination. But this was a problem that would be stored up for later. Now, Americans prepared to go, as the phrase went, over there, across the Atlantic, to the big fight. American military might was built up with astonishing speed. In ways that resembled Britain's breaking with its long tradition, its long liberal tradition of a volunteer army, so too the United States reinstated conscription, which had taken place in the Civil War as well, with the Selective Service Act of May 1917 registering all men from 21 to 30 years of age. And by the end of the war, as a result of this massive mobilization of manpower, nearly three million men had been drafted for the conflict. This was an army that would resemble America in many ways and its upheavals in terms of ethnic transition. It was estimated that about a fifth of the soldiers of this army were foreign-born. And it was hoped by some American nationalists that the very experience of a national mobilization would replace the many different ethnic groups or hyphenated Americans, as they were called at the time, Irish Americans, German Americans, with one American identity. With with counting the volunteers as well as the conscripted forces, by war's end, the United States Armed Forces numbered nearly 5 million. This armed might also resembled America's complexion at home in the sense of perpetuating some ugly racial discrimination as well. African-American soldiers who were conscripted too were relegated to segregated units or given menial tasks in support positions. There were certainly racists on the home front who worried about the implications in the long term of what might happen if African-Americans acquired a new sense of confidence and a new sense of deserving more political rights as a result of their sacrifices and involvement. And the flip side of these anxieties were the hopes of some African-American organizations that it was precisely such proud involvement and participation that might finally, at long last, bring about more equality in political and social terms in the United States. General John J. Pershing was charged with the command of this AEF, or American Expeditionary Force, in May of 1917. In short order, the American 1st Infantry Division, nicknamed the Big Red One because of its characteristic badges, was shipped to France in preparation for a larger American involvement. Pershing now prepared to send a million doughboys, as American soldiers were called, to France by the spring of 1918, hoping to tip uh, tip the balance. It was expected that this infusion of fresh American energy, as yet unexhausted by the rigors and the sufferings of the First World War, would tip the balance with American pep. At the same time, America was preparing for war over there. The country was also mobilizing for war over here in the United States. And these are linked phenomena that we'll be exploring in more detail in our next lecture. Lecture 28, America at War, Over There and Over Here.
In this lecture, we'll be examining the American experience of the First World War. Americans over there in the fighting on the Western Front and over here in the United States. In this lecture, we'll be examining the impact of the First World War on American society, affecting life at home as well as America's relationship with the wider world. This really speaks to one of the major themes that we've been pursuing through the course, the question of what meanings were assigned to the war. And what I hope we'll be seeing in today's lecture very vividly is that the American experience of the First World War, because of American later entry, as well as because of distinctive features of American notions of why one was fighting, would also be distinctively different. At the same time, we also clearly will be speaking to another one of the major themes of the course, the implications of the First World War for our own times. The very fact that America was venturing out of a traditional stance of much more isolationist approach to world politics and instead now really sallying forth as a young superpower, potentially, into world affairs speaks to the question of how America relates to the wider world, most definitely an issue still with us today. We need first to examine American organization in preparing for the war. Woodrow Wilson had been a keen observer of popular opinion, and this popular opinion itself now had to be shaped and cultivated in ways that are already familiar from our discussion of propaganda in an earlier lecture. Without the same sort of immediate galvanizing motive, which other combatant countries in Europe had had, of presenting this as an outright defensive war, the notion of why America was fighting had to be crafted in different ways. Now, certainly the defense of American shipping, the anxieties over a policy of revolutionizing of America's neighbors, these contributed a certain defensive element, but it wasn't nearly as overwhelming as the uh, invoking of a defensive war in a country like France uh, at the outset of the conflict in 1914. Instead, American participation had to be explained in terms of ideas and principles. And chief among those would be the notion of a crusade for democracy. Even though the United States was far away from the events of the fronts in Europe, nonetheless, the government now set about organizing enthusiasm positively. And a crucial institution was created to fulfill this role. This was the so-called Committee on Public Information. There, You see here, in part, just from the growth of all of these acronyms that we've been discussing in this course, a very vivid representation of how the increasing bureaucratization of war efforts was a universal phenomenon. This CPI, or Committee on Public Information, was organized when Woodrow Wilson charged a progressive muckraking journalist, George Creel, with the task of coordinating an agency that could produce effective and innovative propaganda, not just imitating European models and patterns, but doing so in distinctively American ways. George Creel argued in particular that what was American about his approach to the business of convincing masses was precisely the fact that rather than emphasizing censorship, he was providing information, and hence the name, the Committee of Public Information. In other words, publicity and the creation of enthusiasm, in other words, marketing of the war, would be, according to Creel, a distinctive and uniquely American approach to the business of creating enthusiasm. 
the CPI, which was grew into a vast apparatus with some 150,000 employees, was soon blanketing the country with more than a million publications, which fanned enthusiasm for the war effort and sought to convince of the purpose and the ideals behind American involvement. Tens of thousands of instant orators who were called four-minute men. The, the play here obviously was on the patriotic volunteers, the Minutemen of the American War of Revolution in the 18th century. These four-minute men, by contrast, were instant orators who were sent out to fire the masses with speeches lasting only four minutes before movies and before music performances began. And soon this sort of a presence of professional agitators was part of the life on the home front. It's estimated that in 18 months, and this is really a a stunning statistic that I want to share, it's estimated that in 18 months, a million such performances, a million oratorical performances, were heard by audiences of 400 million spectators in the United States. Uh, Just to state the obvious, this number most clearly includes people hearing talks many times over, Uh, in the course of those months, and it involves repeated performances by the same orators, but it gives some indication of the magnitude and the scale of this drive to produce enthusiasm. In part, uh, the CPI also commissioned movies as part of an efficient way of communicating to audiences that might not be uh, as susceptible to the printed word some of the message that they sought to convey. And on occasion, it wouldn't be a very sophisticated message. A famous film of these times was entitled The Kaiser, the Beast of Berlin. And once again, the demonization of Kaiser Wilhelm as this archetypal villain of the entire narrative of the First World War was part of effective propaganda, even though it didn't match the reality of a monarch who was increasingly outside of the loop and being pushed to the fringes of the German war effort. No matter. Movie stars and celebrities were likewise urged to help sell liberty bonds at monster rallies, all in a sense of social togetherness. Within American society, even apart from the officially commissioned efforts of the Committee for Public Information of the CPI, one could survey a fascinating repetition of some of the phenomena that we've already discussed in our earlier consideration of propaganda, the self-propagandizing of American society now echoed the phenomenon that had taken place in Europe. And we might here, too, speak of a war culture that grew up and took hold in the United States as it earlier had in European countries. Uh, To give but some examples, American universities in particular, many of whose young men would soon be drafted or included into the armed forces, many American universities participated in the mobilization for war by changing their curricula, changing the courses that were offered. And they did so in particular by integrating particular courses whose aim it was to explain the values of Western civilization that were at stake in the conflict at large. These were originally given the name of war and peace courses, sometimes also war issues courses. And it was precisely such vast overviews that sought to generalize about the nature of Western civilization and implicitly why it was worth fighting for that later developed into the history survey courses uh, that were taught decades afterwards, still taught today. I I teach such a course myself. Uh, Some of the listeners may, in fact, have 
taking these courses, the required courses, the so-called Western Civilization Surveys, which were for a long time a staple of liberal education. And these are most definitely an outgrowth of the experience of the First World War. At the same time, as part of an uglier self-mobilization on the home front, one could detect here as well a jingoistic, uh, aggressive instinct towards what was now perceived as an alien element, German culture. The communities, the, the, the once large and vibrant German-American communities, now often came under attack. German culture was scorned. German uh, works of music taken off of the uh, playlists of uh, famous orchestras uh, and symphonies. German language courses were on occasion abolished at some schools. And as one had seen in other European cases, now too the language also needed to be cleansed of certain associations that now were linked to the enemy. And in particular, the word liberty would be often substituted in common words or phrases that earlier had had quite innocent German associations. So that the hamburger, which betrayed its uh, uh, tie to Hamburg, a German city, was now renamed the Liberty Sandwich. Sauerkraut, by contrast, would now be labeled Liberty Cabbage. And probably in the most absurd case, German measles would be renamed Liberty Measles. In the face of such large social pressure in American society at large, there were indeed many instances of people with German-sounding last names who altered them to make them sound less German or more Anglo-Saxon. And there are many such cases of, of family history dovetailing with the history of the 20th century. In general, a once large and vital German-American community, which had vast numbers of printing presses, schools, German-language newspapers, came under immense social pressure to demonstrate its loyalty, in part by giving up some aspects of community life that earlier had bound them together culturally. And one might say that the German-American communities were never the same again. Other immigrant communities were also affected, regardless of whether they were associated with the central powers. A propaganda message or slogan uh, that read 100% Americanism uh, was the order of the day. Some immigrants were urged, implicitly or explicitly, to drop their identity as having ties to an other culture from old Europe, to drop the hyphenated identity that might make them a Slovak American or a Polish American or especially a German American in favor of simply avowing nothing but one monolithic American identity now to be shaped out of the war experience. Economic mobilization was a reality as well. As in European states, so too in the United States, the government energetically intervened in the economy that in ways that would have been quite unthinkable to classical liberal thought or to American tradition uh, previously to mobilize for this war effort. In summer of 1917, a so-called War Industries Board, uh, also an acronym WIB, was founded by the government with an investor by the name of Bernard Baruch in charge to regulate prices and profits and to prepare economically for war activity. This War Industries Board used the threat of nationalization, that's to say of the government taking over, to compel cooperation by different branches of industry. At the same time, many branches of industry and big business and corporations were quite eager to cooperate because this mobilization carried with it incentives as well. 
It produced a great industrial and agricultural boom in the United States, which uh, uh, surpassed even that which had been taking place before America entered the war, and great profits as well. In a break with classical liberal tradition, certain strategic assets of the economy, like America's railroads, for instance, were nationalized for the duration of the war in order to steer them in strategic purposes. At the same time, America's tax structure was changed in significant ways. The scope of the income tax, which had been instituted quite recently in 1913, was now expanded enormously in order to make it more progressive and to gain more funds in the process, changing the tax structure of the nation in durable ways. A a figure who is especially associated with this American mobilization and girding for the war effort was a a remarkable man who later would go on uh, to become an American president, and that was Herbert Hoover. Herbert Hoover was the very model of a self-made man. This was an orphan from Iowa who by his own talents had gone on to be educated at Stanford, to become a famous and talented engineer, engaging in mining projects around the world, uh, and fairly had come to be synonymous with American can-do attitudes and engineering prowess. This was a technocrat uh, who in ways perhaps in his technocratic skills uh, resembled uh, 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 Eric Ludendorff in Germany, uh, oddly enough, who had organized a vast project, the relief effort in Belgium and in northern France during uh, the first stages of the First World War. He now was given a further challenge, a task of serving the United States war effort. He was made food administrator that amounted to a dictator of the food supply under the Food and Fuel Act of August of 1917, which allowed the American government to regulate these resources. Price controls were used to spur production and to lower consumption in the United States on the home front. But Hoover, in ways that echoed George Creel's emphasis on an American approach to these challenges, argued that instead of rationing outright, it would be better to emphasize voluntary measures, which indeed turned out to have striking successes. These included encouraging people in their own homes to practice food conservation Uh, There were meatless days that were announced, or days without wheat, which aimed to preserve scarce resources and cut down on waste. At the same time, as in the European war efforts, organized labor, the unions, also found their roles transformed by the very existence and operation of this wartime domestic truce. The demand for labor in the industrial boom, in fact, led to a labor shortage, which increased the bargaining power of American workers. And so, too, the trade union membership in this period rose significantly, actually doubling from 1914 to 1920 after the war's cessation. The unions were most clearly participants in this entire process, especially under the leadership of the president of the American Federation of Labor, the AFL, Samuel Gompers, who was actually co-opted into the so-called National War Labor Board, an organization which arbitrated labor disputes and protected workers' rights to join unions. Very clearly, a new role was being taken on. At the same time, in mobilizing for war, German chemical patents from the tremendously modern German chemical industry, which had had branches in the United States before the war as well, were seized 
Uh, and an example of this sort of seizure uh, was perhaps without our knowing it, um, quite familiar to us in our own times. Uh, Bayer aspirin had been a significant product uh, of the German chemical industry and the original company, Bayer, or in German pronounced Bayer, simply meant the Bavarian company. Bayer lost its patents as a result of their being seized during the war uh, and even afterwards was not able to participate in the American market uh, because what was marketed as Bayer Aspirin, still retaining the old name, uh, was in fact run by another company. And the German company, the parent company, had only ultimately only regained its rights to uh, the name as well as the product itself in 1994. So sort of a uh, a hidden story of uh, long-lasting effects of precisely this wartime mobilization. Not only the economy was controlled, so too was increasingly free speech on the home front. Laws which were quite radical in their clamping down on speech that was judged to be opposed to the war or to recruitment were passed. This included the Espionage Act of June 1917 and the Sedition Act of May of 1918, which imposed very harsh punishments on what was considered to be speech that was opposed to the war. Uh, this included the surveillance of the mails and censorship of newspapers, including the newspapers and publications of many ethnic communities as well. In a famed case involving speech, the American socialist Eugene V. Debs was arrested and given a 10-year jail sentence in June of 1918 for a speech in which he had defended opposition to the war. And in spite of repeated judicial appeals, Debs served nearly three years of that sentence. It speaks a lot to the support that was out there in uh, the home front, uh, notwithstanding such pressure upon free speech for his message, uh, that while in jail, he received nearly a million votes as a presidential candidate. At the same time, just as in the case of other competent countries, Earlier in the war, social changes were taking place. Women were most definitely at the center of many of these changes. Women participated in the, end, the effort on the home front as one million women entered the workforce to participate in the war effort. Almost a quarter of workers who were engaged in specifically war work were women. And the fight for women's suffrage, which had certainly been gaining steam and momentum in the years before the war, now took on new strategic significance. If women were to be fully employed and mobilized in the war effort, then so too it was increasingly seen as necessary to, for them to be integrated politically. And Woodrow Wilson indeed uh, went on to call the notion of women's suffrage as vital to the war effort. In part because of this sort of impetus and groundswell, the 19th Amendment uh, was passed by Congress in January 1918 and became nationwide law in 1920, finally acknowledging women's right to vote. Other changes were also taking place in American society, and they often involved sensitive issues of race. A vast migration, a vast demographic transition took place within the United States in precisely this period. The labor shortages of the war years in the industrial north produced a large African-American migration from the agrarian south to the industrial north that reconfigured America's demographic landscape with lasting consequences to our very times. The vast migration and movement of peoples 
uh, is truly astonishing when one considers the statistics that are advanced. Uh, it's estimated, for instance, in my native city of Chicago, that its African-American community grew by almost 150% in precisely these years. The African-American community in Detroit is said to have expanded by 611%. And this migration, profound and large as it was, uh, also encountered racial violence. There were riots in Chicago, St. Louis, and many other cities involving racial clashes. An unfortunate record. At the same time, we need to concern ourselves as well with the record of American soldiers in Europe experiencing firsthand the fighting on the front. American soldiers were fondly called doughboys, and the origins of this term are disputed. I I wish that I could provide the definitive answer uh, on the origins of this term, but it's still one that uh, uh, probably leads to heated debates on the part of historians of language. Uh, One suggestion that is advanced is that doughboys, which is a term which was earlier used for what we today would call doughnuts, uh, were the food in the canteens uh, that were uh, set up to relieve American soldiers and thus that they took on this name that essentially meant a pastry. Uh, Another suggestion is that American soldiers' buttons uh, earlier in the 19th century resembled uh, doughnuts in their shape and their form and thus this word was used. A, a more cynical explanation suggests that doughboys was a name given to soldiers who took dough, or slang for money, for their services. Whatever the origins of the term, it certainly stuck. And the first American doughboys were landed in France in June of 1917. This came as a shock to German planners. One of the premises of that careful statistical planning, which had preceded the gamble of unrestricted submarine warfare was the promises by the German Navy that even if America entered the war, no American soldiers would arrive in Europe. German submarines dominating the Atlantic would send them to the deep. That's not what happened. Instead, because of the convoy system and because of the overwhelming force of this mobilization, two million American soldiers were brought over the sea without the losses of troop transports. The German gamble had misfired disastrously. The American force, the mustering of American manpower, was not overwhelming at first on the Western Front. The American soldiers did not take the brunt of the fighting. In fact, they were slowly brought up into the front lines and needed to be equipped with the weapons of the Allies, as it was concentrated on bringing over young American soldiers by preference to uh, the uh, weaponry which the Allies could provide. So American soldiers were often equipped with French weaponry, for instance. But even if the American involvement was at first smaller in its scale, the sheer numbers of the American soldiers pouring in and the fresh reserves that they represented, the ability to reinforce weary French or British or Belgian troops made clear that potentially this was an enormous new factor. And it further underlined that the strategic balance in this war had tipped against the central powers. For many American recruits, this experience was the the adventure of a lifetime. For many of them, it was their first longer trip from home, away from the reality of whatever corner of the American continent they had known before. And very clearly, it was acknowledged that this was an experience, world historical and significance as it was, that would change those who lived through it. One anxiety of those who were at home uh, 
about how soldiers might be changed was expressed in a popular song of the day, which asked rhetorically, how are you going to keep them, meaning young American soldiers, how are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris, once they've seen the glories of Paris and old Europe as well? General Pershing was horrified at what he thought might be the possible public reaction back home in the United States when his troops were offered the use of French brothels or the ability to set up houses of prostitution for themselves. Uh, When Pershing uh, relayed this offer by the French command uh, back home to Washington, uh, one American member of the president's administration uh, also was horrified and said, uh, for goodness sake, don't tell Woodrow Wilson. He'll try to call off the war if he hears of it. Among the American officers who were involved in this war effort over there on the Western Front and who later would play very prominent, important roles in the Second World War and after were names that are familiar to us, Harry Truman, George C. Marshall, and George S. Patton. General Pershing insisted, just as we've emphasized with Creel and Hoover, an American approach to mobilization. So too, General Pershing insisted on an American approach to American involvement in battle. And that American approach involved keeping the American Expeditionary Force, the AEF, together, rather than dispersing them in units piecemeal through the Allied lines, as many French and British commanders uh, urged them to do. The notion was that America had to husband its resources, of thinking in cold, realistic political terms, in order to really be able to use its potential military might later in a peacetime settlement, if necessary, to sway its allies as well. Now, an exception to this policy of keeping American forces together concerned African-American units uh, that the Americans had organized. Um, Exceptions were made in their case. Um, Unfortunately, this probably reflected an assumption, a racist assumption, that they were less capable. Uh, These units were put under French command uh, and uh, uh, also served with tremendous distinction. Overall, some 400,000 African-American soldiers served during the war itself. And an unfortunate reality, reflecting the, uh, the realities that, uh, on, in American society of the day, was that many African-American soldiers were mistreated as well as segregated, and thus it was by their own commands, and thus it came as a greater surprise and uh, a, a welcome difference that on the part of the French population that they encountered, as well as French soldiers, many African-Americans experienced, by contrast, quite sympathetic and generous treatment by their French allies. The African-American units, the 369th U.S. Infantry in particular, became famous at this time, uh, given the nickname uh, of the Harlem Hellfighters. They served in the French lines, and indeed their service was so recognized that the the regiment was later awarded the highest French decoration, the Croix de Guerre, for its service in the Great War. This friendly French reception also extended to the culture and, in particular, the music of these African-American soldiers and the vast popularity of jazz, the art form developed by African-Americans in particular in New Orleans, in the United States. Uh, Its popularity uh, worldwide, enduring to the present, uh, has its origins in these days. The American troops now went into their first engagements and were blooded in combat. The first American attack took place in the small village of Cantigny 
on May 28, 1918. In the Battle of Belleau Wood, American and French troops halted a German advance in June of 1918. The American Expeditionary Force then went over to an assertive role in a major offensive at San Miguel, south of the battle, earlier Battle of Verdun, in mid-September of 1918, and then the Meuse-Argonne Offensive from late September of 1918. The enthusiasm of young American soldiers could be costly, with a steep learning curve in this industrial war. It's indeed horrific to recognize in the sources that talk about American involvement on the battlefield here that one saw an uncanny repetition, the same enthusiasm for the offensive, the same notion that American pep and dynamism and youth could overcome the enemy lines that broke against the fire of machine guns. But in this war effort, there also were prominent heroes, distinctively American in their approach. Among the heroes of the American war effort was a a Tennessean uh, from East Tennessee, Alvin York, who, though originally a pacifist from his religious convictions, uh, had later been convinced that the war was necessary and went on to become a celebrated, if reluctant, warrior. In the Moose-Argonne Offensive, when his particular unit was pinned down by German fire, he used his talents of backwoods marksmanship that had been honed in the, the forests and the hills of East Tennessee to devastatingly counter enemy fire. Using his marksmanship and his talents, he killed 25 German soldiers immediately and caused more than 100 to surrender to his own decimated unit. The result was that Alvin York received the Congressional Medal of Honor. Approximately 117,000 American soldiers died in the war, in combat or of disease, in this conflict. And the war was nearing its climax. In 1918, events would approach their crisis, as we'll examine in our next lecture. Lecture 29, 1918, The German Empire's Last Gamble. In this lecture, we'll be considering the climax of the war itself in 1918, the end battle as the German Empire gambled for the last time on the Western Front and instead met with defeat. This lecture will chart that last wager of the German high command in the spring of 1918 as it hoped to press the fighting on the Western Front to a successful conclusion just in time before the prospect of the mass arrival of American forces. We'll consider the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk as a result of which the Germans were able to focus their energies away from the Eastern Front to the Western Front. And we'll examine how, after initial successes, this offensive came to an end. It's necessary to speak a little bit to the logic behind the wager itself, the gamble uh, that the German high command undertook. In the spring of 1918, the German command quite consciously gathered its forces for one last throw of the dice, one last wager in order to win the war. In their calculations, timing was everything. The victory that had been scored on the Eastern Front as Russia 
after the Bolsheviks seized power, left the war, after the Germans felt they had won half of the world war, that in the east, now meant that German troops could be moved away from the other earlier theaters of combat and instead could be massed on the Western Front to achieve superiority there against the Allied forces. Furthermore, this breakthrough needed to happen, needed to be achieved, before American troops arrived in numbers sufficient to tip the balance. Uh, The uh, gamble that had earlier been made of unrestricted submarine warfare had suggested to the German high command that the Americans wouldn't be able to bring over troops, but they started pouring in. Nonetheless, this was the opportunity to get in ahead of that development, and it was hoped bring France and Britain to their knees before American strategic uh, reserves and its military potential tipped the balance. So, in a sense, this was the last of a series of gambles that had been undertaken by the German leadership. Uh, one gamble had been the Schlieffen Plan at the start of the war. Verdun, as well uh, as a project to bleed the French armies white, had been another gamble. And then finally, the unrestricted submarine warfare had also represented a gamble or a conscious risk. Now, this was to be the last one, the spring offensive of 1918. This time, however... In distinction to those earlier gambles, the leadership saw itself as risking everything, putting everything into one throw of the dice. Uh, And indeed, it was clear that if this tactic, if this approach didn't win victory, then Germany probably simply would have to acknowledge that it had lost the war, something that the generals were uh, loath to admit in public, uh, but that was clear in their reasoning as well. We need, first of all, to, as it were, take stock of the triumph that Germans felt they had achieved in the East. And this was summed up in the words of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. The Treaty of Brest-Litovsk is where uh, the negotiations took place after the Bolsheviks had acknowledged that they were leaving the war and were pleading for peace with the Central Powers. A ceasefire had been arranged in December of 1917, And the Bolsheviks, as well as the Germans, met at the former Russian fortress, Brest-Litovsk, what had been the border, in what had been the borderlands of uh, Eastern Europe between Germany and uh, Russia. And there they set about negotiating a peace treaty. Nonetheless, each side was pursuing irreconcilable aims. The Germans seeking total victory. The Russians, in a sense, the Bolsheviks in particular, uh, aiming to salvage their revolution and be sure that it would survive. The negotiations thus, because of these irreconcilable aims, had a curious character. They took on a, a strange complexion. As both sides very loudly and with a lot of rhetorical flourishes argued that they, that their side, was pursuing the true meaning of self-determination for the peoples of Eastern Europe. Poles, the Baltic peoples, others, who were being argued over. But even though the emphasis here rhetorically was on who truly had the correct practice of self-determination most at heart, the reality was that, in fact, this was a concept that neither side really cared about. In fact, the notion of self-determination for them was simply being used as a slogan for, on the one hand, domination of Eastern Europe geopolitically, or on the other hand, the spread of revolution that trumped any notions of national self-determination. Nonetheless, this, in some sense, was a uh, an acknowledgement that the rhetoric of national self-determination 
was a reality in that national uh, aspirations and expectations had been rising in Eastern Europe as well as elsewhere. The Germans, for their part, were seeking control of huge expanses of territory, while the Bolsheviks, in turn, sought to place the negotiations in the context of their larger expectation of a worldwide revolution that they saw as just around the corner. In this sense, the negotiations for the Bolsheviks were essentially meant to be a platform for a global propaganda event or performance. Uh, Quite explicitly, the aim of the Bolshevik negotiators as they engaged in their rhetoric, as they read speeches from the negotiating table about their revolutionary aims and purposes, was most definitely not so much to be speaking to their insincere Uh, German negotiators across the the table, but rather to speak to the world at large, to address the masses, in particular the working classes of the world, and among those, most especially the working classes of Germany, arguing that in some sense a common cause could be made against the earlier authorities. This attempt to speak over the heads of political leaders to the people at large was most definitely how the Bolsheviks envisioned what they could gain from these negotiations that otherwise were obviously going to be very painful. Uh, In a really fascinating way, Woodrow Wilson at the same time was pursuing many of the similar strategies of trying to speak to a worldwide audience and masses of public opinion rather than to the leaders alone. In their appeal to world public opinion, the Bolsheviks had some very powerful Uh, weapons to deploy rhetorically. The Bolsheviks had broken into the safes of the Russian foreign ministry and had publicized the secret treaties of the allies that were found there, a tremendous embarrassment to the propaganda efforts of the allies themselves as it revealed some of the uglier backroom deals that had been taking place that didn't always comport with the high ideals of self-determination or of international justice. In particular, the man who was leading these negotiations for the Bolshevik side, the revolutionary Leon Trotsky, who was to begin with a brilliant orator, here was probably at his very best in arguing in convoluted but compelling ways about principles of self-determination. And at the same time, he was actually stalling for time. The hope was that the revolution was about to break out. The expectation that Bolsheviks breathlessly had in their minds was that in a moment, red flags would start rising as they had in Russia elsewhere around the world as the working classes rose up in revolt. The waiting, however, finally took an end. The negotiations reached a deadlock and Trotsky was reduced to a strange sort of argument, a new tactic. Trotsky stood up and to a puzzled and bemused German audience of negotiators announced that... uh, He was simply leaving the negotiations. There was now neither peace nor war, and Trotsky got up and left. Uh, Lenin, Trotsky's colleague, had had some misgivings about this this particular approach. Um, uh, He didn't suppose that the Germans would simply agree to a deadlock and a stasis, and Lenin's misgivings turned out to be justified. Because the German army, when it got over its surprise at this negotiating tactic, it simply responded by attacking. They move forward their armies in a strange sort of war that in some ways in in its speed resembled the Blitzkrieg, the lightning war of World War II. As German forces got onto trains 
and moved forward from station to station, meeting almost no resistance as they penetrated ever further into the Russian lands. German armies, in fact, came within a 100 miles of Petrograd itself, the capital of the Russian state, and thus seemed to very actively be threatening the existence of the Bolshevik regime. Precisely because the revolution seemed to be in such immediate peril, Lenin now moved heaven and earth in his arguments and in his rhetoric to convince his comrades that it was necessary to sign the treaty, no matter how harsh it would end up being. And he narrowly managed to convince his comrades on this score. Finally, on March 3rd, 1918, after lodging protests, Bolshevik negotiators nonetheless signed the extremely harsh Treaty of Brest-Litovsk with the Germans. This treaty ended up stripping vast territories from the Russian Empire. By some estimates, the Russian lands lost a third of their territory. The earlier Russian Empire lost a quarter of its population, three-quarters of its coal and iron, as well as its most industrialized areas, those that had earlier been in the western parts of the empire. Russia ceded control of the Polish territories, of Lithuania, the vast area of Ukraine with its agricultural resources, Finland, and the Baltic provinces as well. In spite of these reverses, however, and in spite of an impending civil war within Russia that we'll speak more about in a later lecture, Lenin's calculation was a cunning one. Lenin breathlessly was awaiting news of the outbreak of an international revolution. And he explained to his colleagues that whatever was signed on a piece of paper at this late stage of the war would scarcely matter because it would all be overthrown by a working class revolution worldwide. And the result would be that the Bolsheviks and their other socialist colleagues around the world would inherit the earth, regardless of what was signed at Brest-Litovsk. This is sometimes summed up as the idea of taking one step backward in order to take two steps forward. It was a a tactical retreat in the hope of a final strategic victory. The Germans, for their part, exulted at what seemed to be an incredible triumph. The wildest hopes of German nationalists who had clamored after annexations in Eastern Europe had been realized. They would be able to dominate these areas. Many Germans, in fact, felt a sense of relief that half of the war had now been won, and it would perhaps now be possible to win the other half as well. What's riveting to observe in this context is that in many senses, some of the same people who earlier had been enthusiastic about the peace resolution of the German parliament, the Reichstag, were now sharing in this enthusiasm and this fervor for triumph in Eastern Europe. In some sense, the earlier mood of compromise now turned in a more triumphalist direction. And in the process, perceptions of Eastern Europe, which had already been affected by the experience of military occupation in the East, and fantasies of a German colonial empire in the East would later be taken up and radicalized by the Nazis in World War II. At the same time, the very harshness of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk imposed upon a defeated Russia produced some real liabilities. In part, the Western allies now as a result of of hearing the news of this devastating treaty against their former ally, their resolve was strengthened by this brutal performance. 
Because now, quite vividly, there, there for all to see was what sort of peace terms the Germans would impose upon the Western allies if they won the war. And a certain even more uncompromising tone entered into the political planning of the Western allies as they prepared to realize their hopes for triumph. In some sense, the later harshness of the Versailles Treaty that German nationalists complained about uh, was uh, a, a direct result uh, of these earlier harsh terms and their effect on the Western allies. Another further military effect was that while huge territories had been carved out of the Russian Empire in Eastern Europe, it was necessary to keep them under occupation in order to exploit them in the pressures of total war. And thus, a million German soldiers had to be left in the East to hold down these occupied territories. That million soldiers might very well have been used in the spring offensive in the West to devastating effect, but instead they were pinned down in the East. The Treaty of Bucharest, as well, with the defeated Romania on May 7th, 1918, was likewise very harsh and promised vast food resources and oil for the Central Powers. Now, in the exaltation of this mood of triumph in the East and overlooking these liabilities, German planners prepared for the spring offensive of 1918. This last German offensive in the spring of 1918 was also given several different names, uh, all of which made clear just how much hope was vested in this conflict. Uh, The Kaiser's Battle was one name given to this spring offensive, uh, even though the Kaiser himself was was simply an onlooker. He'd been pushed to the margins by the military dictatorship. Another name for the offensive was Operation Michael. And Michael was sort of the archetypal German figure, much as Uncle Sam is presented as an archetypal American or John Bull for the British. So Michael is an archetypal figure for the Germans. And all Germans were to tense their energies for this last conscious risk. It was a conscious wager because if it failed, there would be no reserves left for the war. Uh, And in fact, at one point, Ludendorff, who was, with his technocratic skills, uh, formidable technocratic skills, was planning this offensive. He was asked, what would happen if Germany failed? What would happen if the offensive broke down? And he calmly replied, well, then Germany will be destroyed. It was clear that this was one last risk. With the transfer of German troops from the east, however, the Germans had achieved a superiority on the western front of about 10% in terms of manpower. And the attack itself began on March 21st, 1918. It began with such a storm of steel and such a deployment of new technology and new tactics that it makes very vividly clear to us just how much technology as well as approaches to the stasis of trench warfare, had changed over the last years. It began with a five-hour bombardment of a hitherto unexampled intensity of artillery fire that was intended not just to break the front lines, but in fact was of such intensity that it was intended to destroy communication lines as well. And this five-hour bombardment was followed by a whole succession of different kinds of poison gas, that were intended to debilitate those who were still defending the Allied lines. Uh, The attack had been aimed at the juncture of French and British forces, uh, that area which, precisely because it was shared defense, was judged to be most vulnerable, and preparatory to the moving forward of German troops, 
And this is a key example of just how much artillery had become more precise and had become deployed uh, ever more carefully and with tremendous precision. Uh, there was deployed the rolling barrage, as it was called. Now, a barrage, we'll recall, is simply a massed fire, uh, a volley of artillery from the other side. This rolling barrage, by contrast, was the calculated and calibrated moving forward of an entire curtain of fire uh, so that shells would drop on particular lines that already had been uh, aimed at before and then would move forward slowly in a rolling or creeping fashion so that German troops could follow closely behind this curtain of fire as it steamrolled across the, uh, the lines of the Allies. Stormtroop groups were deployed with their new tactics to simply break through the enemy lines. And the principle here that Ludendorff was advocating was using the strongest forces against the weakest points of the enemy defense. The stormtroopers thus and other German troops didn't move forward in lines or in massed attacks as had been the case at the start of the First World War. They instead were in small squads or groups that would move forward, hugging the contours of the landscape. And if they encountered an Allied strong point, they simply moved around it, pressing forward in the attack and leaving the strong point in their rear to be taken care of by reinforcements. This uh, stormtroop attack, in which Ernst Jünger, probably the most famous of the German stormtroopers, was included, uh, achieved tremendous results. The Germans pushed the Allied lines back over the course of repeated uh, attacks over four months. The Allied lines were pushed back about 40 miles. And this, in terms of the earlier stasis of trench warfare, was simply a tremendous result. There was one problem, however, that was lurking in these very successes. Ludendorff had deployed new tactics, new approaches on the battlefield, but seemed to lack a concept of, well, in the larger picture, how would victory be achieved? In other words, he was using modern and successful tactics, but lacked a strategy. And indeed, he would grow very angry if he was questioned on this. It seemed that he was simply improvising. And this, as it turns out, would be a liability, not having a plan for ultimate success. In this moment of crisis, which strained Allied forces in these sectors to their very limit, out of the crisis, a unified command emerged for the Allies, something that had been uh, already uh, moved in the direction of by the Allied forces. But now, finally, French General Foch was at last given unified command of the Allied forces to coordinate them. The German attacks finally petered out. The attacks had been ground down uh, as ever fewer reinforcements could be found. And there were other discouraging signs uh, in the troops themselves. Many of them, when they captured Allied trenches, discovered such a material abundance of supplies, uh, also including liquor, that they would spend time looting them uh, rather than moving forward, uh, precisely out of their own privation and because their living standards had been lower. At the same time, um, German soldiers well understood that this signified that in a larger sense, Germany was losing the economic or the industrial mobilization. The Germans were finally halted 56 miles from Paris. This was almost an uncanny replay of the Schlieffen plan, it seemed. And the Germans also deployed a weapon whose real purpose was, in fact, to sow terror. To spread panic, Paris was bombarded by long-range guns. Uh, around uh, 
250 Parisians were killed by the shelling, which was intended to inspire terror. Uh, The long-range guns were capable of shooting shells uh, 70 miles away, so high up in the atmosphere that it would actually um, resemble more the, the trajectory of a missile that would come slamming down into the city, but without a purpose other than terrorizing the civilian population. In some sense, this was a a terrible harbinger of air war uh, yet to come in the 20th century. What was clear as a result of the petering out of these attacks was that the gamble had failed, and the German collapse now began. It was marked symbolically by a day that is referred to as the Black Day of the German Army, August 8, 1918. Decisive reverses came for the Germans now that they had exhausted their ability to attack. An Allied counterattack at Amiens in August broke their lines, and in particular, the massed use of Allied tanks overwhelmed discouraged German troops who started to pull back. There was a breakdown in morale, moreover, that gave this day, if not a strategic significance, then an enormous uh, symbolic significance. Soldiers had lost the will to fight. And when reserves could be scraped up from the rear lines to be thrown uh, into battle to reinforce the Uh, now crumbling front lines, there was also a very worrying phenomenon to be seen. German soldiers who were retreating or deserting would shake their fists at the reinforcements and call out to them that they were scabs or strike breakers who were unnecessarily prolonging the war. German morale in the armies that earlier had been very strong now clearly was breaking down. As the German armies retreated, the Allies took the initiative and retained the initiative for the rest of the war. The U.S. Army went into action independently for the first time and overran the salient or the the territory that had been bulging out in the front line at San Miguel. Simultaneously, Allied troops also launched an attack from their long inactive camp in Salonika in the Balkans in August of 1918. Hungry Bulgarian troops, uh, whose privations had been growing to the point where they couldn't continue the war effort, Uh, to help Germany, these hungry Bulgarian troops simply withdrew in the face of this attack. And on September 29th of 1918, Bulgarian representatives signed an armistice in Salonika. Salonika now was, uh, finally, was showing its potential uh, as the underbelly, as it were, of the central powers of the South was being opened up. Bulgaria was the first of the central powers to leave the war. At the same time, on the Western Front, in September of 1918, a massive Allied offensive was launched at Saint-Mihel in Meuse-Argonne sector and on the Saint-Canton, Cambrai sector. By the middle of the month, the Germans had retreated back to where they'd launched their spring offensive, the fortified Hindenburg line. But in spite of these successes, the Allies were still very cautious and warily assumed that the war would actually continue until 1919, so far still into the future. Uh, They were almost slow themselves to realize just how badly the central powers were now crumbling. On September 29, 1918, Ludendorff informed the Kaiser and other stunned German political leaders, civilian leaders, that the war was now lost. Only an armistice, he said, could save Germany now. He envisioned this in part as a a breathing uh, uh, space, uh, a, a moment to regroup forces and stave off total defeat Uh, At the same time, one could already see that Ludendorff was looking for people he could blame for this defeat, and he started actually a whispering campaign against the civilian leaders, blaming them for having created these conditions, even though they were actually all of his own doing. 
At the same time, in order to win the sympathies of Woodrow Wilson's democratic campaign for uh, a new world order, a desperate attempt was undertaken in Germany to make the government look more representative of the people. A revolution from above, in other words, was improvised in the German Empire, but ultimately came far too late to satisfy the Allies or even attract much notice on the part of the German people, who had longed, perhaps, for such reforms before, but now they were simply um, downgraded in terms of the attention they received. A more liberal aristocrat, Prince Max von Baden, became chancellor and started internal reforms to move Germany in the direction of a constitutional monarchy. And the German government, now styling itself as more democratic, appealed to Woodrow Wilson for peace on the basis of his 14 points. On October 4th, 1918, this was rather late in the day, Wilson, whose sentiments had hardened by this point, responded by demanding that Germany needed to fundamentally change inside first. The German situation grew ever more dire as its allies were falling away. After Bulgaria left the war in September... Turkey followed in October. Allied troops began to move up through the Balkans from Salonika, and Austria-Hungary was next on the list of uh, assaults. On the Italian front, from October 24th to November 2nd, the Austro-Hungarian army, which had held out surprisingly long, now began to dissolve. As many of the troops simply started leaving for home, the Italian, uh, Italian forces moved forward, and in a celebrated battle called Vittorio Veneto, which amounted essentially to a battle of Caporetto in reverse, that earlier Italian disaster, took vast numbers of dispirited and discouraged Austro-Hungarian prisoners of war. On November 3rd, 1918, the representatives of Austria-Hungary signed an armistice with the Allies, but they were signing in the name of a state that almost had ceased to exist. Germany itself now broke down. Revolution broke out in Germany, provoked by futile gestures at the war's end. On November 3rd, uh, German naval authorities, whose navy had spent much of the war actually in port, felt that it was necessary to do something to salvage their honor. And one proposal was to sally out with the entire navy in order to engage the British in a final apocalyptic battle of the sort that had not been seen uh, during the war. Uh, this was sometimes called the idea of a naval death ride. When soldiers heard the news of these orders on November 3rd, they simply mutinied in their base at Kiel, and soon the revolt spread to other port cities, including Hamburg and Bremen. At the same time, down in the south in Bavaria, a socialist revolt broke out on November 7th. Ludendorff was fired from his position and escaped abroad in disguise, fearing that he would be put on trial. Another man who had been important to the German war effort, the scientist Fritz Haber, who had helped both with wartime mobilization in the chemical industry as well as the production of poison gas, he also escaped abroad, fearing trial by the Allies. Kaiser Wilhelm now faced the question of what to do. Some of his own followers suggested that he might lead German troops in a suicidal attack on the Western Front to go out in a blaze of glory. Kaiser Wilhelm very sensibly declined that kind offer and instead abdicated. He had been told that the German army no longer stood behind him, and he slipped across the border into Holland, where surprised Dutch authorities received him, and where he would live out the rest of his years until 1941, when he died, uh, a bitter exile. Turmoil also reigned in the capital of Imperial Germany, Berlin. 
On November 9th, a German Democratic Republic was declared by revolutionaries in Berlin. The day previously, as all of this turmoil was going on, on November 8th, a German armistice delegation met with the Allied commander, General Foch, and heard the terms that would be dictated as a result of the armistice. They agreed. On November 11th, 1918, at 11 a.m., the armistice came into effect. The armistice had been signed at Compiègne, and now, at long last, the guns fell silent on the Western Front. The result of the war had been determined now in these moments by the question of how the peace would play out and what order would be imposed still lay ahead in the future, and we'll examine it in our next lectures. Lecture 30, The War's End, Emotions of the Armistice. In our previous lecture, we had discussed the climactic year of 1918 and how Germany's last gamble on the Western Front failed, leading to the plea for an armistice or a ceasefire. In this lecture, we'll examine the fascinating scene that emerged as the armistice was signed, the emotions that were unleashed by this important event. When the guns at last fell silent on the Western Front on November 11th, 1918, at 11 o'clock in the morning, with the armistice, those who had survived the Great War experienced a tidal wave of different emotions. Some felt grief, others felt anger, loss, a sense of relief, exultation, or furious desire for revenge. In this lecture, we'll seek to explore that range of responses to the conclusion of the war and the many divergent hopes that were vested in the upcoming peace settlement that would finally order the outcome of the war itself. With the armistice, the hatred that had been building up over years would, as it turns out, impede the reconciliation that perhaps should have followed. And indeed, many Germans would find it difficult fundamentally to accept that they had in fact lost the war at all. We'll consider finally in our lecture, a crowning horror in the concluding stages of this conflict, a natural disaster following on this man-made disaster, a worldwide pandemic that swept the globe, the so-called Spanish influenza that killed an estimated 50 million people worldwide. The news of the war's close on the Western Front was met with mixed emotions. As the guns ended their firing on the Western Front and a great stillness finally settled on the battlefields, many contemporaries felt that now was the time to take stock of the war, the coming peace, and the emotions that they themselves were feeling. And these emotions were of a wide range. The defeated could feel despair and fury at their condition and a lack of understanding as to how had it come to this. The victors would feel some very complex mixture of celebration as well as mourning, because even in victory, nonetheless, it was true that the sacrifices had been enormous. And in Central and Eastern Europe, there was also a mood of exaltation, of celebration, of new independence that was achieved by some peoples that earlier had not had their own states. 
It's important throughout our discussions of the moods and the emotions that would accompany peace to keep in mind one fundamental fact. Even with the armistice, the ceasefire on the Western Front, the war did not neatly end. In fact, it would in particular continue in aftershocks in Eastern Europe and elsewhere, as we'll be discussing in a later lecture. It speaks volumes, however, about the longing for peace that had been built up even in advance of the formal ceasefire itself, that in the case of the American public, uh, there was a premature announcement of the ceasefire on November 7th, so days before the official ceasefire of November 11th, um, a news reporter had simply misunderstood events that were unfolding around him on the Western Front and had cabled back the news that the ceasefire had officially been declared uh, and American cities and towns erupted into vast celebration. Uh, some people simply even ignored the fact that later there was an official announcement that this was too early and, and was not uh, a true announcement of an actual ceasefire. Um, in American media history, we certainly have had many cases of, uh, of misinformation or the spread of wrong news. This was an especially bitter one uh, for some in that moment as they longed for the news at last of an end to the war finally. At the same time, the armistice, when it finally arrived, brought a great stillness, brought a great quiet to what had been the clamor and clash of battle, and it would now be necessary to take stock of the situation as it stood. The armistice itself was signed with German representatives who were brought in uh, to sign the armistice at 5 a.m., very early in the morning, on November 11th. The armistice was signed in a railway carriage at the forest of Compiègne near Paris. And afterwards, this railway carriage and the, uh, the furniture from inside of it, the tables and chairs where the armistice had been signed, uh, were later taken off to a French military museum and sort of hailed as relics of this great triumph. During World War II, when Hitler crushed the French and uh, intended to humiliate them thoroughly, he, with a, a keen symbolic sense, had that very same railway carriage and the same furniture brought out for the signing by the defeated French of an armistice. So uh, there was certainly ramifications and, and echoes that were to be heard in the years afterwards. The terms of the armistice were drawn up very carefully by the Allied forces to reflect the determination of General Foch, uh, in charge of the Allied war effort now, that Germany should not be allowed to use this ceasefire as a chance to regroup and to reinforce its efforts and to continue the war. In fact, this armistice was to be the acknowledgement of defeat. And the terms made this clear. The terms included Germany undertaking to withdraw from all occupied territory. But there was an interesting footnote here. Uh, this didn't include the vast territories in Eastern Europe that were occupied by the German forces. Uh, and the reason for this exception on the Eastern Front, or what had been the Eastern Front, uh, was already a growing fear on the part of Western forces of that strange ideological force in the East, Bolshevism, and its communist ideology. Anxieties grew that uh, this might be a spreading ideology, and thus uh, even the defeated Germans might still play a role in containing the threat of this radical revolutionary ideology. 
At the same time, and this was the fulfillment of a long-held dream for French nationalists and French patriots, Alsace-Lorraine, the lost provinces that had been seized by the Germans after the Franco-Prussian War in 1871, would at long last be returned to France. And there was great celebration, uh, ecstatic celebration, as French troops would move into these earlier lost provinces. The German Rhineland was to be cleared of German troops. It was to be turned into a demilitarized zone, and the Allies would move in as occupying forces to take over strategic bridgeheads along the Rhine at Mainz, Koblenz, and Cologne. Uh, This, in some sense, had a real symbolic resonance. Many of those same bridges had been used to shuttle across German troops when the Schlieffen Plan counted down at the start of the war in 1914. Now they were to come under Allied occupation precisely to forestall the possibility of another such invasion or aggression. German military materiel, as well as the large German high seas fleet, uh, which uh, whose intentions of uh, sallying out for a death ride had been frustrated by sailors' mutinies, were now to be turned over to the Allies wholesale to ensure that Germany could not continue the war. The Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, by which the Germans had ratified their triumph, this remarkable triumph on the Eastern Front, also became invalid. Germany would have to pay for the damage caused by the war, and the British naval blockade would continue while negotiations for the final terms of the peace would take place. Um, this in, was a remarkable and dramatic uh, element of the uh, armistice terms, that the naval blockade, which had caused economic privations as well as hunger on the German, war front, uh, German home front, would continue. Uh, at the same time, there already were some provisions and negotiations that would take place for the provision of emergency food supplies to the German civilian population. But it speaks volumes about the mutual distrust and hatred uh, among the parties that now would be negotiating the peace, uh, that for a long time it was difficult to agree on the terms with which or through which the emergency food supplies would be delivered. Uh, German authorities were worried that if they allowed German ships to be used for the bringing of these emergency supplies, those ships might very well be confiscated in the long run. Uh, So in some sense, even the German government itself was impeding the swifter delivery of these food supplies. But the pressure of the naval blockade would certainly remain. At first, the armistice was set for 36 days, uh, but the armistice was later renewed and then indefinitely prolonged as negotiations were carried on for the final treaty itself. The German delegation that signed the armistice agreement at Compiègne was led by the Catholic Center Party politician Matthias Erzberger, who was identified now with those parties that had spearheaded the peace resolution in the Reichstag earlier, uh, who had argued for a peace of compromise. Uh, Erzberger was playing a role here that would raise the ire of many German nationalists, and later, indeed, he was assassinated Uh, by a death squad for his role in signing the armistice in 1921. Now Germans would have to await the terms of the peace that the Allies would announce. Germans at this point seized on to, with sort of a desperate intensity, the hope for what they called a Wilson peace. 
And that meant a piece of moderate terms that would be along the idealistic lines that Woodrow Wilson's rhetoric had announced before, based on the 14-point speech of January 8, 1918. Uh, There were even mass demonstrations in which one could see posters held up, only the 14-points posters announced. Germans at this point were slow to realize the extent to which the last stages of the war, the spring offensive of 1918, as well as the harsh terms of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk imposed upon a defeated Russia, had hardened Allied sentiments, uh, including those of Woodrow Wilson, uh, and the terms would be far harsher than they had expected. The ceasefire itself came into effect at 11 a.m. on November 11th. The guns fell silent, and the war had lasted 52 months. The reactions to the news of the armistice are are really compelling to examine, and in some sense they represented a a bookend to the experience of the First World War. We had spoken earlier in uh, one of our first lectures about the August madness of 1914. So now, too, there were remarkable scenes of mass psychology to be observed in the reactions to the formal end of the war. Allied Western Europe uh, was an example of of celebration, which could take quieter as well as more raucous forms. Reportedly, from the evidence that we have, in the front lines of the trenches, as the firing finally ended, the mood was not one of raucous celebration, but rather quiet exhaustion and uh, simply an end to energy. In the capitals of the Western Allies, the pictures were very different. In London, riotous celebrations broke out and there were reports of strangers making love in public. In Paris, the bells rang, crowds paraded down the boulevards, probably in in scenes that might have reminded people of the August madness of 1914, cheering and celebrating. And crowds also gathered at symbolically significant spots, such as a statue representing allegorically the city of Strasbourg in the lost provinces of Alsace-Lorraine, which now was being celebrated and cheered as finally returning to France in a symbolic sense as well. Allied soldiers, when they could be found in the streets of Paris, would be hoisted up onto the shoulders of some of these celebrating civilian crowds and would be carried aloft, British, American, and French soldiers being celebrated as the victors. Trophy cannon, which had been captured from the German troops, were now symbolically in in triumphant processions pulled by civilians down the Rue de Rivoli in a vivid celebration of victory. This celebration also extended to the more remote and secret areas of the war effort. At Porton Down in Britain, where the secret gas warfare laboratory had been working intensively over all of the years previous, Uh, The guards, as well as some of the workers, got drunk in the celebration, and some of these guards apparently released apes who had been used in the experimentation, uh, who then terrorized the countryside until they were captured once again. Uh, There are still, in fact, symbolic remnants of these celebrations in the mood of exultation and jubilation at peace arriving at last. A Belgian beer was created, which was dedicated to peace itself, and it in fact, bore and still bears the name Pax. It's still produced today and and certainly uh, is a a survival of those celebrations. At the same time, we keenly can imagine that 
Alongside these loud public celebrations, inescapably, there were many quiet moments and takings of stock. Inescapably, private sorrows would also be felt in quieter corners, even of victorious countries, as widows, orphans, bereaved parents and siblings thought of the sacrifices that had gone into the end of the war. At the same time, it's very important to keep in mind that Eastern Europe represented in its reactions to the end of the war significantly different emphases. The formal closing of the war had a similarly mixed reaction in Eastern Europe, a mixed reception, but at the same time, an added element was present as well, and that was the celebration of national independence in countries where nationalist dreams of at long last achieving one's own control over one's own territory and land seem to be achieved. And, and to my mind, there's one key symbolic fact that better than all others can really sum up this phenomenon, the, the meaning attached to the First World War as a war that had produced national independence. And this fact is to be seen in Poland and in Polish collective memory to this very day. November 11th, which is celebrated as a, uh, a holiday in memory of soldiers and of the experience of war in the West, November 11th, by contrast, in Poland, is celebrated as the day of national independence, when at long last, after decades of not existing on the map of Europe, a resurrected Poland again emerged onto the European political landscape. And the same was true in many other independent countries that now emerged in Central and Eastern Europe out of the wreckage of fallen empires, celebrating their new existence, even as they were still threatened in their fragile beginnings and in young republics. Germany was an entirely different case. Germany was defeated. Many Germans were now glad of the fact that the war was over, but simply incredulous at the news of their defeat. Many were psychologically unprepared for this revelation. Censorship and propaganda had often hidden the true fortunes of the war. And this was even the case among some nationalist politicians who complained that they had been lied to as uh, the war, as it turns out, was now lost. The propaganda reports from the front had read, at worst, all quiet on the Western Front, and otherwise had announced tremendous victories. And now people were being forced to confront the fact that the war had been lost. There was also another fact on the military battlefield that made it additionally very difficult for ordinary people to take aboard, without the full information that someone like Ludendorff might have had, the reality that Germany had simply lost the war. German armies and German lines of trenches on the, on the battlefield stood not on German soil, but on foreign soil. How is it possible to lose the war and yet nonetheless be victorious, so it seemed, by fighting on enemy soil? In addition, the sheer momentum of the dramatic events of the end of the war were very hard to take in. In quick succession, the Kaiser abdicated, a new German Democratic Republic had been declared, and then two days later, the armistice and Germany has lost the war. Some very important psychological things we can intuit were taking place at precisely this time in the German public. In the humiliation 
of this news of defeat for many Germans, the new democracy that was emerging at the same time would come to be associated with the feelings of failure and shame. And thus it was that at precisely this moment, a conspiracy theory was emerging that, that suggested that Germany hadn't lost the war. This came to be called the stab-in-the-back legend. And in fact, even though it came out in full force at precisely this time, it already had been percolating for some time previous during the war itself. It was part of a larger process of finding scapegoats for those events when the war was not going well. Uh, we'll recall in particular the Jewish census of 1916 that already had been singling out the German Jews uh, as scapegoats for German reverses on the battlefield. The stab in the back legend had also been encouraged by someone like Ludendorff, an earlier war dictator of Germany who now was casting about for others to blame, whether they were civilian authorities or other political factions within Germany, to blame for his own failures. The stab in the back legend argued that the German armies, in fact, had not been defeated on the battlefield, but had been undermined by dark and treacherous forces on the home front. In particular, the democratic revolutionaries of 1918, those who had inaugurated Germany's new experiment with democracy, would be denounced by nationalists in resonant terms as the November criminals, suggesting that this revolution had been an act of treachery from its beginning. One, at this time, obscure, ordinary German soldier by the name of Adolf Hitler, who was recovering as this news rolled in uh, from being gassed in Belgium back in October of 1918, recovering in a hospital in eastern Germany, heard the news of Germany's defeat and was shattered by this revelation. He went blind in what probably represented a hysterical reaction and afterwards would claim that in that blindness he had had visions that instructed him of his mission to restore Germany's greatness in the future. The losses of the First World War were ones that would be difficult for the vanquished as well as the victors to take aboard. And it speaks volumes about the scale of the First World War's totality that the number of deaths was so huge that it cannot, in fact, even today, be determined with precision. Nonetheless, the numbers were horrific, even in their approximation. Germany had lost almost 2 million dead. Austria-Hungary, about 1.5 million. On the side of the Allies, Russia had lost 1.7 million. France, nearly 1.5 million. Britain, nearly a million. Italy, half a million and the Americans over a 100,000. The generational losses were crushing. In France, 17% of those who served in the war were killed, an entire generation damaged. Altogether, according to a quite conservative estimate, some 9 million soldiers died as a result of the war. And we need, in trying to take aboard the enormity of that figure, to keep in mind of the the ripple effect of these losses. Every dead soldier left behind family and relationships that were shattered by that loss as well in in sort of a spreading impact of grief. The injuries, uh, even of those who were not killed outright, were significant. 20 million men, according to best estimates, were wounded, and 7 million of these were probably disabled in a permanent way as a result of their wounds. What we can't know with any precision is how many 
of these soldiers would suffer from psychological disturbances long after the war, and even those who survived physically would often later consider themselves a haunted, lost generation that had lost something of its energy, something of its confidence, and its sense of purpose in this disillusioning war. The economic damage reckoned alongside these huge losses of people and of lives was also enormous. A report from 1920 that tried to take stock of this estimated the cost of the war at the astronomical figure of $337 billion. Besides the immediate losses of the war were other losses uh, of markets, for instance, to neutral countries or to the United States, as well as the plague of inflation that obtained in all of the combatant countries. Equally difficult to quantify, but nonetheless significant, uh, were what contemporaries saw as a shattered confidence in that prime idea of European and Western civilization uh, at the start of the century, the notion of progress. Here, quite vividly, it was the case that technological advances and an advanced civilization had been turned to the purpose of murder. And then there was a crowning horror, a natural disaster that overtook the world even as the war was drawing to a close. This was a devastating pandemic called the Spanish Influenza. Contrary to its name, which suggested that it had come from Spain, uh, even though its origins remain not entirely clear, um, medical historians seem to agree that the epidemic apparently appeared first in Haskell County, Kansas, in the United States in early 1918. While the war itself didn't cause this pandemic, and historians debate the extent to which the privations and the suffering of the war might have made populations more vulnerable. That's still debated. The movement of troops and ships as a result of the war, as well as perhaps the weakened constitutions of civilians in warring countries, apparently facilitated the spread of this pandemic disease. The disease spread to Europe and to other parts of the world, mutating in several waves of infection. Though spreading from the United States itself, apparently, the pandemic came to be called the Spanish flu because neutral Spain, without the same sort of censorship of news that applied in other countries that suppressed the news of the scale of this disease as it spread, in neutral Spain, the reports of the disease were not downplayed as they were in warring countries, and thus the impression was formed that Spain is where it hit first and hardest. The disease was especially horrifying because it, with enormous rapidity, attacked a victim and seemed to especially zero in on the young and the healthy. This virus probably killed another 50 million people around the world, mostly in the fall of 1918. And this figure of 50 million is, um, though it's higher than earlier estimates, is still a quite conservative one. Earlier estimates talked about 20 million lives taken by the Spanish influenza. More current figures are suggesting perhaps up to 100 million deaths worldwide. This disease killed more people in one year than the medieval plague, the Black Death, had over a 100 years. Most recent estimates that are now taking in stock the global reach of this pandemic suggest that maybe 17 million people died in India, and some figures suggest that maybe 2% of the entire population of Africa died as a result as well. In towns in the United States, as well as elsewhere in the world, 
the death rate was so high that not enough coffins could be produced for the dead, and attempts were made to, through fumigation or the wearing of masks or other disinfection procedures, to protect oneself against this mysterious disease. Uh, But ultimately, while they were ineffectual, the disease seems simply to have burned itself out by taking all of the hosts uh, that it might have uh, as it spread. And then a very interesting thing followed upon this intense suffering and mortality of the Spanish influenza. Not long after this devastating pandemic, the memory of this disease seemed to be seemingly effaced from collective consciousness. People didn't talk about it. It was somehow obliterated from historical memory uh, and, to a great extent, from popular historical consciousness, including especially in the United States. And the question presents itself, why? How could a disease of this proportion be forgotten? Did the tragedy of the World War overshadow this disaster and produce, as it were, a sort of short-circuiting of grief by overloading our capacity for suffering? Was the enormity, perhaps, of this natural disaster something that one could not fully comprehend or take in? Whatever the case, the phenomenon of the Spanish influenza is something that medical experts warn us is not unique and not a one-time occurrence. Epidemiologists who study such diseases warn that pandemics like the Spanish influenza of 1918 certainly can recur in our own time. And in fact, with a great deal of anxiety, they're watching for the next outbreak of this sort of worldwide disease. At this point, in the context of such continuing mortality and suffering, which worked in tandem with the hopes and the grief of the war itself, the question was, how would one move forward? How would one start to rebuild? On January 18, 1919, in Paris, the formal opening of peace negotiations took place. However, hatreds built up over the last years of the war would increasingly impede a peace settlement. In the case of France, popular opinion strongly and loudly demanded that Germany be punished for its aggression, made to pay, and that in the future, somehow, French security, which had been violated, had to be guaranteed. Otherwise, the war would have been in vain. In elections that were held in Great Britain in December of 1918, after the war itself ended, uh, the sentiment was very similar. This was often called the khaki elections, after the khaki color of uh, British uniforms, uh, precisely because they were so dominated by military issues. In these elections, Lloyd George and his coalition won a decisive vote of confidence, and they ruled until 1922, and they won this vote of confidence on the strength of promises of making the Germans pay in the peace negotiations. A common demand was hang the Kaiser, and it was also demanded that people like General Ludendorff, uh, the war dictator of Germany, uh, as well as scientists like Fritz Haber, who had helped produce poison gas, be put on trial for violations against international law. At the same time, as they awaited the news of what the peace would be like, many Germans still remained very skeptical that they had even, in fact, lost the war. At the same time, most generally, in the context of such negotiations, even the victorious Allied powers, as they prepared to dictate the terms of the peace, would have to wrestle with the question of what the concept of victory might even conceivably mean after the losses of such magnitude that they had experienced. 
One other consequence of this war of decisive effect was the toppling of age-old dynasties and thrones, the overthrowing of an entire traditional political order in Central and Eastern Europe was an aftershock of the war itself that we'll consider in our next lecture. Lecture 31, Toppled Thrones, The Collapse of Empires. In this lecture, we'll be focusing on the vivid scene of thrones toppling, dynasties crashing down, and the sound of the collapse of empires. As the war ended in defeat for the central powers in 1918, their empires and political structures also came crashing down. In this sense, total war had led to total defeat. This lecture will outline, first, the startling internal collapse of the central powers, the collapse of the German Empire, then the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the Turkish Empire, and will also survey the ongoing crash of the Russian Empire as well. In the case of each of these imperial structures, what order would replace the now extinct order was most certainly a burning question. The political map was in the process of being transformed. As a result of the war, four great empires came crashing down with astonishing rapidity and in the process also tore down the ruling families with them. The Russian Empire of the Romanov family, the German Empire ruled by the Hohenzollerns, the Austro-Hungarian Empire of the Habsburgs, and the Ottoman realm as well. In Europe, Republics replaced dynastic kingdoms in what seemed to be a fulfillment of Woodrow Wilson's promise of a new democratic age. Nine new national states appeared out of the wreckage of empire. From north to south in Central Europe and Eastern Europe, Finland, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, the three Baltic states, Poland, Hungary, Austria, Czechoslovakia, and Yugoslavia. So in other words, one witnessed the astonishing birth of new nations, as it were, arriving at the state of becoming nation-states. But two key points need to be emphasized about this transformation. These new states were not merely created by the negotiators of the Paris Peace Conference soon underway. Rather, facts unfolded on the ground with astonishing speed suggesting that the appeal of nationalism and those ideas that Woodrow Wilson had announced of self-determination and associated democratic appeals were notions that had uh, an appeal far broader than merely that of the rhetorical plane. And some who view the what they would call the balkanization of Central and Eastern Europe as a great tragedy are prone to personalize this development by seeing Woodrow Wilson as responsible for it or having caused it by his rhetoric of self-determination. The reality was far more complex. On the contrary, Woodrow Wilson's articulated ideas would have such appeal because they corresponded to such mass sentiment. New independence for nationalities in Central and Eastern Europe also, and this is the second basic point, 
made for a very different perception of the war itself. One of the themes that we've been pursuing through this course has been that of the different meanings, the often starkly different meanings that were assigned to the war, both as it was going on and in its aftermath, by different participants or witnesses. Well, so too in this case, the aftermath of the war was seen not, as was sometimes the case in Western Europe, as senseless tragedy and waste and problematic victory, but was seen as something very different in Eastern Europe. Instead, often as a baptism of fire for national freedom and independence. Let's turn first to the crucial case of the German Revolution and Germany's beginning of an experiment, unfortunately a brief and failed experiment, with democratic government, starting with the German Revolution of November of 1918. After naval mutinies uh, to frustrate the intended uh, death ride plans of naval officers had broken out, and after revolts had broken out in other parts of Germany as well, the attempted revolution from above by Germany's elites to create a constitutional monarchy and to win more favorable consideration in a peace settlement had failed. Kaiser Wilhelm II abdicated and fled to exile in Holland, where he remained for the rest of his life. Generals Hindenburg and Ludendorff, meanwhile, had systematically sought to evade responsibility for the defeat. And this, in some sense, represented a crucial milestone in the growth of a conspiracy theory, the stab-in-the-back legend, blaming not Germany's military leaders, but mysterious others for this defeat. Prince Max von Baden, who had been landed with the duties of imperial chancellor, now instead prepared for a transfer of power. He offered the power of the state and the government to surprise social democratic leaders, who were caught unprepared. In a sense, there was a a, a strange irony about this very moment. Social Democrats, as a revolutionary party, had long been insisting in their own propaganda and in their own beliefs, ideologically, that they were a party that was organizing to take power and to produce a fundamental social revolution within Germany as well. And now, when the hour arrived, they were surprised and caught off guard. The social democratic leader... Friedrich Ebert, took over thus on November 9th, 1918. In this chaotic set of circumstances, his colleague, Philipp Scheidemann, declared a German Democratic Republic in Berlin. The new German experiment with democracy was beginning, but it was beginning in the context of great confusion. There was a sense in which the revolutionary events themselves were coming so fast and furious that it was difficult for observers and ordinary Germans to keep track of what it was that was happening. One of these observers commented that it seemed in these event-filled days that Germany had fallen asleep under an empire and then had woken up under a republic. In part, the confusion was further underlined and accelerated because there had not been planning during the course of the war itself for demobilization that might follow upon defeat. This speaks volumes about the sense of the totality of the war. Total defeat or total victory had seemed to be the alternatives in years past, so that governments on all sides had not been thinking about the unthinkable. What would happen if your side lost? How would you prepare for an orderly demobilization? It seemed, on the contrary, that 
total victory was the only thinkable option. And now it would have to be faced up to this fact that defeat was a reality. In the process, Germany was in a situation in which chaos and confusion were rife. To just enumerate some of the symptoms of this confusion, throughout Germany's cities and in the, in the barracks of the army and the garrisons of the sailors, local councils were being organized. And these were quite explicitly on the model of the Russian Soviets, which had been the grassroots councils of a sort of very basic democracy of the street that had taken such a trajectory in the Russian Revolution. At the same time, a socialist republic was being declared in Bavaria. Separatists were being mobilized in the Rhineland to perhaps establish an independent Rhineland state, maybe under French patronage. And these cases made very clear that perhaps Germany's own borders were not secure. Perhaps Germany's cohesion might be breaking down territorially due to these regional differences. And then add to this the fact that out in the streets of Germany, out in the barracks, there were now 10 million German soldiers who needed to be demobilized. They were armed. They wanted to go home. It was unclear if one or another political faction might win their sympathies, most certainly a potentially volatile force. And at the same time, to add just one last difficult problem, a revolutionary movement of radical socialists called the Spartacus Revolutionary Movement after a slave rebel of classical times in the Roman Empire, uh, the Spartacus Revolutionary Movement was being organized and it planned actively the overthrow of anything less than a radical socialist state. This was symbolized perfectly by one fact. While the German democracy was being proclaimed by Scheidemann on November 9th of 1918 from the German parliament building, uh, just a few steps away from the balcony of the royal palace, a radical socialist by the name of Karl Liebknecht, who had held firm to his convictions during the co course of the war, was declaring a rival socialist republic, a radical socialist republic at that same time, promising a system that would link up and make common cause with the Bolshevik regime in the East, uh, hoping to accelerate the progress of an international revolution. There was something deeply, deeply symbolically laden about the declaration of this radical socialist, maybe even Soviet republic uh, from the royal palace. It was precisely here where four years previously, Wilhelm II had gone out to declare the domestic truce, arguing that the Burgfrieden or the peace of the castle was now a reality and that he saw before him only Germans. This unity of Germans, which had been breaking down desperately before, now would grow as a situation resembling civil war would start to develop. There was a paradox in this rivalry between different branches of the socialists. On the one hand, there were the moderate socialists, the social democrats, who had stood by Germany's war effort from the August Madness of 1914. On the other hand, there were the radical socialists, who claimed that the majority socialist party had, had uh, betrayed the interests of the German working class and who wanted to push revolution fast and furious. The paradox here was that the SPD, the majority and more moderate socialists, had earlier been claiming that they too wanted revolution, 
but now they would find themselves faced with a challenge of trying instead to simply save order. Government leaders now fell back on an agreement which would come back to haunt them very quickly. The government leaders made an agreement with the German army for mutual assistance. The army extracted the promise that the German army itself would not be purged or cleansed of its traditional officer class. And in turn, the government won the active support of the army in staving off threats to its existence. In the process, the army, which was caught already in an increasing process of disintegration, as well as the government, set about hiring committed fighters who would take up the cause of the government. These were, in essence, brutal mercenaries who came to be called Freikorps, uh, essentially meaning free corps or free units, who would set out to quell revolts. And these Freikorps were of uh, a varied complexion. On the one hand, they included former soldiers, included stormtroopers who didn't want to end the existence of fighting but enjoyed it and wanted to prolong it. It also included students and, and younger boys, young men, who had uh, felt that they'd missed out on the experience of fighting on the front but were now caught up in the civil war atmosphere that ruled in the streets of Germany. This was not a very auspicious beginning for the record of the German democracy, which comes to be called the Weimar Republic. The reason it's called the Weimar Republic is because the constitution of this democracy is written in southeastern Germany in the, a city of culture and associations uh, that were more liberal in nature than, than the imperial capital of Berlin, the city of Weimar, and thus the entire state takes on the name of the Weimar Republic. The provisional government that ruled this young German democracy included the three parties that earlier in 1917 had supported the peace resolution and had spoken out against the hardline German nationalists. This provisional government was made up of the Social Democrats, the moderate majority Social Democratic Party. It included left liberals and it included the Catholic Center Party. In the elections for the Constituent Assembly, which would write the Constitution in Weimar, the elections which took place in January of 1919, a strong vote was returned, which seemed a considerable voice of support for the project of building a German democracy. These three parties, which oriented themselves democratically and pledged to introduce an effective German democracy, gained 76% of the vote in this new German election. This seemed to be a mandate for the building of a new German democracy, and in that sense, a good omen. The constitution, which was written then in Weimar, was considered a model of democracy, a model of progressive governance, and enlightened welfare state obligations growing in many senses out of the new role that the state had taken on in World War I. Uh, indeed, this new German democratic constitution was admired by Democrats, many Democrats worldwide. It included universal voting rights and the rights of women to vote, as well as a bill of rights and very extensive social commitments. Some historians, however, cautioned that maybe it was too democratic. It had a system of voting that's called proportional representation, which aimed to give even small groups a voice in the larger political landscape. But this system of proportional representation made for, in the end effect, 
a quite splintered parliament with many parties and introduced the danger that a small and very radical party might be able to, in a sense, get its foot in the door and then use the democratic process to subvert democracy, something that the Nazis later end up doing. At the same time, and most definitely a burden to this young German democracy, was the stab-in-the-back legend that was growing in conviction and force. In the minds of many, German democracy would come to be associated with defeat, and the terms of the Versailles Treaty that were being announced to an outraged German audience at precisely this time. Radical nationalists would soon be denouncing the government as not legitimate, but rather November criminals. And when German troops returned from the front, the government itself welcomed them as undefeated in the battlefield, in the words of the President Ebert. And this obviously raised a serious question. If the troops had been undefeated, fighting on foreign soil, how then had Germany lost? The reality that Germany had been beaten because of a balance tipping against it in material and military terms, that was suppressed. Instead, the the stab-in-the-back legend, Dolchstoßlegende in German, was already being circulated during the war and now proliferated, asserting that Germany's armies had been betrayed by treacherous elements on the home front. And with sort of a grim regularity, the groups that were scapegoated were democratic politicians, socialists, Catholics, as well as German Jews. Germany's ill-fated ally, Austria-Hungary, had also come crashing down. Even before the war's end, Austria-Hungary had been in the process of dissolving before the eyes of its leaders. National committees had been founded by the separate ethnic groups who increasingly clamored for independence. And exile politicians of these ethnic groups abroad, including in the United States, agitated the Western allies for recognition. At first, the reluctance of the Allies to see the Austro-Hungarian Empire simply dismembered was considerable. If they looked forward to restoring a balance of power, it might be very good to have one larger state like Austria-Hungary preserved. But with the intensity of hatreds and emotions of total war, that reluctance faded over time. From 1917, with those world historical events, the Russian March Revolution which introduced a more democratic system, and the American entry into the war and Woodrow Wilson's notion of a crusade for democracy, a new ideological emphasis took hold worldwide and condemned this multinational empire of the Habsburgs. Wilson's 14 points included the demand for the free, autonomous development of the peoples of the empire, and this soon would develop into a demand for independence. By the summer of 1918, the Allies were supporting the national claims to independence of the minorities and recognized exile committees. A key example was that of Czechoslovakia. A national committee had de facto been taking over power in the Czech lands and had been making common cause with the related ethnic group, the Slovaks, mobilizing one of the best organized national movements in Europe. Abroad, Tomasz Mazarik and Edward Benesch co-founded in exile the Czechoslovak National Council in London in Paris of 1915. And events now snowballed. On October 28, 1918, an independent Czechoslovak Republic was declared in Prague. Further south, in the Balkans, a pre-war South Slav movement, which aimed to unify the South Slavic peoples, the Croats, the Serbs, and others, led to the forming of a Yugoslav committee in exile in London 
of May of 1915, which united Serbs, Croatians, Montenegrins, and Slovenes. They then created the Corfu Declaration of July of 1917, in which Serbia and representatives of other South Slav peoples agreed to the project of creating a combined Yugoslav state in the future, but its nature remained unclear. Would this be a greater Serbia expanded with other related peoples, or would it be more in the nature of a free and equal federation? That remained for the future. On October 29, 1918, an independent Yugoslavia was declared. Hungary itself, now as the empire melted away, even though it had been one of the major constituent parts of the obviously Austro-Hungarian empire, also split away from Habsburg rule. At first, on October 16, 1918, Hungary declared itself independent of ties from Austria, except for still having a common monarch, a Habsburg king, uh, king and emperor. On November 16, 1918, they went the next step. An independent Hungarian republic was declared under Prince Michael Karolyi. Austria now, and this is a, 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 almost a crazy paradox, Austria too now became independent of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. With the empire's collapse on November 12, 1918, an independent German Austria was declared in the expectation of soon joining the German Republic to the north. This small country of 7 million German-speaking Austrians was a shadow of its former power. This was essentially what was left of once great empire. Vienna had once been the capital of an empire of 50 million, and now it was an outsized imperial city in a small remnant of a country. The young emperor Karl, who had sought to save his regime, was dismayed by these events. In mid-October of 1918, the emperor had sought to save or salvage the situation by proclaiming a federal reorganization with autonomy promised to the nationalities in Austria, but this came too late. On November 3, 1918, the Austro-Hungarian armistice had been signed for a state that no longer existed. The Emperor Karl stubbornly refused to abdicate and instead went into exile to Madeira, dying young there. This represented the end of 600 years of Habsburg rule. And the Danube Basin, that entire region which the Austro-Hungarian Empire had united, once had been a political and economic coherent unit, but now was torn apart, and the empire was separated into seven states. In another imperial hangover, five million Germans were now living as minorities outside of Austria or of Germany, and this was an ethnic problem stored up for the future. Independence now came in Eastern Europe as well, as the Russian Empire, which had begun its disintegration earlier, now further continued its disintegration in what really amounted to a process of decolonization uh, pursued earlier than that of the other European empires. Poland was a key example of this sort of emergence of what had been a submerged people into a really dynamic mobilization to achieve the long-aspired-to cause of national independence, where earlier Polish forces of volunteers had been organized to fight under the auspices of the Austro-Hungarians as volunteer legions in the struggle to liberate Polish territories and, it was hoped, achieve national independence, the balance had tipped against the central powers, and the earlier leader of these legions, Piłsudski, had found himself incarcerated by the Germans. And so now the hopes came to rest upon the Allied powers. And the imperative was to win Allied sympathies for the cause of Polish independence. 
a key way in which this could be achieved was by demonstrating that the Poles were committed and participating in the active struggle against the central powers. And a very vivid uh, illustration of this was the existence of a military force called the Holler Army of 100,000 Poles who were fighting for the Allies in France on the Western Front. This army was made up of Polish exiles or former prisoners of war who had earlier been fighting for the Central Powers but now had found their way to the Holler Army to fight on the Western Front. Their commander, Holler, had engaged in a tremendous odyssey to arrive at the Western Front. He had earlier been a commander under Austro-Hungarian auspices of Polish troops. Now he uh, had broke through, broken through the front lines to the Russian Empire, defecting, and had come up through the Russian Empire itself in order to make the long journey to the northern port of Murmansk and to travel thence all the way to France in order to command this army of volunteers on the Western Front. This participation of Poles in an active military sense was recognized by the Allies. They were recognized as a fighting force and Allied sympathies were won in a decisive way for Polish causes. Abroad, the nationalist politician Roman Dmowski and the world-famous pianist-turned-politician uh, Ignacy Paderewski both agitated for Polish independence. The effect was clear. Woodrow Wilson's 14 points agreed and made independent Poland a key war aim. November 11, 1918 is still celebrated as Poland's Independence Day. The commander of Polish legions, Pilsudski, was freed from incarceration in a German jail and traveled to Warsaw to form a government there. And in spite of personal and political conflicts between these rivals, Pilsudski and Domowski, who would lead the delegation to the Paris Peace Conference, they together worked for a one united independent Poland, though its borders still remained unclear. At the same time, with the German collapse, the Baltic republics of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia and Finland became young independent republics, though their independence remained fragile. Because German forces remained in the territory, the Bolsheviks moved forward to spread their revolution, and civil war threatened as well. To the south of what had been the lands of the Russian Empire, the Transcaucasian Republic included the former Russian territories of Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, uh, which soon were reconquered by the Bolsheviks, uh, and only became independent again in our own times. Ottoman Turkey also collapsed with startling speed. Arabia had been made a separate state. Palestine, Iraq, Syria, and Transjordan would come under Allied disposition, and the remaining parts of the empire now were occupied by the Allies. Young Turk war leaders now fled into exile, escaping uh, calls for bringing them to trial uh, for their actions. The new sultan, Mehmed IV, cooperated with the Allies, but a nationalist counter-reaction set in against what was seen as this craven cooperation, and it was led, this nationalist movement, by a former young Turk, Mustafa Kemal, who later would be known as Ataturk, or Father of the Turks, who resisted the government as well as the Allied occupation and eventually abolished the Sultanate, the last remnants of the Ottoman Empire, and created also a new state, a new nation the Turkish nation-state. What we've examined in today's lecture is the remarkable rapidity with which nationalist dreams for achieving national independence and a realization 
of long-held hopes for self-determination of the variety that Woodrow Wilson had been announcing would now finally have come true. We've also examined the difficult first stages of the founding of a German democratic state. Anxieties grew with the terms of the Versailles Treaty as they were announced to German democratic politicians. In May of 1919, the terms of the Versailles Treaty were presented to a shocked German public. And indeed, one German politician complained with a sense of anxiety and and tremendous fear, uh, arguing that these terms were ones that should not be imposed upon a German democracy, which had sought to fulfill some of Woodrow Wilson's ideas. This German politician exclaimed, what hand would not wither, what hand would not be paralyzed that laid itself in such chains by signing a treaty of Versailles? The Paris peace settlement thus, which followed upon the achievement of this collapse of empires and the founding of new states, represented a incomplete and unhappily incoherent answer, as it turns out, to a fundamental challenge of this new age. How to combine an attempt at the realization of Woodrow Wilson's democratic message of a crusade to make the world safe for democracy and to achieve a new world order founded upon more democratic governments on the one hand, with the demands that had grown out of the emotions, the hatreds, the passions of the war itself for a reigning in and a revenge for the crimes of the enemy side. The Paris Peace Settlement, uh, a whole complex of treaties that would be signed with the defeated powers, and in addition, among these treaties, the most important of them, the Treaty of Versailles that would be imposed upon uh, a defeated Germany as the centerpiece of this entire settlement, would leave traumatized international politics and raise once again the question of how such problems might be solved through peaceful settlement rather than through a recurrence of the same sort of total war which the future held in store. It's precisely this dynamic of the crafting, the writing, and the attempt at the creation of the Paris Peace Settlement and the Treaty of Versailles itself with a defeated Germany that we'll be examining in much more detail in our lecture to follow. Lecture 32, The Versailles Treaty and Paris Settlement. In this lecture, we'll be looking very closely at the business of peacemaking, the attempt to remake a world with the Versailles Treaty and the larger Paris Settlement of which it would be a part. Here's the key problem. How does one make peace after a war of this duration and this totality. The peace settlements ending the First World War were beset with contradictions. Should the treaties try to reconcile enemies, or should they, on the contrary, seek to decisively punish the defeated side? Were they meant to repair the pre-war balance of power, or were they meant to transcend it entirely and, and abolish it as a thing of the past? In this lecture, we'll consider in depth the entire complex of treaties with the defeated central powers 
which together are called the Paris Settlement. We'll examine the divergent motives of the victors at work in the drafting of these peace treaties. The case of the 1919 Versailles Treaty with the defeated Germany brings the paradoxes of this peacemaking into sharp relief. On the one hand, there were expressed desires for European reconciliation. On the other hand, economic and military constraints were imposed on Germany along with reparations for war guilt. Elsewhere in Central and Eastern Europe, in the new republics established out of the wreckage, the settlement was celebrated as a ratification of longed-for national independence. At the same time, however, many issues left unresolved by the Paris settlement would soon return to haunt Europeans, and a particularly troubling aspect of the lack of resolution that it brought was the seeming pulling out by the United States of this entire structure by not ratifying the Versailles Treaty. The Paris Peace Conference of 1919 opened on January 18th, and it involved the beginning of work on five separate treaties with the defeated powers, the central powers. These were Germany, Austria, and Hungary, now treated separately because they had broken apart, Bulgaria, and Turkey. This was a huge international gathering of diplomats. 27 states participated. There were somewhere on the order of 10,000 delegates, participants, observers, and experts on all sorts of diplomatic questions who are taking part. But in the negotiations themselves, there were some significant parties who would not be allowed to participate. And in particular, the defeated central powers did not share in compromise or give, or ta- give and take um, crafting of this solution. Rather, they would have the terms told them and would have to accept or reject those terms. Another presence that, in some sense, uh, lurked in the minds of many of the peacemakers uh, but was not represented uh, as such in the process of the conference itself was Bolshevik Russia. The Soviet ideology was something that was already worrying many of the peacemakers. Uh, Russia was a pariah or untouchable state in their mind, and thus they sought, even as they feared it, not to include it in these negotiations. The peacemakers were dominated by four participants in particular, and these were aptly called the Big Four because of their outsized importance and the fact that they would gather uh, for their own negotiations, uh, even as formally the process was supposed to involve many other countries. The French were represented by Premier Clemenceau. Clemenceau negotiated with a, a truly dogged and inflexible determination with the goal in mind to defend French interests and to secure French security for the future. In other words, now that the war had been won, Clemenceau was determined to win the peace as well and establish structures that would ensure French security. The British, by contrast, were represented by the British Prime Minister, Lloyd George. And Lloyd George, in spite of his earlier ferocity and the promises made in a recent election to really make the Germans pay, by contrast, his, his role in practice turned out to be a good deal more moderate. He tried to compromise where possible, 
but was himself inflexible when defending British imperial interests. More cynical French observers would say that, well, certainly the British could afford to take a more measured line against the renewal of the German threat because they had the channel still between them and a renewal of that German threat. The Italians, as participants on the side of the victors, were represented by their prime minister, Vittorio Orlando. But Orlando was tremendously frustrated by Allied refusals to meet all of the Italian territorial demands on the Adriatic. And out of this frustration, uh, he uh, engaged in a dramatic gesture that was probably soon repented of. Uh, He stormed out of the negotiations on April 24th, 1919, and, and henceforth the Big Four would be reduced to the Big Three. That was to say, Clemenceau, Lloyd George, and the American president, Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson had come to the Paris settlement negotiations to construct a new peace along idealistic lines. And Woodrow Wilson also was confirmed in his providential sense that he had the special mission of constructing a new durable international order on idealistic lines when he witnessed the rapturous welcome that awaited him. When he arrived in France, he was met by enormous crowds. And it's estimated, this is an astonishing figure, that he was uh, greeted by some two million French people as he traveled through the territories uh, of France on his way to make different diplomatic visits. Uh, He was hailed there by, by crowds that called him by the name Wilson the Just, celebrating his unique role as a voice for peace. And one could see posters posted through European cities clamoring for this demand, we want a Wilson peace, whatever that might mean. No American president had spent so much time away from the United States while in office. And historians, gifted uh, as they are with perfect hindsight, have often criticized Wilson's decision to personally lead the American delegation in negotiations. They argue that this robbed him of the flexibility of a longer view uh, and caught him up in compromises that he later regretted. And indeed, during the negotiations themselves, the negotiations were directed not so much against the defeated powers alone, but also represented a certain competition and a certain tension between the Allies themselves as they often pursued different priorities. In this case, different priorities clearly would clash. Wilson's aim was to enshrine a democratic peace, carrying within itself an acknowledgement of the notion of self-determination, and beyond this, his dream was also to establish a structure that would institutionalize These new sets of ideas, this structure that he envisioned was to be a world organization called the League of Nations. By contrast with what Wilson presented as his idealistic message, the European powers, and in this case in particular the French and the British, tended to instead emphasize things that were stressed in the older kind of traditional diplomacy that Wilson aimed to overcome and to make obsolete. They emphasized instead the imperatives of national security and the realities of power politics, the balance of the balance of power. The expectations of the Germans as well were a factor in all of this. 
especially after Germany had turned itself into a democracy. German political leaders and many ordinary Germans had expected to be included in the negotiations, not as a defeated power, but welcomed as a new democracy into the family of free peoples. This was to be disappointed, precisely because the Allies aimed to negotiate the terms of the treaty without interference by compromise with the defeated powers. And instead of being active participants, Germans would have to wait to hear the terms of the peace as it was decided upon. Further, time was a crucial factor on all sides in this negotiation. If one can, one should try to keep in one's mind as we talk about the the different results of the negotiations, keep in mind uh, mentally a clock, a clock ticking down as the negotiations drag on. Because even as the negotiations proceeded, certain other factors were changing. And in particular, the strength of the negotiating parties was being altered itself as the negotiations proceeded. Armies were being demobilized. Facts were being established on the ground as new nations declared their independence. Uh, wartime economies were slowly being demobilized. So clearly shifts in relative power were taking place even as the negotiations went on. And this was clearly a factor in the minds of the negotiators. As an additional source of pressure, the negotiators were constantly being lobbied from all sides by advocates of different causes. And one needs to imagine what the scene must have been like uh, in the hotels of Paris during the negotiations. Every night, activists for one or another nationality striving for independence would be slipping propaganda and memoranda and all sorts of other literature under the hotel doors of delegates to the negotiations in the hope that their dreams of national independence might come true. Some were to be satisfied, many others not. The Versailles Treaty, which was the centerpiece of the entire Paris settlement, was carved out with many compromises between the Allied negotiators themselves and with many dissatisfactions, and nonetheless, in many cases, still represented a ratcheting up of demands to their maximum. What were the terms of the Versailles Treaty? There were many of them. The Versailles Treaty included 440 articles, so this was quite a detailed list of terms. Let's outline the most important ones. Germany was to lose all of its colonies and about 13% of its pre-war territory in Europe, involving about 10% of its population. So Germany itself was to lose lands. It was to be uh, cut around the edges. This included Alsace and Lorraine, the lost provinces that had been taken from France in 1871. It also included disputed territories that would default to Belgium and to Denmark. It also included large provinces in the east, which had had mixed German-Polish populations, but now became part of a new resurrected Poland. And, true to the promise of the 14 points, Poland was to gain a Polish corridor to the Baltic Sea in order to give it access to world trade, even though this meant that part of Germany, eastern Prussia, would be split off, physically split off from the rest of Germany and it would be no longer geographically contiguous. At the same time, the important East German port of Danzig was to be made a free port split off from Germany itself. 
Next, Germany's armed forces that had fought this long, long war were to be drastically reduced so that they would not represent a threat again. With no conscription allowed, no draft, the German army would be limited to a very small volunteer force of 100,000 men, not an army on the scale of millions as had been fielded in the First World War. Germany also was to divest itself of many of those destructive new technologies that had played a role in World War I. Germany was to have no air force, no submarines, and gas weapons were emphatically banned. Territorially, the Rhineland on Germany's western frontier was to be demilitarized. This demilitarized zone was on a front of about, or a belt of, of 30 miles wide to be left bare of German military forces so that if Germany ever, it seemed, was in the process of becoming a threat again, the Rhineland would represent a jumping off point for a renewed Allied invasion. The West Bank of the Rhine was to be occupied by the Allies for about 15 years. France had demanded something far larger. It had demanded an independent Rhineland buffer state to be set up of German speakers in the Rhineland area, which would not be part of Germany, but would offer, would offer security to the French in the future. Uh, they were, they finally agreed to scale back this demand in exchange for British and American pledges of guaranteeing French security in the future. Germany would also have to pay an unspecified amount in reparations for the war. Woodrow Wilson resisted this demand. It went against his principles of uh, not exacting huge fines for the conflict, uh, but nonetheless, he gave in on this score. Uh, The sum was not immediately specified, but later it was set at $32 billion in 1921. Limitations were also to be placed on German industry and commerce as a way, as it were, of shackling the German revival that many felt was sure to come. And an example of this involved uh, important uh, exports uh, like liquors. Uh, In particular, the agreement stressed that certain names of famous products that were French would not be allowed uh, to be used by the Germans, so that the Germans henceforth could not market their brandy under the name of cognac. This would be limited to the French regions And likewise, the Germans couldn't market their sparkling wines as champagne, but instead would have to call them by less famous and less charismatic names. Um, Parenthetically, the very fact that the United States doesn't ratify the Versailles Treaty allowed Californian wine growers to continue using this famous name of champagne for their own products. But of all of these articles, of all of these clauses, there was one which had a bombshell significance psychologically. This was Article 231, which popularly came to be called the War Guilt Clause. That was not its formal title, but that was how it was understood. In this Article 231, which aimed to establish a legal foundation for the claims to reparations that were being made by the treaty, Germany was made to accept the blame for starting the war. And we need next to examine the German reactions to these terms. When the terms of the treaty were announced, German public opinion was thunderstruck. And when it recovered from its surprise, which to us in retrospect might seem um, overdone or exaggerated, um, given the reality of of the hatreds and the passions that had built up and and how the Germans had treated defeated Russia and the Brest-Litovsk Treaty, but when German public opinion recovered from its surprise, 
outrage spread on a gigantic scale. Nonetheless, no negotiation of the terms was to be allowed. Rather, they were to be accepted, or the blockade would continue, and the war would recommence. German naval officers took action in protest. Uh, when the German fleet had been moved to Scapa Flow in the Orkneys to a British base, uh, the German officers took a decisive moment to scuttle or sink the entire German fleet so that it wouldn't fall into enemy hands. German nationalists denounced this diktat, uh, the German phrase for a dictated peace, and clamored and protested against what they named Germany's bleeding borders. Across nearly all of the political spectrum, the rejection of the terms of the Versailles Treaty by German public opinion was unanimous. And it especially focused on war guilt as an issue. It seemed to many Germans who were not fully aware of how irresponsible and unpredictable German aggressive foreign policy had been in the lead-up to 1914, uh, and after the First World War ends, the new German democratic government didn't throw open the archives of the diplomatic service in order to really have a nationwide debate about one's own foreign policy. For these reasons, German public opinion, to a great extent, had remained unaware of these realities and instead, in a very heartfelt way, emphasized that surely a disaster on this scale had involved the responsibility of many European nations and not the Germans alone. Whatever the facts of the matter, the passions were clear. To a certain extent, we can see now when the passions have died down, the terms of the Versailles Treaty, in fact, were milder than those which Germany had imposed on Russia in the Brest-Litovsk Treaty of 1918. So there was an element of hypocrisy or blindness to many of these protests. In spite of this wave of outrage and protest, the German delegation ultimately had no choice. It ultimately signed the Versailles Treaty on June 28th of 1919 in a famous and significant historical location, the Hall of Mirrors, in Versailles. We can imagine the scene as it unfolded uh, in the records that are given to us by historical contemporaries. The site was important because the Hall of Mirrors, this this beautiful palace complex uh, of Versailles, of Louis XIV, uh, of earlier ages, uh, had played an important historical role back in 1871. This was where the German Empire had been officially declared over the body, one might say, of a defeated France, humiliating uh, the French additionally. Shortly before three o'clock in the afternoon, the signing ceremonies were ready, and a thousand observers were gathered. There are even photographs showing uh, officers and, and observers craning uh, to look through windows in order to, from the outside, to get a view of this historic event. And these observers watched as Clemenceau, leading the proceedings, barked out the order, bring the Germans in. The German representatives, two of them, walked into the room with faces that were, were as pale as those of corpses. They avoided making eye contact with anyone and approached the table where the treaty was laid out. The two Germans were offered pens with which to sign the treaty, but they ostentatiously instead pulled out their own fountain pens, which they'd brought along so as not to have to use enemy pens or enemy ink in the signature of this treaty. When they were done signing, the treaty uh, generally was uh, signed by all of the parties 
And uh, parenthetically, um, the famous pen company based in France, Waterman, which had provided uh, the pens for the signing, had the the joy of seeing its product used in the signing of this diplomatic uh, uh, instrument. And afterwards, Waterman used in its ads the claim or the the proud pronouncement that Waterman pens had been used. I'm pretty sure that uh, after the disastrous outcomes of the Versailles Treaty, these ads uh, were quietly shelved. And thus it was that five years to the day from the assassination in Sarajevo that had sparked the First World War, the Versailles Treaty was signed. Within Germany itself, outrage against the treaty continued, and unfortunately, irrational as this might have been, came to poison views of German democracy by association. In the outrage and the the, the social mobilization that grew out of the German reactions to the Versailles Treaty, there were some fascinating instances of people that we've already talked about before playing a role as well. In particular, that brilliant German-Jewish scientist, Fritz Haber, who had earlier been instrumental in pioneering gas warfare and by his uh, discovery of ways to synthesize nitrates, had uh, prolonged the German war effort uh, with uh, the ability to uh, produce fertilizer and explosives, Uh, he now set about, once he returned from exile, since he had feared being put on trial, uh, once he had returned to Germany, he sought to find some way of creatively um, overturning the Versailles Treaty through science. And in particular, he was haunted by a statistic that suggested to him that there was gold present in seawater out in the oceans um, in minuscule amounts, but maybe it would be possible to extract it from the seawater. He attempted this uh, and was very disappointed to learn over time that, in fact, uh, the statistics that he'd been working with had vastly exaggerated the amount of gold that was available in trace amounts in seawater and, uh, in fact, would require far greater volume than ever expected before to produce the requisite gold to pay for reparations. Uh, The result was that he failed, but he had a nice consolation prize. He won the 1918 Nobel Prize for his earlier work, not on gas warfare, obviously, but for synthesizing of nitrates. Uh, And it was a great and crushing blow to Allied opinion Uh, American newspapers suggested, well, if you did this, I mean, if you gave a man who amounted to a war criminal in their perspective the Nobel Prize in science, uh, then you ought to give German propagandists the Nobel Prize in literature. Uh, One outcome of this was that Fritz Haber was not put on trial as a war criminal, in part because of the stature that the Nobel Prize had given him. A word to the other treaties of the the Paris settlement that were important as well. The the Treaty of Saint-Germain with uh, Austria, on September 10th of 1919, ceded territories to neighboring states uh, from the Austrian lands and forbade the Austrians' union with Germany. The French were insistent upon this. Germany was not going to emerge out of the war stronger than it had been before the war started. So you had the bizarre situation of a country that didn't want to be independent, German Austria, being forced into independence. The Treaty of Trianon with Hungary on June 4th, 1920, also left only a small portion of what Hungary had once been. Immense territories were ceded to Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, and Romania. And many Hungarians rejected this furiously with a famous slogan, no, no, never, in reference to the Treaty of Trianon. And recently on a trip to Budapest, I saw for sale posters of maps of Hungary showing it in its older borders. 
Uh, the Treaty of Neuilly with Bulgaria of November 27, 1919, did something similar. It ceded vast territories. The Treaty of Sèvres with Ottoman Turkey of August 10, 1920, likewise dismembered the empire with Syria and Lebanon falling to French control, Palestine and Iraq to British control, and other territories going to Greece and Italy. The Kurds and Armenians were to gain autonomy, but this treaty was never ratified because it was rejected by nationalist Turkish revolts. The League of Nations had been a very important key idea of Wilson's, included in his 14 points, and he was especially willing to compromise in particular instances, like on reparations, in exchange for the creation of this institution of collective security that he hoped would later peacefully correct any problems or flaws in the Versailles Treaty. This institution, whose aim was to promote peaceful resolution of conflicts, consisted of a general assembly and a smaller council. The League began its existence in Geneva in January of 1920, and in spite of some successes, the League ultimately turned out not to have the enforcement mechanisms or the teeth necessary to ensure the, uh, that its dictates were followed, and it ended in failure as the world moved towards World War II. It was finally formally dissolved in 1946 once its failures had been patent. Two great powers, the United States and Soviet Russia, ascendant superpowers in fact, were not members. The United States rejected the Versailles Treaty and with it the League of Nations Covenant. One reason for this was Wilson's inflexibility on the Versailles Treaty itself and and the conception of the League of Nations. Uh, He wanted it to really match his vision and was unwilling to compromise on aspects of its structures. His political miscalculations in this regard forced a showdown in American politics. Anxieties expressed by some American senators included questions of sovereignty, Would the League of Nations mean that America no longer was sovereign as a nation? Would it have to obey the dictates of others in this collective structure? There were questions about the obligations of the United States under the system of collective security. If all states were to guarantee each other's borders and their security, wouldn't America conceivably be drawn into faraway struggles which didn't involve its national interest? There was also a growing sense of disgust on the part of a broader American public at what they saw as the dirty dealings of the negotiations of the Versailles Treaty, which seemed to them a return to balance of power politics and the cynical old ways of European diplomacy versus Wilson's idealistic vision. It's also true that some uglier prejudices expressed themselves in skepticism towards the League of Nations, along with some quite valid worries. Some of these prejudices included the notion that uh, uh, non-white peoples would be on an equal basis with uh, those of European heritage. An anxiety also about religious affiliation uh, uh, argued that this would be an organization dominated by Roman Catholic countries by their sheer size. That was another prejudicial anxiety. As Wilson campaigned for the approval of the treaty and refused to compromise, he exhausted himself and finally ran himself down to the point that he collapsed and never could recover his health. Finally, to a great extent because of Wilson's attitude of take it or leave it, the United States Senate, in spite of attempts to compromise and salvage something of this agreement, finally refused to ratify the treaty in March of 1920. What are the verdicts on this tremendously controversial Treaty of Versailles and the larger Paris Settlement? Well, there were clearly disappointments with the settlement itself. Apart from the fury of the defeated, 
like the Germans, there were many others who were disappointed. Many representatives of non-Western peoples under colonial rule had grown over the course of the war participation to hope for self-determination as an outcome of the war, but they received no hearing. Some of these included the later Vietnamese communist leader Ho Chi Minh, included the representatives of a pan-African congress which uh, aimed to agitate for independence for African countries, proposals for a declaration of racial equality, a statement of principle that the Japanese had put forward, were also ignored, and this was resented as well. German colonies and Ottoman territories, such as Arab lands that had hoped for independence, were instead called mandates, a term that obscured colonial rule. But paradoxically, even as this represented the revival of older colonial patterns, the very notion that as mandates they were, at least in theory, being prepared for independence someday in the future was a presage, an omen of later processes of decolonization that really accelerate after World War II. Italy itself was an interesting case. Feeling cheated of Dalmatian territories at the head of the Adriatic, Italy denounced the entire Paris settlement itself as a mutilated victory, and even though it had been one of the victors, it in the long run acted like a loser in the war. As France sought to build up a strong Poland uh, as a cordon sanitaire, a, um, a safety belt, as it were, of states in Eastern Europe allied with Poland as well to contain both Soviet Russia and Germany, conflicts with other states undermined possible solidarity. Many earlier economic unities had been destroyed by the outcome of the First World War, and British economist John Maynard Keynes warned against crippling Germany economically. There were also many minority questions left over. In spite of the ideal of national self-determination, many minority issues remained. Germans pointed out with a great deal of justification that German minorities had often been denied self-determination in the Tyrol, which fell to Italy, in the Sudetenland, in Czechoslovakia, in Poland, and in Austria. The treaty now had to be enforced, and France felt that it was left, in the expression of a French politician, holding the tail of the tiger. Dangerous to hold on, but even more dangerous to let go fearing a future renewal of a German threat. Views of Wilson's role in all of this are diametrically uh, opposed, dramatically. In some cases, Wilson is denounced for his role. In others, he's quite popular. If, if you go to Prague in the Czech Republic today, if you come by train, you'll arrive at the Woodrow Wilson train station on Woodrow Wilson Boulevard. Uh, in fact, however, neither Wilson nor the other peacemakers had been omnipotent or all-powerful. Events on the ground unfolded and demanded their recognition or reaction. And indeed, debate continues to this day on the Versailles Treaty. Some diplomatic historians contend that it was too harsh, others that it was not harsh enough. Uh, others argue, indeed, that it was the best that really could have been done at the time. And anxieties about its legacy were felt even as the treaty was being written. One uh, observer, I think, summed it up best. After a war to end all wars, he worried, this might very well end up to be a peace to end all peace. We'll be examining the outcomes of many of these issues in our next lecture. Lecture 33, Aftershocks. Reds, Whites, and Nationalists.
In our earlier lectures, in which we had discussed the events after the armistice of November 11th of 1918, we had been at pains to point out that this was not, in spite of its formal ending of the war, truly a definitive end to the conflict. And it's precisely this dimension of the wars that follow after the Great War that we'll be exploring in this lecture on the aftershocks that follow the conflict, Reds, Whites, and National Wars. In the turmoil that followed the end of the war, a new and intense level of ideological conflict followed, which in many ways prefigured the Cold War that truly came into its own decades later after World War II. It did so especially in Central and Eastern Europe in the immediate aftermath of the First World War. Partisans of the new international communism that Lenin had spearheaded and that had been heralded by the institution of revolutionary Soviet Russia faced off against forces opposed to the revolution. The revolutionary forces, the Bolsheviks, were often labeled reds because of their revolutionary color, red. They faced off against the counter-revolutionary forces arrayed against them. They were often called, in distinction to the Reds, the Whites. Across much of Eastern and Central Europe, after the formal closing of the First World War, battles continued to rage. And Red Terror and White Terror alternated as it spilled across the territories. A violently brutal civil war surged across Russia, with ineffectual Allied attempts at trying to intervene in this conflict and tip it in one or another direction. In the new Baltic republics, German mercenaries and the invading Red Army clashed with the forces of the independent states, and radical socialist revolts in Hungary, in Finland, and in Germany erupted and then were suppressed. Soviet Russia and independent Poland clashed. Other new nation-states also collided repeatedly in battles over where borders would be drawn. And thus, in a crucial sense, Even as the Great War formally had ended, fierce new lines of division were being drawn on the map and indeed in European society as a whole. So the First World War, in fact, did not end neatly with the armistice or even with the Paris settlement. Rather, in reality, it continued in a series of aftershocks, which testified to a great extent to the difficulties of realizing national self-determination in areas of mixed populations where minorities were now evident and had been had found themselves relocated on a redrawn political map. And at the same time, the revolutionary agenda of radical socialists also played a role. These clashes, these wars, and civil strife following in the wake of the Great, Great War made clear that a new level of ideological violence had been reached after the conflict's end and had everything to do with the ideological processes that had taken place during the First World War. These aftershocks pitted revolutionaries against counter-revolutionaries and nationalists of different ethnic groups against one another in a multifaceted, complicated, shifting battle with shifting fronts. In its brutalizing effects, the Great War, in a sense, had functioned as a hinge of violence. Even now that the war was over and, and the fighting on the Western Front had formally closed, the Great War had opened out to a new level of conflict and violence. Let's begin by considering the tremendously brutal civil war in Russia that follows upon the Bolshevik seizure of power. 
From 1917, when the Bolsheviks come to power, to 1920, the Bolsheviks and their newly created military force, the so-called Red Army, struggled to keep control of the state that they had seized during a civil war of incredible ferocity and atrocities on all sides. In this civil war, it's estimated, and the figures here are really a matter of conjecture and debate because they can't be with precision determined, but it's estimated that some perhaps 7 to 10 million people died in the former lands of the Russian Empire, which represented five times as many as in the Russian Empire's role in the World War itself. So in some sense, this dwarfed the experience of the Great War uh, in Eastern Europe. Some estimates for all of the Russian deaths in this period of violence and privation and starvation uh, for this entire period of 1918 to 1922, including deaths by violence, hunger, and disease, actually run to 20 million. So we're talking here about a context of enormous upheaval, enormous human suffering, and crisis. The forces that faced off against the Bolsheviks were called the Russian Whites. But this designation in itself was was very vague and unclear because the forces labeled the Whites, in fact, were of tremendous diversity. They were of a varied array of political orientations, and they pursued different aims. There were social revolutionaries across Russia who, in distinction to the Bolsheviks, instead aimed to produce a, a socialist free state based on the peasantry rather than on a model of tremendous industrialization such as one had seen in Western Europe. There were also outright monarchists who aimed to restore the Tsarist regime uh, in one form or another. And at the same time, there were also supporters of the provisional government and a more democratic uh, form of statehood for Russia that had been overthrown by the Bolsheviks. The armies of the whites included a whole array of generals who you might even think of as warlords who among themselves didn't really coordinate their attacks. And this was one reason for their ultimate failure. They included General Denikin in the southern lands of what had been the Russian Empire, Admiral Alexander Kolchak in Siberia, General Wrangel in the Caucasus, and General Yudenich, whose troops fought in the Baltic region. Though their assaults on the Russian central region, especially based around Moscow, where the Bolsheviks now gathered their forces, though their assaults on this center repeatedly threatened the Bolshevik regime, and indeed many observers in the West were certain that the Bolsheviks, weak as they were, would ultimately succumb to these attacks, nonetheless, the white forces ultimately lacked mutual agreement about what their final aim was, what their political goals should be, and lacked strategic coordination. Finally, after the attacks petered out, in November 1920, when General Wrangel's forces were at last defeated as the last of the white forces, the Civil War drew to a close. But there had also been another very significant international dimension to the Civil War, and this was in the form of a somewhat half-hearted and irresolute intervention by Allied forces. To protect the military supplies that had been delivered uh, first to the Tsarist regime and then to the provisional government in Russia as it continued to fight in the First World War uh, in 1917, and to support the white forces, the Allies landed troops on the edges of the empire, especially in ports in the north, in the Pacific, uh, and in the Black Sea. 
And these forces included a, a varied array of international units. There were British units, French, American, and Japanese forces. Uh, at the same time, their determination was not to get sucked into uh, an apocalyptic conflict within the Russian Empire uh, or the former Russian Empire. And thus, the result was that even though they were present there and were a tremendous irritation to the Bolsheviks, and were held up as an example of how the capitalists worldwide were seeking to eliminate the Bolshevik regime. Nonetheless, the Allied intervention, symbolically significant as it was, didn't amount to a strategic tipping of the balance. There were also other forces and uh, that were at work in the Russian Civil War from outside. And one of these, uh, it really represents an astonishing epic story. You might call it an, an odyssey of the 20th century. This was the so-called Czech Legion. The Czech Legion was made up of 40,000 former prisoners of war who had been captured by the Russians after their loss by the Austro-Hungarian forces who were mustered for the cause of Czech national independence and thus represented sort of a a force that had been built up out of former prisoners of war. Uh, They sought to return to their homeland. And in the turmoil of the Russian Civil War, uh, they actually took over the entire Trans-Siberian Railroad and rode up and down it, battling with the Bolsheviks before finally, at long last, at an epic journey, returning to the Czech lands and to national independence. Ultimately, the Bolsheviks were victorious in the s- Civil War. And the reasons for this were remarkable. The Bolsheviks, even though they were weak, and the forces opposing them had been weak, had nonetheless a decisive advantage because of their key values of discipline, organization, and a cool determination to see the battle through. By late 1920, the Allied forces, who had been helping in an intervention to try to aid the whites, ultimately withdrew. And the Bolsheviks had triumphed. The Bolsheviks had centralized the government under their control, cementing the beginnings of what would turn into an attempt at a total state. In the economic realm, the policy that was followed was called war communism. This included centralized state control of production, banks, and, at least theoretically, uh, control of the land as well uh, for agricultural production, all of which reflected Lenin's admiration for what he saw as Germany's successful centralization of control of the economy in pursuit of what had ironically then been called war socialism, the government taking a central organizing role in mobilization for war or international revolution. The war commissar of this new Soviet state from March of 1918 was the determined and charismatic revolutionary Leon Trotsky, He organized and then led a new kind of army, a revolutionary people's army, it was announced, the Red Army. And he coordinated its movements and its growth from his armored train, which became famous as sort of the symbol of the mobility, the modernity, and the determination of the Bolsheviks. At the same time, centralized and very severe control over the population and its politics and its speech and its activities was... uh, enforced by the secret police called the Cheka, the Extraordinary Commission, uh, to combat counter-revolutionaries. In their trademark long leather coats with pistols at their side, they used terror as a political weapon against those suspected of treason 
against the Soviet state. They followed a decree that had been published in September of 1918, which had promoted red terror as a tool of politics. Ultimately, the former areas of the Russian Empire that had fallen away, especially in the Caucasus, including also Ukraine, uh, were reconquered by the Bolsheviks and became part of a larger state. This took on the title of the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, or the Soviet Union, as it was often called, in December of 1922, as the Bolsheviks organized themselves to wait for the worldwide revolution that they expected was soon to come. And this state, this revolutionary organization, the Soviet Union, existed into our own times and only collapsed with the end of the Cold War. At the same time, the Bolsheviks had been determined, in accord with their ideological expectations, to expect and anticipate and help along the international revolution that they were sure would follow upon their own revolutionary triumph in the underdeveloped lands of the Russian Empire. Because the Bolsheviks were constantly looking forward to a worldwide revolution, they created a new organization to actually export revolutionary ideas, revolutionary fervor, and models for how to succeed in producing this new radical social revolution. This new organization came to be called the Common Turn, and this was one of those characteristic Bolshevik words that was sort of produced from chopped up other words and crammed into sort of a super acronym. The Common Turn stood for the Communist International. The Communist International organization might be considered really kind of a a company or an organization for the export of revolution. It was also often called the Third International. To set it off from the failed Second International of the socialist movement that had broken down in 1914 as socialist solidarity worldwide had dissolved. This Comintern was founded in Moscow in March of 1919. Trotsky proudly called it the general staff of the world revolution. The Comintern also did something very important in terms of seeking to centralize the direction of these hopes for worldwide revolution. It imposed discipline on all member parties. To join the common turn, the Communist International, a party of radical socialists elsewhere in the world had to acknowledge that the common turn's direction and the example of the Soviet Union as the first successful attempt or experiment at this radical socialist revolution had to be followed. Discipline uh, had to be maintained. And certainly, worldwide, the Comintern encouraged the founding of communist parties in countries around the world. Just to give a few examples, the French Communist Party was founded in 1920 in the immediate aftermath of the turmoil of the First World War. And among the founders was the Vietnamese activist Ho Chi Minh, who would later play an important role in the Vietnam War. Uh, Far away in China, The Chinese Communist Party was founded in 1921, inspired by these same ideas, and among those attending its foundation uh, was a man who would later play a great role in Chinese communist history, Mao. At the same time, revolutionary events were moving along in other countries in Central and Eastern Europe. A key example was that of Finland. Finland had been earlier under the control of the Russian Empire and now had broken off into independence. But no sooner had it done so than a civil war broke out. 
red and white forces of Finns espousing one or another ideological stance battled in a civil war in 1918, which ended with communist defeat. And this was a dramatic civil war because fighting took place in in the capital itself, in Helsinki, in the downtown streets. And if you visit the National Museum in Helsinki today, you can see the front door actually riddled with bullet holes from these engagements and fighting in the streets of Helsinki itself. There were encouraging signs for the Comintern and Bolsheviks who expected that world revolution in Western Europe as well. As a sign of growing workers' militancy, a general strike took place in France on May Day of 1919. Huge demonstrations, a walkout from the factories, and many communists hoped that this was but one more signal of the coming apocalyptic world revolution. In Britain, for instance, dock workers also showed a new uh, consciousness of worldwide socialism by simply going on strike to refuse to load supplies that were intended for the Allied intervention in Russia. This was a, a symbol of solidarity with the Russian force, uh, the Bolsheviks in Russia. In northern Italy, matters were more violent. Strikers simply seized factories in the fall of 1920, and a revolutionary situation seemed to be developing. Important as these were, the great prize and the place where the Bolsheviks in particular expected large-scale revolts to break out was Germany. Germany was heavily industrialized, and it seemed ripe for an upheaval of the sort that Russia had seen. This was an agenda pursued by the communist organization Spartacus. In Berlin, in January of 1919, Spartacus staged an uprising. Among the leaders of this uprising was Rosa Luxemburg. Rosa Luxemburg was a remarkable radical socialist revolutionary. Uh, She had grown up in Poland and had moved to Germany where she'd become one of those charismatic leaders of the more radical social democrats. She was, however, a critic of Lenin. She didn't like his authoritarianism and instead placed her trust in the spontaneous revolutionary instincts of the masses themselves. She had her qualms about the revolt. She was unsure that the masses were ready for it in Germany. And her skepticism, which didn't prevent her from going along with it, her skepticism, in fact, was fulfilled. Uh, As it turns out, the revolt did not uh, find an answer, an echo in the German working classes more broadly. The revolt failed, and German government troops actually arrested and simply murdered outright the leaders, Luxembourg and Karl Liebknecht. A second communist uprising in March of 1919 also was quelled, failed, as did communist revolts in 1923 in Saxony and Hamburg as well. Far down south in the areas where uh, the Nazis later would be building their strongholds in Bavaria, revolutionary events also were creating a mood of turmoil and very nearly of civil war. In November of 1918, while uh, Germany was caught up in these revolutionary events, the revolutionary socialist Kurt Eisner had declared a socialist state of Bavaria. After he was assassinated by a German nationalist, his associates went the step further of declaring a communist republic of Bavaria in April. This was another reason for hope for the Bolsheviks. The revolt, it seemed to them, was breaking out in Germany. But this revolt, too, was suppressed by government forces in May of 1919. Revolt also broke out in defeated Hungary. The defeated country of Hungary had been imperiled by its neighboring countries, by Czechs, Croatians, Serbs, and Romanians. 
And a Hungarian communist, Bela Kuhn, who had returned from Moscow and following the ideas of the Comintern, proclaimed in this troubled state a Soviet form of government on March 20, 1919. This state only lasted for a few months, but it left a traumatic imprint on Hungarian society. A policy of red terror was instituted by Kuhn's regime, along with a deluge of decrees and laws uh, instituting a communist system, including state ownership of large estates. Finally, outside forces destroyed this regime. On August 1st of 1919, Kuhn was deposed as Romanian forces actually moved in and occupied Budapest. Such revolts uh, in Hungary, as well as elsewhere uh, through Central and Eastern Europe, though unsuccessful, nonetheless had an important effect. They stirred fears among Europe's middle classes and made them more susceptible to the appeal of radical movements promising order. In the long term, fascism would find some of its appeal here. More immediately, white forces in Central and Eastern Europe, as in the Russian Civil War, presented themselves as a force against revolution. Key among these white forces were the German Freikorps mercenaries. Germany's democratic government, in in the first days and weeks and months of its revolutionary regime, had felt forced to employ these mercenaries to suppress challenges from radical socialists from the left and to guard Germany's imperiled borders. The estimates of their numbers are very large. There may have been 200,000, maybe even 400,000 such German Freikorps mercenaries. They put down the Spartacus revolt in Berlin and other uprisings throughout Germany with terrible violence that made them notorious. Some of these Freikorps members who were disgusted at the notion of Germany actually signing the hated Versailles Treaty, in their disgust left Germany to engage in a year-long rampage outside of that country in the newly independent Baltic lands, where they hoped to establish a new German military state outside of Germany's borders before they were finally expelled by December of 1919. And the young Baltic republics regarded afterwards their fight against these freebooters and against the Soviet forces who had invaded as the wars of independence. Among the Freikorps were later members of the Nazi movement, And these included, most notoriously, the future commandant of the death camp of Auschwitz, Rudolf Huss, who in his memoirs described this particular Freikorps fighting and its brutality as a searing moment that changed some of his own dispositions. After the Kuhn regime had been deposed in Hungary, white forces took over there as well. Admiral Miklos Horthy took power in November of 1919 and instituted a policy called white terror in retribution against the revolutionary movement of earlier. Within Germany itself, the members of the Freikorps had a longer afterlife as well. and They contributed a lot to the dismaying level of violence that was present in the politics of this embattled democracy, especially in the form of death squads. After the Freikorps had been disbanded, once the initial crisis had passed, Freikorps members often organized secret terrorist groups who contributed to the atmosphere of political violence that was the order of the day in the Weimar Republic. They joined the failed cop uh, putsch, or coup attempt, in 1920, which sought to create a military dictatorship in Germany. Afterwards, they formed murder squads who deliberately targeted and gunned down democratic politicians who were blamed for Germany's humiliation. 
These included the man who had signed the armistice in November of 1918, Matthias Erzberger, who was gunned down in 1921, and the foreign minister of Germany, Walter Rathenau, that dynamic businessman who had done so much to organize Germany's war effort from 1914. Uh, He was killed in 1922 by such terrorists. At the same time, wars were also raging in Eastern Europe over borders, in particular the Polish-Soviet War. War broke out in the borderlands between Soviet Russia and a revived and expansive Poland, which had moved into Ukrainian territories in the spring of 1920. The Soviets now mounted swift counterattacks, and these were led by General Michal Tukhachevsky. They sought to break through Poland and allow Soviet forces to link up with radical movements in Europe, especially Germany. This tantalizing prospect was called by the Bolsheviks the idea of the Red Bridge to connect to radical German movements uh, and perhaps, as Lenin had dreamed of, create a symbiosis or a fusion of German organization and Bolshevik Russian revolutionary fervor that would transform the world. The Soviet forces, however, were finally halted outside of Warsaw after desperate fighting. And by the Poles, this is called the miracle on the Vistula River, something of a parallel to the miracle of the Marne uh, back in 1914. And ultimately, an uneasy peace was signed in 1921 between the Bolsheviks and an independent Poland. But conflicts continued in Eastern Europe. In, In a key example, the city of Vilnius, which today is the capital of Lithuania, was claimed both by Poland and Lithuania. When Polish forces took it in 1920, this embittered relations between the two countries for the entire interwar period. Uh, To the south, Poland also came into conflict with the new state of Czechoslovakia over the area of Teschen that both sides claimed. The thing to keep in mind about these territorial conflicts in Eastern Europe between newly independent nation states was that these conflicts would ultimately make it very difficult to build collective security arrangements against a revival of aggressive powers either in the East or in the West in the form of Germany in particular. So the plans for a cordon sanitaire that had been key to the French ideas of how Eastern Europe might function in the defense of collective security in Europe as a whole, were ultimately undermined. Interwar Poland's expansive borders also meant that 30% of its population consisted of non-Polish minorities. Piłsudski, who had led the Polish revolutionary military forces, returned to power after a, a period of retirement in 1926 in a coup and became dictator of the Polish state, uh, indicative of a larger turning away from democracy uh, across Europe at this time, after an initial democratic wave. Finally, an event that is often forgotten in European history today was of great significance. This was the Greek-Turkish War. Turkish nationalists had reacted fiercely and with total rejection to the 1920 Treaty of Sèvres that had been part of the Paris settlement imposed by the Allies. The nationalist resistance to the Turkish government, as well as the Allied occupation, was led by Mustafa Kemal, who came later to be known as Ataturk, father of the Turks. He earlier had been one of the young Turks defending Gallipoli. Now he presented himself as the leader of the national movement. At the same time, in 1919, Greek armies had invaded Turkey to fulfill what was called by Greek nationalists the Megali idea. That's to say the great idea of a greater Greece, not only in the Balkans, but spanning the Mediterranean and Asia Minor as well. 
By 1921, that Greek campaign had turned into a disaster as Turkish nationalists mobilized against it. The treaty that finally resolved, and I use the word ironically, resolved these conflicts, came in 1923, the Treaty of Lausanne. Greece and Turkey agreed on the compulsory exchange of populations of their respective ethnicities. And the result was a huge uprooting of people. Some 400,000 Muslims were removed from Macedonia and sent to Turkey, regardless of whether they were uh, uh, Turkish, in fact, or whether they even wanted to move. Likewise, 1.3 million Greek Christians from Anatolia and Asia Minor, the Turkish lands now, were sent to Greece in return. Although this operation took place under international supervision, nonetheless, it was marked by massacres and ethnic cleansing. Yet the notion that what was called sort of euphemistically population transfer could be a solution to political problems was later hailed by European politicians as a successful model of problem-solving. This would have ominous results, as later deportations and ethnic cleansings of the 20th century would often be justified with reference to the Treaty of Lausanne. In the Treaty of Lausanne, earlier promises of autonomy for Kurds and for Armenians in the former Ottoman Empire were now dropped from the agenda and their claims forgotten. And to this very day, the Kurds remain the largest ethnic group without a nation-state of its own, um, and many of the problems of the Middle East clearly have their origins here as well. In the Irish case, the Irish War of Independence also flowed naturally from the First World War, as the Irish Republican Army, using a guerrilla warfare led by Michael Collins, fought against British irregular forces that were called Black and Tans, in many cases resembling the German Freikorps, and very notorious for their atrocities as well. The war led ultimately to the establishment of an Irish free state of the southern counties of Ireland, not including the north. And nationalist dissatisfaction with this outcome led to an Irish civil war between the Irish Republican army and the forces of the free state. Europe itself more generally was on the move. With the collapse of empires and the drawing of new borders that we've described, 20 million people found themselves suddenly as ethnic minorities in the new Europe. Refugees fled the continuing conflict in enormous masses. It's estimated that 1.75 million Russians fled westward in order to escape the turmoil of the Russian Civil War. And in these times, if you visited Paris at precisely in these years, uh, you were perhaps likely to have uh, the door held for you by a doorman who was a former general of the Russian army. Your taxi driver might very well be a Russian aristocrat. Stateless people such as this were castaways without clearly defined rights in the newly redrawn Europe. And the philosopher Hannah Arendt, who was a keen observer of the 20th century, later argued that this was the beginning of the century of the refugee or the displaced person. At the same time, many of these post-war conflicts were later forgotten or lost from collective memory. But these brutal aftershocks would contribute to the slide into another abyss of the Second World War. A more immediate question of how to remember the Great War itself we'll consider in our next lecture. Lecture 34, Monuments, Memory, and Myths.
In our previous lecture, we had discussed the aftershocks of the war, the series of armed conflicts that continued even after the Great War had ended. In this lecture, we'll consider another very difficult and wrenching issue, the echoes of the war that grew out of the debates and the meditations of people after the Great War about how it should be remembered or memorialized. We'll be examining monuments, memory, and myths created out of the experience of the war. This lecture will follow the ways in which grieving contemporaries grappled with the challenge of somehow giving adequate symbolic expression to a tragic event of the enormous magnitude of the Great War, to express their suffering, their grief, their sense of what it, it all had been for if the war had had any purpose at all. And indeed, vigorous and very painful debates would take place in all of the societies that had experienced the Great War surrounding the question of adequate memorials or monuments to the millions of the fallen, as well as to the efforts of the nation as a whole. But there were key questions here that needed to be confronted. What was to be memorialized about the war? What, if anything, deserved to be celebrated from that conflict? What precisely were the lessons of the war, of the ordeal that it had represented? What role should veterans play in this post-war world as they returned from the trenches to what now many hoped would be normalcy at last? In this lecture, we'll analyze the monuments of Verdun and other battlefields, the ritual that was developed or invented at this time of the unknown soldier, the formation of veterans' organizations, and also the dangerous growing power of resentful conclusions in nations that were unreconciled to how the war had ended. We'll look at the stab-in-the-back legend as it grew in force in defeated Germany. We'll examine the notions of the mutilated victory in an Italy which had belonged to the side of the victors but felt itself to have lost the war, in a sense. First, let's turn to examine the dilemmas of remembrance, of how to try to seek to enshrine the war in collective memory. Attempts to deal with the many social and economic repercussions of the war once the war had ended were inevitably accompanied by the problem of how to remember that war and how to conclude its meaning and its ultimate significance for the society. Even the act of physical reconstruction, say the rebuilding of shattered villages in, in East Prussia, in Germany, or in northern France or in Belgium, even that rebuilding itself posed the question of what sort of future should now be growing out of the realities that the war had helped create. In certain destroyed areas of the Western Front in particular, for instance, uh, around the titanic battlefield of Verdun, some villages were actually never rebuilt. The landscape itself had been poisoned and scarred. Uh, the landscape uh, was pitted with shell craters, and farmers who returned to the earlier lands that they had cultivated discovered that they were full of dangerous, unexploded shells. Uh, and it's really a testimony to the, the determination uh, and the sense of rootedness of some of these farmers that in spite of these dangers, uh, they nonetheless carefully moved shells off their land and sought to cultivate even these blasted and devastated areas. Another key question, which very vividly encapsulated this problem of memorialization, was that of what monuments might be set up to this war. 
there was, for many people, a sense that human traditions of of older monuments and the iconography was perhaps not even adequate to the task of remembering the war. And some latched onto a particular, it seemed, uh, natural symbol uh, that was present in the battlefields themselves as maybe capable of expressing something of the the tragic scale of the conflict. Uh, And these are flowers that are still associated with the First World War today and its memory they're poppies, the poppies of Flanders fields with their blood red color. Um, it's sometimes pointed out that Americans who are familiar with California poppies that are often orange or yellow don't, can't fully appreciate the, the, the tremendous symbolic significance of the blood red of European, uh, northern European poppies. Uh, but nonetheless, even these red poppies in, in America today, for instance, uh, are a symbol of Veterans Day celebrated on November 11th when the armistice had been signed as well. But beyond the enshrining of a natural symbol like the poppy growing over these bloodied grounds and and representing the soldiers in some sense uh, uh, returning to nature, at the same time, vigorous debates were also continuing about what messages to include in the monuments that were built, the memorials that were set up. And indeed, many smaller monuments were set up throughout All of those many localities, some close to the fronts, some very distant from the fronts, which the war had touched. Some of these smaller monuments can still be seen today, though they're often in forgotten or obscure locations of cities within Western civilization or towns. So from uh, a city like Knoxville, Tennessee, all the way to small French villages, the statue of the soldier is a universal site uh, was uh, an attempt to keep present in memory of these smaller localities the enormity of this worldwide conflict. In workplaces, in factories, or in schools and universities, tablets were often set up in which the names of the fallen, who had some personal tie to the workplaces or the universities, were drawn up in order to keep their names alive as well. And it became a tradition uh, especially in France, in the smaller towns, that names of the fallen would be read off one after another, often by the children of these localities, once again on November 11th, on Armistice Day, uh, to memorialize their sacrifice. And after each name was read off, it would be followed by an incantation, dead for France. In the United States, a movement which set itself off from other European traditions of memorialization and whose artifacts are still with us today, urged the creation of useful monuments, as they were called at the time, which wouldn't simply be a celebration of the martial valor of the soldiers who had fought, that was to be recognized as well, but which would also serve some larger social purpose, the building of a better society. So auditoriums or stadiums or community centers were sometimes seen as the most suitable form for memorializing the war, and many of them are still present in American cities. A fascinating ritual that grew out of the war experience and in some sense was invented as a way of meeting this challenge of how to memorialize the sacrifices of of so many millions was the ritual surrounding the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. This invented ritual began with Armistice Day of 1920. So already at the remove of two years from the conflict itself, 
the notion of entombing an unknown body, a, a soldier whose body couldn't be recognized, identified, and returned to a particular family, but nonetheless somehow expressed all of the nameless sacrifices of the war, was elaborated, was invented. And this invented ritual carried, obviously, a very strong democratic message. The person to be memorialized was perhaps of an officer's rank, probably more likely of the rank of an ordinary soldier. The person who was to be memorialized was not of any particular family or region from the nation, but could be from anywhere. And in that sense, what was being celebrated was the triumph of a certain democratic impulse and the spirit of sacrifice. In France, in particular, this ritual was crafted with massively elaborate uh, symbolic significance. In France, an identif- unidentified body uh, was uh, selected from each of the nine major war zones uh, that had uh, represented the front lines on the Western Front. And these bodies were ceremonially brought to Verdun, which stood in for the, the tremendous clashes of the war itself. The bodies then were set up in, in caskets within the crypt of the fortress of Verdun that the Germans hadn't taken. And there, a wounded sergeant who had fought in the war was brought forward at random uh, through intuition, through his own choice, to designate one of those bodies as the embodiment of the unknown French soldier. The body was then ceremonially in a procession, the one that had been chosen, was taken from Verdun to Paris. And there in Paris, it lay in state. Vigils and symbolic processions were organized around the casket of the unknown soldier. And then in a procession, which was led by disabled soldiers of the First World War, who also had sacrificed in this cause, as well as a symbolic family, that's to say a a group of people who had been gathered at random to stand in for the family of this unknown soldier, who themselves had lost family members, were part of this larger ritual. And the body then was, as a result of this long, ceremonially laden, nationally significant procession, brought to a key site of French nationalism, the Arc de Triomphe in Paris itself. And the body was laid to rest where it remains today with an eternal flame flickering nearby to mark the sacrifice. A different ritual was crafted in Britain around the same concept of the unknown soldier. The unknown soldier that the British had chosen was buried in Westminster Abbey, which represented really a pantheon of British notables, of of great creators of culture, and of political leaders. And this, too, was surrounded by ritual. Uh, The one detail that really, to, to me, I think is very resonant was that included in the a burial itself of this unknown soldier was a crusader sword that was added to these remains. And the very notion that there was some linkage between the holy wars of the Middle Ages and this crusade for civilization or crusade for the survival of the Allied side was very vividly represented here. One year later, borrowing this set of images in 1921, the United States also followed suit with a burial of an unknown American soldier in Arlington National Cemetery. And this remains a very important 
um, touchstone, I think, of, of the American memory of war. At the same time, the battlefields themselves took on the quality of sacred ground. And precisely because of its, its epic stature, the battlefields of Verdun, uh, uh, this disastrous battle of attrition in 1916, took on enormous significance for the French in particular. And a certain, uh, a certain myth came to surround the entire experience of the battlefield itself. In 1919, a trench was discovered uh, near Fort Douaumont in Verdun. And what made this trench special was that as those who were surveying the ground looked more closely at the trench, they saw an entire row of bayonets sticking straight up out of the ground. When they dug underneath these bayonets, they discovered the bodies of French soldiers. And soon uh, an entire legend grew up around this experience, around this discovery. The legend suggested that here, French soldiers, under the storm of steel and the, the enormous shelling, and perhaps even the gas attacks that the Germans were mounting against Verdun, French troops had stood to the last, even as they were perhaps buried alive in their defense of Verdun. Uh, a monument that can still be visited today was erected to the Bayonet Trench, as it came to be called, and can still be seen today. And even though doubts were raised at the time, and uh, historians today are more prone to believe that, in fact, uh, uh, French troops that had been killed there were buried and bayonets stuck in, perhaps by German forces, to mark where these soldiers uh, had been laid to rest. Nonetheless, very clearly, the story had captured the public imagination. Also at Verdun, an enormous monument was built with tremendous symbolic charge to commemorate the battle and the slaughter that had taken place there. This monument was known as the ossuary, which means a collection of remains. The ossuary, still to be seen today, was built with donations that flooded in uh, from around the world to house the remains that were constantly being gathered in from the battlefields of Verdun and still are being discovered today. Uh, it's an uncanny sight. Uh, the ossuary itself, uh, when you walk in, has crypt-like interior, and there are noted the names of, of the fallen uh, uh, who are not recognized but are known to have fallen at the Battle of Verdun. And underneath all of this are chambers in which bones upon bones and skulls upon skulls have been gathered it's estimated that the remains of some 130,000 soldiers have been gathered, German and French alike, into this ossuary and uh, are still being gathered from the battlefields to this very day. In Germany, uh, representing the Central Powers, German war graves, by contrast, took on a very different emphasis and significance. Most of the war had been fought beyond Germany's borders, and that's where many German war cemeteries remained. The German answer to memorializing some of this sacrifice was a particular institution called Totenburgen. These were so-called castles of the dead, where in the form of a medieval castle, representing in some extended sense the Burgfrieden or the domestic truce that allegedly had united all Germans back in 1914, so too here these medieval castle-like forms were uh, intended to memorialize the larger cemeteries in which they were located. And in particular, one huge such monument was built at Tannenberg in East Prussia 
to memorialize the fallen of that enormous battle, the greatest victory of the First World War uh, against oncoming Russian forces in 1914. Uh, The Germans there, too, buried 20 unknown soldiers, and the castle-like structure of Tannenberg, where the Nazis later buried Hindenburg, the hero of the, of the First World War after he had died, became a nationalist site of pilgrimage. And there, rather than having uh, celebrations that memorialized the sacrifices of the dead and kept their memory alive, there was another added message to the nationalist celebrations that took place there, a condemnation of the Treaty of Versailles and a condemnation of the present German democratic government. This was to have ominous significance in the unstable German experiment with democracy. Tours were also organized to the battlefields, uh, and indeed some of these tours still exist today and can be taken by visitors to these sites, in order to allow visitors and very poignantly family members of those who had died there to see the reality as it still remained of the conflict. Visitors who traveled to these areas could and can still observe the surreal sight of destroyed landscapes. But at the same time, there was a certain pathos as those destroyed landscapes with time started to uh, revert to nature, and nature itself began to efface the war wounds that had been carved on the land itself, a process that's still going on. Uh, American mothers were taken on tours that were called Gold Star Mother Tours. Uh, If they had had a, a son lost in the conflict, Uh, Their uh, trips to see the battlefields in northern France and Belgium were uh, uh, organized as well because the U.S. government had urged that fallen soldiers' bodies remain in France uh, as a vivid symbol of their memory. Uh, There's an especially heart-wrenching and ugly detail to, uh, to note about these Gold Star mother tours from the United States. Tragically, the tours of bereaved mothers were racially segregated as the mothers of African-American soldiers were uh, shunted off into separate tours. Uh, As American society was racially divided, so too was memory. Memory was an enormously conflicted and tortured phenomenon. The personal memory counted most of all. Countless survivors of the war bore unspeakable memories afterwards, which they might be able to talk about or perhaps not. And throughout society as a whole, for those who had lived through it, whether they had fought on the battlefield or had been civilians affected by it, the Great War, as it was called by contemporaries, was a generational reference point and a watershed, a clear before and after in their existence and the existence of their society. And to my grandparents' generation, for instance, one spoke simply of the war. And even people who later experienced the Second World War, the war still represented a watershed in their personal experience and lives. Family lives were affected by the traumas of war in a multitude of ways, and divorce rates climbed immediately after the conflict itself as probably a testimony to the tensions and the the personal ordeal of the conflict and dealing with it afterwards. It's simply impossible to even offer a, a quantification or an estimate of how many participants in the war remained psychologically scarred afterwards. Estimates do suggest, simply statistically, that probably every family in Europe had lost a relative or a friend. And then, too, as vivid and visible reminders of the sacrifices of the war were the disabled. The war left maimed soldiers with shattered lives and shattered bodies. 
Some quarter of a million British soldiers, for instance, had limbs totally or partially amputated. And in such cases, there would be no return to a normal, normal existence, a normality. For years and decades afterwards, war invalids were readily visible in Europe as part of the social landscape and as a reminder. And these generations of the First World War and the Second World War are passing from the scene and something changes in that regard. Soldiers who had shattered faces or mutilated uh, visages sometimes preferred to live their lives out in secluded hospitals out of sight, but there were tragic cases of soldiers whose own children were horrified by their changed appearance, despairing and committing suicide. Such veterans, whether they were wounded or not, set about organizing some sense of solidarity and, and unity out of their shared experience in veterans' organizations. In most countries, veterans' organizations form to encourage recognition of soldiers' sacrifices, to recall their ordeal, and also to advance their interpretation as the men who had fought in the battles of the larger meaning of the war itself. A key example was the American Legion, which was formed in 1919 in Paris in the immediate aftermath of the war, which promoted Armistice Day in the United States as a national holiday, November 11th. In Germany, by contrast, the picture also took on some worrying uh, political polarization. In Germany, the Stahlhelm organization, and that literally means the steel helmet, uh, the, the embodiment of the, the participation of soldiers in this anonymous form of, of material and total war, the Stahlhelm organization sympathized with nationalist and right-wing politics and often was unenthusiastic about the German democracy. At the same time, other veterans who didn't share this political orientation organized themselves into other organizations. There were communist veterans' organizations, social democratic ones, and German-Jewish veterans' organizations that were also active. Creatively, in art and literature, artists felt that they had to grapple with the meaning of the war. Some came to feel that only the fragmented perspective, the disjointed nature of modernist art, could convey the experience of the war most realistically and what it had shown about human nature and the real human condition. The German painters Otto Dix and Georg Grosch, for instance, unflinchingly drew on their own experience as soldiers to depict the war as it had existed and its post-war human toll. They returned repeatedly to one figure that for them was a central image of the war's aftermath, the figure of the mutilated veteran begging in the street. This could be a soldier on crutches or on a little cart if his legs had been torn away, uh, who often as not might very well be bearing the medals or the decorations of a grateful fatherland that in this respect was no longer providing for him. War poems that emerged during the war itself as well as afterwards were various in their understandings of what the war meant. They could range from patriotic messages of involvement uh, such as those of Rupert Brooke, who was killed at the start of the war, and the poems took on a, a special tragic significance, all the way to absolute disillusionment and fury at the senselessness of the bloodletting of the war. The poems of Siegfried Sasson, of Robert Graves, or of Wilfred Owen, whose work also, in his, his rejection of the war, took on a special significance and, and tragic magnitude when one keeps in mind that he was killed in the very last days of the war, just before the armistice itself. Though he had not been a soldier himself, the great poet T.S. Eliot wrote in The Wasteland um, 
essentially a manifesto of a civilization that he felt was shattered. And he tried to, as it were, gather together fragments from what earlier had been a civilization and place them next to one another in this disjointed and and often mysterious poem uh, that tried to capture uh, some chance of reconstructing European civilization. Fascinatingly enough, war literature itself came in waves. It took about 10 years for uh, the writers who were summing up their experience of the war to fully ripen their vision and to write out their experience. And so 10 years roughly after the war, in 1929, both Eric Maria Remarque's passionate work, All Quiet on the Western Front, as well as Robert Graves' Goodbye to All That, as well as a wave of uh, an entire flood of further memoirs and novels were unleashed in almost a cathartic way uh, by uh, such works. A fascinating debate is still raging among historians about the true nature of the cultural impact of the war. And this debate, um, essentially, is about whether the war was a decisive break, whether it represented a, a, a watershed in the culture of Western civilization, or whether instead continuities are more important. Now, we've mentioned several times in earlier lectures the provocative thesis of the literary historian Paul Fussell, who argues that even the language itself was changed by the shattering experience of the world of the trenches, that words like honor or duty could never again be spoken in the way that they were before 1914, that they would never lose an ironic tinge that they had acquired for a disillusioned lost generation. This thesis is, in fact, uh, disputed by other historians. And in particular, the historian Jay Winter maintains, by contrast, in an equally provocative thesis, that despite all of those novelties of modernism in high culture and high art, continuities and tradition remained important to ordinary people, contradicting the idea of a real gulf in culture and an experience. Uh, he argues that older forms, older rituals, older language was still used to describe and try to deal with the experience of the First World War. In fact, the horrors of the Second World War, he argues, would be the real break when experience no longer could be matched in language. The thought, the intellectual history of Western civilization was clearly affected by the experience of the war. Uh, for psychologist Sigmund Freud, in what remained of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the war had revealed a destructive death drive that was a part of human nature along with the erotic drive. In politics, the revelation of what total war was like had to somehow be analyzed and understood. Once total war had been practiced, it couldn't be unthought or unknown. For many, the revelation of the full horrors of total war meant that war had to be abolished forever. And much of the enthusiasm for the collective security ideas of the League of Nations that the Versailles Treaty had tried to enshrine drew its fervor from this rejection of war. A common slogan of the time, unfortunately not realized, was never again war as the principal lesson of the Great War. For others, for aggressive minorities, the model of total mobilization, on the contrary, was attractive, and they endorsed a militarized politics for the future. Let's turn to examine a fascinating topic of the myths that grew out of the war. One of these myths was the occult myth of the return of the dead. And this could be enshrined in, in, in films or in literature as a, a literal coming back from the dead, the resurrected, 
of the dead of the conflict itself, a, a, a theme that turns up often in literature and art of the post-war period. But it could also have a sense not of a literal resurrection, but the voices of those who had died speaking to the present. A wave of fascination arose for the occult, for so-called spirit photography, which tried to to see another reality behind uh, the grieving reality of the present, uh, and seances and other aspects of the paranormal. Now, much of this was motivated out of a sincere and wrenching desire to establish communication with those whom one grieved for. But there were certainly many charlatans taking advantage of this societal grief. To many, the paranormal seemed to offer a way of coping with unbearable losses, hoping for some connection to those who had fallen. Another myth that grew out of the war experience, which was to have enormous poisonous significance, was the stab-in-the-back legend in Germany, called the Dolchstoßlegende in German. In Germany, a myth that already had been circulating during the war itself uh, took on vast new significance. And that was the notion that the German armies had never been defeated on the battlefield. On the contrary, Germany had lost the war because the army had been stabbed in the back from behind by treacherous elements on the home front. This notion of German troops not having lost the war, in fact, contradicted the experience of German soldiers who had, on the battlefield, seen for themselves the massive disproportion of the materiel, the industrial might that the Allies could bring to bear. And some historians have intuited that it may very well be shame over the phenomenon of desertion in the last stages of the war itself that led some German veterans to, as it were, shut out of their minds what they had known back in 1918 about really losing the war in order to argue instead that, well, they were innocent precisely because someone else was guilty. Public hearings on why Germany had collapsed gave sort of a ratification to this myth of the war's uh, um, ending as a result of a stab in the back, And General Hindenburg himself, who had much to do with the uh, fateful end of the war and defeat, had himself underlined and and subscribed to this myth itself. It would be taken up by the young Nazi party and used to propaganda effect. Moreover, throughout Europe, disappointed territorial demands or the feeling that lost territories still belong to an incomplete nation became the focus of nationalist agitation under the name of irredenta, it's an Italian term for unredeemed territories. There was a bitter significance to all of this because the First World War, to some extent, had started over irredenta of one or a nationalist group, uh, one or another nationalist group in the Balkans. Now the World War had ended with more territorial demands. Uh, A key example of this came in 1919 when the Italian romantic poet D'Annunzio led a raid to capture the contested port of Trieste in protest at the outcome of the war. And his gesture was much admired and provoked emulation in the future as dictators would seek to engage in just such bold moves in politics. Finally, there was the myth of the new man. In many countries, the myth of the new man argued that out of the storms of steel of industrial war, a new model of heroism had been forged and an ethos of toughness and a model for social unity. Advocates of militarized politics, some of them former veterans, proposed what they called a trenchocracy with a special leading role for veterans of the war. This was a lesson that would be taken up by growing dictatorships. From this militarized politics and these myths, 
We then turn to the topic of the rise of mass dictatorships to be considered in our next lecture. Lecture 35, The Rise of the Mass Dictatorships. In this lecture, we'll be considering one of the especially troubling aftermath results of the conflict of the Great War, and that is to say the rise of the mass dictatorships. The First World War very vividly showed the massive power that could be organized and mobilized by a state as it prepared for war. In the chaotic aftermath of the Great War, and especially in those areas that had been most unsettled by the war's conclusion, where in some sense uh, there was still a sense that the war itself was continuing in its after-effects, there arose ideological mass movements which drew inspiration from the model of totally mobilized societies. And then they sought to recreate that state of mobilization. These totalitarian movements included Benito Mussolini's fascism in Italy, Adolf Hitler's Nazism in Germany, and the communism of Lenin and Stalin in the Soviet Union. This lecture will reveal how strongly the imprint of the First World War's experience shaped these mass dictatorships and their mental horizons. Indeed, these regimes saw politics as war and war as politics. All of this set them on a tragic course to repeat disaster in the form of the Second World War. Indeed, some analysts have spoken of a totalitarian wave that but shortly after the First World War, begins to sweep through Western civilization. At first, there have been the encouraging signs which seem to fulfill so many of the hopes of Woodrow Wilson for a new democratic world order. There have been signs of a, a wave of democracies taking over in the immediate aftermath of the First World War. But these then, many of them, were in short order replaced by a wave of dictatorships that were, many of them, totalitarian in their aspirations. That means seeking to capture all of the individuals under their control, not merely wanting passive acquiescence, but something far larger, enthusiastic participation, heart, mind, body, and soul. This trend, in fact, towards dictatorship predated the Great Depression uh, of, the, of 1929 and the 1930s. Very clearly, however, economic crisis would later play a role in speeding this development of the wave of dictatorships. The experience of total war had clearly helped shape the ambition for total rule. The vision of a state able to completely mobilize the societies under its control was most certainly an appealing one for these dictators. We should take a moment to address uh, and define a little more in detail the whole notion, the concept of totalitarianism. Totalitarianism is a term used to describe modern dictatorships that differ from the many earlier tyrannies there have been, unfortunately, through human history. What made these modern dictatorships new was not only their use of technology, though that was important as well as a means of control, but their aims as well. The aim distinguishing them from earlier tyrannies of trying to totally control the individual and the society. Not by compulsion alone, but by a combination of, on the one hand, terror, inspiring fear, 
in order to gain obedience. And on the other side, the other side of the coin, as it were, ideological faith and true belief, a combination of fear as well as conviction. The term itself uh, had a very interesting origin. In 1923, the term had been used by a journalist who was critical of the Italian fascists. And he, he used the word totalitarian to sum up everything he didn't like about the fascists and why he found them so very worrying. Uh, but when the fascists themselves read this polemical journalism, they actually liked the phrase and thought it captured their agenda well and began to use it about themselves. A theoretical model of totalitarian regimes and how they function was best articulated by the controversial German-Jewish philosopher Hannah Arendt, who was one of uh, the German Jews who escaped uh, the uh, Nazi regime as it was being found and came to the United States as part of that brain drain that so enriched American intellectual and cultural life uh, as well. Her study, published in 1951, entitled The Origins of Totalitarianism, is a very significant attempt to capture something distinctive about the violent trajectory of the 20th century. Uh, It's my personal conviction uh, that this work, um, debatable and controversial as it is, will likely be read hundreds of years from now to try to understand what was going on in the 20th century. This work of Arendt's, Origins of Totalitarianism, argued that even ideologically opposed regimes that might be each other's mortal enemies, like Nazi Germany and the Communist Soviet Union, nonetheless, in spite of the differences of ideological message and faith, had certain structural similarities and shared internal dynamics that, in spite of all the other differences, tended to give them a common identity as totalitarian regimes. Similarities that Hannah Arendt pointed out as being shared across regimes included the cult of a leader, the strong leader with whom the movement itself was identified, dynamic claims of ideological infallibility that were made by these regimes and that animated them to constant motion, in part to make their prophecies come true. This constant motion, moreover, had not limited goals, as might have been the case in traditional politics of the 19th century. Instead, their goals were universal. Their ideologies in and of themselves drove them to the final goal of world domination. They also were said to share the prolific use of violence to fulfill their ideological prophecies. They also were marked by the institution of the concentration camp, which was essentially a microcosm or a laboratory of what total perfected totalitarian rule would look like. The regimes shared hierarchies of believers and elites. They shared institutions of the secret police as a crucial way of exercising terror within a society made up of atomized masses of individuals lonely in the crowd who were ever more susceptible to the ideological claims and demands of the movement. And then finally, more an epiphenomenon, Hannah Arendt pointed to something which other contemporaries had noticed at the time, the very fact that the monumental art dwarfing the individual and the propaganda of these ideological regimes uh, bore similarities as well. Now, very clearly, World War I had played an important role here. It had shaken 19th century liberal society very badly. And the very ambition of total mobilization for total war made clear that there was a certain linkage there, a certain 
inner logic to the extension of these ideas into totalitarianism. The very totality was a key aspect here, and it's a, a theme we've been following throughout these lectures as well. It has to be pointed out that the theoretical model of totalitarianism, in its full elaboration by Hannah Arendt, as well as others, still remains controversial and has been controversial ever since she articulated it. After the 1960s in particular, in American intellectual life, some considered the very idea of totalitarianism, the concept, as really an artifact of Cold War rhetoric. They charged that it unfairly identified uh, what were claimed to be common phenomena between the Soviet Union and the now-defeated power Nazi Germany. Some of these critics of totalitarianism argued that the very concept was unsuited to grasp the many ambiguities, the many shades of gray of what everyday life under a dictatorship was like, arguing that the total control was never ultimately achieved. After the 1990s, however, something really remarkable happened. The term itself enjoyed a revival. It was endorsed by many Eastern European thinkers who had been liberated from communism as a reflection of their own experience under dictatorship. And even if total control had not been achieved, nonetheless, the impulse, the ambition to capture the totality of a human being and the society of which that individual was a part seemed to them to capture something of their own lived experience. Now, apart from the argument, a theoretical argument, on the merits of this theoretical model, it nonetheless seems that the emphasis on the total claims and the ambition or the intent to totally dominate and totally mobilize a society nonetheless does indeed capture some important quality of these regimes and also indicates their linkage to the earlier total war, the Great War. Let's turn first to examine the case of Mussolini's fascist Italy. And it should be pointed out here that Hannah Arendt was skeptical about whether Mussolini's fascism ultimately represented a true example of the phenomenon of totalitarianism. Italy seemed to her to be still on too small a scale to have the true sort of mass potential and anonymity of people in crowds that she felt was crucially necessary for totalitarianism to function. Nonetheless, obviously, the fascist model would go on to be a very important one uh, for other dictatorships. The war veteran Benito Mussolini, the future dictator, after the war's end, continued to follow the ideal of trenchocracy, an organized political movement in which the experience of the trenches and, and the wonderful fusion of community that allegedly had happened there during the war uh, was a project that he found very attractive. This produced a new political movement, which came to be called fascism. Fascism drew upon the perceived lessons of World War I and sought to fuse revolutionary ideas with nationalism. Uh, Mussolini, after all, had been earlier a socialist. Italy was in a volatile state after the close of the First World War. The peace had been disappointing to many Italian nationals. They felt that uh, a mutilated peace was the best way to describe this phenomenon, the way in which Italian hopes of, of a vast colonial empire and vast holdings around the Mediterranean had been disappointed. There was often also labor unrest in the form of large-scale strikes. There was rural conflict out in the countryside over land reform, and Italy was marked by a succession of weak governments. 
It was in this context that Mussolini as a revolutionary sought to use this crisis. In March of 1919, in Milan, Mussolini organized groups of like-minded, often former soldiers, uh, which came to be called Fasci de Combattimento, which might be translated as combat squads or combat groups. In Italian, moreover, the word fascio had a very rich significance. Fascio means league, on the one hand, or a grouping, a unit, but it's also the name of an ancient Roman symbol of state unity. Uh, incidentally, a, a symbol that can be seen on many older American monuments uh, uh, and government buildings as well. This symbol of state unity was an axe surrounded by a bundle of sticks. And what the symbol tried to convey was that one stick alone, that can easily be broken. It can simply be smashed over one's knee. But a bundle of sticks tied together and fused into a greater unity has enormous strength and can't be broken. What fascism meant was not entirely clear. This remained vague. And in our own times, fascism uh, turned into simply a, a blanket term of abuse uh, for uh, the opposition politically. Nonetheless, it's worthwhile to stop and think about how fascism as an idea was presented and how it evolved. Uh, Mussolini, who was anything other than a modest man, at one point was asked, uh, Signore Mussolini, how do you define fascism? And he answered, me. Well, that's obviously not an adequate political theory. Fascism, we might abstract from his irrational answers, uh, in fact, had certain core ideas. Fascism praised action. It wasn't a, a, a rational philosophy and instead praised irrational values like action, vigor, dynamism, and violence. It also praised a powerful leader, and obviously Mussolini had himself in mind. It praised a strong and warlike state to which the individual would be subordinated. Not as in liberal philosophy, the individual served by the state, but rather the individual there for the state to dispose of. Fascism also praised the notion of corporatism, that's to say gathering people into larger unities and subsuming the individual in an organic form of organization. Because of the vigor and the dynamism of imperialism, the conquest of foreign peoples, fascism praised this as well. And finally, and this grows by a certain internal logic out of these irrational ideas, fascism also praised war as hygiene, adventure, and the true test of a state and a people. The black-shirted fascist squads, which often incorporated former stormtroopers of the Italian army, those who had been known as the Arditi, the, the fearless ones, roamed the streets and engaged in really a form of political civil war by brutalizing and murdering their opponents, socialists, communists, others in the streets of Italy. Mussolini now presented himself as a savior for the chaos that was besetting Italy. Uh, he wasn't pointed out that the fascists were helping to create much of that chaos. Claiming that he was forestalling or getting up in front of a coming communist takeover, Mussolini, in October of 1922, led his fascist squads on a march on Rome. And in this respect, he was actually drawing inspiration from the, the bold seizure of the city of Trieste by the Italian nationalist poet D'Annunzio in the immediate aftermath of the First World War. There was a direct line in this sort of nationalist adventuring. 
Mussolini's black-shirted fascist squads descended on Rome in this carefully staged public relations event, the March on Rome, and took power. The reality was actually that behind the scenes, through negotiation and through backroom dealings, a transfer of power had already been negotiated with conservative elites. But it added to Mussolini's charisma, he felt, to present this as a, uh, as a bold stroke of violent statesmanship. Once in power, Mussolini solidified his fascist dictatorship. He started to ready the Italian people for wars of conquest, uh, to move them out of what he felt was their comfortable existence and to restore the glories of ancient Rome. And Mussolini, for all of these reasons, was often admired and emulated by many would-be dictators in Europe as well as elsewhere. The, the first key example of what came to be a wave of imitations and dictatorships. Among those whom we might call, in some sense, pupils at the feet of Mussolini in how to become a dictator was an obscure, initially, uh, veteran of the First World War, Adolf Hitler. He was definitely among Mussolini's admirers. A key question that historians debate theoretically still today is whether Nazism which evolves out of the movement that Hitler spearheads, whether Nazism is best understood as drawing its inspiration from fascism and indeed being a subcategory of fascism, or whether, on the contrary, Nazism drew its inspiration from aspects of fascism but evolved into something entirely separate and distinct, uh, unique in, for instance, its uh, far more... Uh, uh, ardent racism than Italian fascism initially had been. Uh, the concept of there being one overarching principle called fascism was one that many Marxists subscribed to. Uh, they, In their analysis, they saw both fascism and Nazism as the ultimate outgrowth of capitalism in its last late desperate stages. Uh, and thus, for instance, uh, their thinking spoke of a war against fascism uh, as being the overarching imperative of the day. Other historians, by contrast, emphasize Nazism as being, while linked to these earlier models of Italian fascism, as being something quite distinctive uh, to Germany and to German history as well. In January of 1919, in southern Germany, in Bavaria, beset by revolutionary movements and turmoil, an obscure party was founded in Munich. It was initially called the German Workers' Party. And its strange name, in part, was the testimony to the ambition of the German nationalists who founded it to reach out to the German working classes. There's an interesting link here to the experience of the later stages of mobilization or remobilization for war within Germany during the First World War itself. Many of those nationalists who were involved in the founding uh, of this party in its initial stages had also played roles in the Fatherland Party uh, of the later stages of World War I. Hitler, at this point, who remained in the army because he felt it was his home, it was a place he felt comfortable in, he visited as a secret observer uh, who had been dispatched by the army. He visited a meeting of the German Workers' Party in September of 1919 and soon became a member. Uh, it's pretty clear that he wasn't supposed to do this as an observer. But he not only became a member, but began to rise through the ranks. Hitler's talents for oratory very clearly played off of the charge and the memory of the First World War. 
He presented himself in many of his most effective speeches as a simple unknown soldier of the Great War. And he brought with him into uh, uh, this, uh, uh, into the German Workers' Party, which had remained unknown, a tremendous capacity and talent for propaganda and oratory. He reshaped the party and renamed it in a way that spoke to its total ambitions. He renamed the German Workers' Party the National Socialist German Workers' Party, uniting terms from the left wing of the spectrum, socialist and workers, with the words national and German in order to create something new and distinctive. In imitation of Mussolini, the new Nazi party, as it was called, not officially, but by uh, some of its enemies, uh, organized squads of brown uniformed thugs called the Sturmabteilung troops, after the very name of the stormtroopers of World War I. And a story suggests that Hitler initially had wanted to have black shirts just like Mussolini, uh, but that, in fact, the military surplus stores were out of them, but there was a sale on brown shirts, so he settled for that. The movement gained attention and maybe even a measure of increased respectability uh, from its position on the lunatic fringes of politics when it started to attract famed figures who had played roles in the First World War. General Ludendorff, an earlier war dictator of Germany, or the famous fighter ace Hermann Göring, who had succeeded to the Red Baron uh, in his fighting squadron. After a failed attempt at revolution in 1923, which broke down into a comic farce, when Hitler tried to imitate the march on Rome, uh, this comic farce was called the Beer Hall Putsch, or coup attempt, Hitler rethought, while serving a short jail sentence, he rethought his tactics and decided that the way to go was a legal route to power, to use democracy to destroy democracy, to enter politics in order to end democratic politics. Nazi propaganda throughout promised a revival of the celebrated inner truce or Burgfrieden of World War I in the form of a racially defined Volksgemeinschaft or people's community, sometimes also translated as racial community of Germans, excluding those who were considered to be outsiders or aliens, in particular German Jews. The Nazis denounced the Versailles Treaty. They enthusiastically endorsed and elaborated on the notion of a stab-in-the-back legend, claiming that treacherous elements on the home front had defeated Germany's armies, not the Allies. And above all, German Jews were blamed for Germany's present problems. The impact of World War I on the Nazis can be vividly traced in many respects. Their hierarchical structure of ranks, their military language, their rituals, their salutes, their uniforms, and most of all, their glorification of war itself. The Great Depression won support for the Nazis' promises of fundamental change, and in January of 1933, Hitler finally came to power in Germany. Hitler prepared for war partly desiring, apparently in his own psychology, a replay of the Great War, but with a different ending, this time ending in a final victory for Germany. But these aims now were further radicalized. The notion of a racial empire in Eastern Europe and massive ethnic cleansing of those territories now was part and parcel of this expanded agenda. Germany itself was to be violently cleansed of alleged impurities to prevent a repetition of the alleged stab in the back. And eventually, not only minorities like the German Jews were to be affected, but also Germans uh, of not Jewish background uh, who were uh, considered to be unfit as specimens of a future master race and euthanasia or killing 
medically supervised killing of these people was among the policies for purification. The Nazi elite was very proud of its ethos of toughness, unsentimental efficiency, and coldness. Not coincidentally, the very same values that had been celebrated in the figure of the stormtroopers of the First World War that they emulated. Paradoxically, Hitler used his own wartime service as a way of reassuring international opinion, uh, which was worried about his attentions and sought to appease some of his appetites by claiming that he, as an unknown soldier of the First World War, knew what war was like and wanted peace above all. He was obviously lying through his teeth because at the same time within Germany, cult-like celebrations of the Battle of Langemark, when in 1914, young German idealists allegedly had gone into battle singing the German national anthem, celebrations of these events emphasized spiritual preparation of the German people for the Second World War yet to come. Finally, we'll conclude by examining Stalin's Soviet Union. The Soviet Union itself had been launched as a project uh, of a new form of society, a new utopia along communist lines as out of the wreckage of the First World War. By 1927, Joseph Stalin had established himself as the heir to Lenin after the initial Bolshevik leader's death in 1924. From the late 1920s to the late 1930s, Stalin set about preparing for an event that he was certain was going to come, and that was a repetition of the Great War. If the First World War in Marxist ideology was a capitalist crisis, a capitalist war, then ultimately, because capitalism had not yet collapsed, another such war was sure to follow. In order to prepare, to gird oneself for this later conflict, and to fend off capitalist challenges, Stalin set about Stalinizing Soviet society. Through the purges of the Great Terror, violent collectivization of the countryside, and forced industrialization of the country, a process of Stalinization that cost millions upon millions of lives. In his campaign, Stalin was able to draw on cadres of supporters. He obviously didn't enact all of this terror himself. He found supporters who shared with him an ethos of realism and self-conscious toughness in pursuit of ideological goals. Historians of this regime argue that this ethos had shaped an entire generation of younger Bolsheviks during the brutal years of the Russian Civil War. And this hardness, this, this valuing of toughness, was also reflected in the militarized language that was to be seen throughout Stalinist propaganda, which spoke of campaigns for development and uh, of enemies within and without who needed to be confronted and of fronts in the battle for progress, the, the front for the battle for food or the front for the battle for industrialization. Such terms were rife throughout the language. In Stalin's ideological perspective, a global war similar to that of World War I, and probably even larger, was on the horizon. It must be approaching. It was part of the internal logic of history itself as capitalism neared its inevitable crisis in its decline and ultimate collapse. And in Stalin's psychology, insofar as one can ever plumb the psychology of a man so, so deeply paranoid and so deeply anxious about his own security and his own stability as the leader of the Soviet Union, his goal seems to have been to stand aside from the coming war. If capitalists would go to war against capitalists once again, as Marxist interpretation had it, the First World War uh, had uh, been a capitalist struggle, so if it were possible, 
the new regime, the, the, the new utopia of the Soviet Union should stand aside, if it could, from that coming war and not get involved. In some sense, this was a repetition of precisely the plan that Lenin had urged in the last stages of World War I. This is the course that he had urged at the negotiations of Brest-Litovsk In 1918, when his skeptical comrades were unsure whether they could accept the very, very harsh terms that Imperial Germany was imposing upon them. Lenin had argued ceaselessly for the accepting even of these harsh terms of a dictated peace at Brest-Litovsk in 1918 because that's what it would take to save the revolution. And moreover, Lenin had assured his comrades, these promises were not permanent the beating that the revolution might take at first would be more than compensated for by the fact that it would emerge as the sole victor from the inevitable collapse of the regimes that were representing capitalism. And thus, ultimately, if the Soviet Union could stand aside from the next coming world war, it might very well find itself, as a result, the great winner, inheriting the earth that had been shattered by capitalist conflict. It was precisely this calculation, this expectation, determined by ideology, of what the future would likely hold, that led Stalin into a bizarre alliance with the man who otherwise would have been his ideological mortal enemy, Hitler, and his Nazi regime. This alliance, which in ideological terms seemed to make no sense to contemporaries at the time, Uh, and which Hannah Rent presented as an example of some of the inner logic of totalitarian regimes, this alliance was known as the Nazi-Soviet Pact of August 1939. The Nazi-Soviet Pact, a non-aggression treaty which also divided up Eastern Europe between these dictatorships, allowed Stalin to feel that he was moving in the direction of being able to stand aside from the coming clash, the coming great war that was sure to follow. In fact, This alliance, which certainly helped Hitler and Stalin together to unleash the Second World War, turned out, from Stalin's perspective, to have been a dangerous miscalculation and mistake. Hitler, after benefiting from this alliance, later attacked his former ally in 1941, and the Second World War would take on a new significance, a new dimension. When the Second World War finally broke out, In September of 1939, its origins were linked to the experience of the First World War. In its violence and its scope, however, it would exceed that very great war that had done so much to shape and prepare the way for it. This question of linkages to the Second World War and linkages most most fundamentally to our own lives and our own times we'll explore in our next lecture. Lecture 36, Legacies of the Great War. In this concluding lecture, we confront the largest and most difficult question of all in our study of the First World War. What was the true meaning, legacy, and overall significance of the Great War? What lessons can be taken away from this? In this lecture, we'll start by examining the structural impact, the economic, social, and political outcomes of the conflict, as well as the individual human impact of this disaster. 
And ultimately, one conclusion powerfully presents itself, inaugurating a cycle of worldwide violence for the rest of the 20th century, as this seminal catastrophe has been called, as it's been called of the 20th century, the First World War represented a true watershed in the devaluation of human life, the downgrading of individuality in favor of larger collective power, especially in the hands of the state, and it created ultimately a surge in our own terrible knowledge of what humans are capable of, as well as a keener sense of the tragic fragility of human progress because we've seen the spectacle of an entire civilization turned against itself. In examining the structural impact in economics, there were fascinating outcomes from the war, as well as certain benefits, paradoxically, to some countries. In the global economy, Europe had come to lose its earlier centrality. It lost markets to other countries and took on debt as well in order to pay the vast costs of a total war. In the process, the United States became the most important trading nation, and it's sometimes been said that in a sense, perhaps the United States was the only victor of the First World War. In a symbolic as well as financial sense, New York became the financial capital of the world, displacing London from this earlier position of honor. In addition, many non-European economies of countries that had been involved in the war or uh, only fueling its economic energies also boomed during the war and cycles of dependency on more developed European economies also were broken uh, by developing countries worldwide. In social terms, the demographic impact of the war was huge, with 9 to 10 million killed and twice that number wounded, many maimed for life. It's estimated that the war, and the, the numbers here are not entirely uh, clear, one has to speculate on this, that the war left some 3 million widows and 10 million orphans as well. There were certainly common anxieties felt in post-war societies about the demographic imbalances between the sexes uh, that were uh, feared and the notion that the very best individuals had been those killed in the war, all of these notions haunted societies. Now, demographic historians have pointed out that the picture that emerges from statistics is a good deal uh, less dramatic. They argue that contrary to the notion of a permanent entire generation missing from the demographic picture and the common images of the time of an entire generation of young women without potential husbands doomed to a life alone, that this, in fact, doesn't match what the statistics tell us about the demographic consequences of the First World War. In fact, they argue that uh, relationships nonetheless presented themselves and that this uh, gap in the demographic statistics uh, over time closed or healed. Nonetheless, what very clearly is being presented here had a certain psychological significance for societies that had such fears or anxieties. And that was the notion that social elites, who earlier would have felt the uh, a sort of noblesse oblige to lead a society, these had been severely damaged by the war itself, and that in some sense a negative selection, as some social Darwinists worried, had taken place as the most idealistic those who were most motivated had gone off to war and had died. At the same time, the conception of women's roles was dramatically altered. Social historians are very careful to point out 
that phenomena like the involvement of women in great numbers in production for war industry, in heavy industrial work in the factories, uh, was often something that was reversed after the war ended, as soldiers whose positions had been filled by women entering these particular branches of industry returned and take, uh, took their jobs back again. Uh, at the same time as this sort of surge into the workforce might have been reversed, one thing again was clear psychologically. The notion of what it was that women were capable of, the roles they could take on, had drastically changed. And one could see this as well in the notion of, finally, the recognition of women's political voice in the right to vote. Politics also clearly had been transformed by the sheer experience of this total war. The power of the state, of governments, what the state was expected to do or seen as able to do, certainly had increased profoundly. And doctrines of classical liberalism, which had emphasized the restraint of the state, the model of a limited state in a constitutional form, were badly damaged as a result of the First World War. The state had been both necessary and had shown what it was capable of. The militarization of politics, moreover, in the style, language, and ideology of mass movements uh, that gained ever greater currency in the post-war period had also resulted from the experience of war itself. The international balance of power was also affected by the war and its outcome. Uh, In a negative sense, in fact. In terms of geopolitics, the war had not resolved what many contemporaries saw as the fatal flaw in the balance of power that had led, indeed, to the outbreak of the First World War. This is what contemporaries had earlier called the German problem. The question of whether a large and dynamic and modern and uh, progress-filled German state at the center of the European continent would be a force for disorder or, on the contrary, an anchor of stability. In some sense, Germany remained as this a mysterious factor in the balance of power at the center of the continent, still, even though it had been defeated, with massive potential military and clearly industrial power as well. The French politician Georges Clemenceau was very keenly aware of this. He quipped, indeed, uh, at the end of the war, that the German problem is that there are 20 million too many of them. But the Versailles Treaty itself didn't change this. The potential power of Germany was still outsized for the balance of power as it had existed before. With his uh, particular gift for paradoxes, the British historian A.J.P. Taylor argued earlier that Germany, in fact, in a relative sense, came out of the First World War stronger in terms of the balance of power than it had been before 1914. Uh, Just to pursue uh, his love of paradox a little bit together, how did that argument run? A.J.P. Taylor suggested that before the war, in 1914, Germany had been one of five European great powers. It had been one of many players in the balance of power. After the war, it was the strongest of three remaining European great powers still standing. After the collapse of Austria-Hungary, after the collapse of Russia, which though it potentially could be a great power at this point, seemed to be out of the equation in terms of European politics, there remained Germany and France and Great Britain. Germany, moreover, Taylor argued, was likely upon its recovery sometime in the future 
to economically dominate the continent, and perhaps also later in political and military terms. France was keenly aware of this. It didn't need A.J.P. Taylor to point this out. France faced the problem of confronting some point in the future an eventually revived Germany, demographically stronger and larger, industrial and militarily powerful. And many French politicians, as well as the, the general mood of the French population, was often dispirited by the enormity of this future challenge, as well as the sheer scale of the sacrifice that the French people had offered up in human terms, in terms of the dead in the First World War. And this demoralization certainly contributed to the disastrous fall of France during the Second World War. Moreover, an unstable German state that emerged in the the troubled experiment with German democracy, as it turns out, would again produce crisis later in the 20th century. In general, at the same time, fascinating things had been happening internationally. In general, the earlier mighty colonial empires that European nations had amassed in the later 19th century in particular, these empires themselves and their legitimacy were increasingly being called into question around the globe. And later in the 20th century, there would be an entire process of what we call decolonization as empires broke down and as national independence was achieved by non-European peoples around the globe as well. Well, this process of decolonization, to a great extent, ideologically began right in this period of the First World War. Think of the ideological charge that we've been at pains to point out was operating, especially from 1917, during the First World War itself, the notion of the revolutionary message of self-determination of peoples. And if self-determination was a key ideological slogan, then it was one that didn't apply just to European nations, not just to Belgium, not just to Czechoslovakia, but applied as a universal principle. And though delayed as a result of the, the compromises of the Versailles Treaty and the Paris Settlement, nonetheless, this ideological charge of self-determination would infuse the energies and the aspirations of once colonized peoples to win their independence later in the 20th century. Uh, Just to illustrate some of the changes that were taking place, accelerating in mentalities in this regard, Australian patriots came to consider the Gallipoli landing the founding moment of an independent Australian national identity. And we could add many more such examples growing out of the First World War to this list. At the same time in international politics, we need to keep in mind that a new kind of state had emerged, the Soviet Union, which pursued its revolutionary agenda in international politics, which was nothing less than the obliteration of the existing order to produce a new one. Let's turn now from these seemingly bloodless structural and economic and uh, international political aspects to consider the human impact of the war. The war had battered earlier common notions that had been prized by European civilization in the 19th century of progress, growing out of the advance of technology and the advance of social organization coupled with liberal ideas which privileged the independence and the talents of the individual. To the contrary, the growth of the state during the First World War of necessity and its massive potential coercive power made a sheer mockery of earlier liberal ideas of the notion of a limited state and a private sphere for the individual. 
the state had proven that it could mobilize and interfere in the lives of millions. At the same time, there were also effects on the mass psychology and the intellectual history of European civilization. After the First World War, contemporaries spoke at length of their feeling of great disillusionment, the increasing questioning of all great ideals and great words, all faiths and all earlier certainties. And it seemed to be typical of the time that so many thinkers would resort to irony as a way of hiding their despair over what had been revealed by the First World War. At the same time, extremely insightful contemporary historians today have been, I think, giving us a a healthy warning of needing to be skeptical about this entire narrative of disillusionment and having been lied to and manipulated by governments. The reality, as attested to in the sources from the First World War that are vivid to us, is that most certainly a common sense of ideological charge and enthusiasm had infused the first participation in the war, whatever later disillusionment might have followed. This spontaneous mobilization of European societies with enthusiasm for this war was something that many people didn't care to remember afterwards and perhaps hid in this narrative of disillusionment. Historians are also still debating today a a difficult question, whether a process of brutalization had taken place both on an individual and a collective civilizational level as a result of the enormous violence of the war. This question is tremendously difficult to get at. Those historians who are skeptical of the thesis of of an entire social process of brutalization taking place during the war point out that um, it's difficult to show evidence of uh, some increase of mass murders or of domestic violence as a result of the return of soldiers. They point out, and, and they're right on this score, that many soldiers returned to their civilian lives and seemed, at least, uh, to outward appearances, to return to a kind of normalcy or find a way of living after the war. At the same time as it's difficult to quantify or find conclusive evidence for a process of brutalization, there nevertheless are very suggestive instances. To outline some of those, contemporaries themselves spoke of a certain hardening of the spirit that they detected in their own societies, the way in which people were becoming desensitized to the scenes of war, the images of mass violence, and how the inhuman increasingly seemed normal. How human life was regarded and valued perhaps thus changed as a result of the war. The knowledge of what could be done to human beings changed how human beings were regarded and thought of. The Battle of Verdun is a key example. If human beings could be fed in in their masses into an enormous grinder of human beings and a factory of death, didn't that change how we thought of the individual and human dignity as well? Another example that's very suggestive in this regard is the the changed status of how human life, especially the weakest human life, was regarded in the pressure cooker of total war. It's suggested by current research that neglect in German asylums, the lack of provision of food to the inmates of these asylums during the war itself, in time of blockade and of shortage, resulted in the deaths by starvation as well as disease of some 70,000 inmates in what amounted to passive euthanasia. So in Germany, long before the Nazis came to power with their explicit aim of crafting a master race and eliminating those whom they called life unworthy of living, euthanasia as a social tool was already being discussed 
in part as a way of rationing scarce resources in a cost-benefit analysis. Two years after the war, in 1920, in defeated Germany, one book was published that shows some of this trajectory and made the logic inherent in this process very clear. This book was entitled Permission for the Destruction of Life Unworthy of Living. It was produced by a lawyer by the name of Carl Binding, who offered legal arguments for euthanasia, and a psychiatrist named Alfred Hoche, who offered medical arguments in the same direction. Hoche had lost his son at Langemark, that famous nationalist encounter about which legends were created from the start of the war, where allegedly German idealistic students had gone into battle singing the German national anthem and sacrificed themselves. Out of this tragedy, perhaps, these authors advocated, quite explicitly, the killing of the unfit. And the experiences of the First World War were held up as part of this argument. If it was the case that in the First World War, fit people had died, what was the complexion of the society that resulted uh, after this process of selection? What was to happen with those whom the war had left unfit as a result of the way in which they were damaged? And moreover, um, they argued, uh, had turned them into lives unworthy of life, at least in their perspective. Very clearly, how human life was regarded was altered in the perspective of many. Finally, there's the question of ideology that we need to consider. In spite of the fact that the First World War long had been considered to be more in the nature of a traditional war involving territory and politics rather than ideas, in ideological terms, long before the Cold War of later decades of the 20th century, in our own experience, it was already in this period that the emerging superpowers of the United States and the Soviet Union presented models for modernity, what a new world would be like for the 20th century. Very different models, that of democracy and that of communism. And yet at the same time, these rivals had things in common in the sense that they both promised to abolish the earlier way of doing things. In particular, both urged a new worldwide order, whether it was democratic politics worldwide, which it was hoped would bring peace, or the abolition of capitalism and a worldwide workers' revolution. Both abolished earlier concepts of the balance of power and tried instead to craft a new world order. This was felt by contemporaries at the time. And one contemporary hauntingly observed in in a phrase that I think really captures this, that people of his time increasingly needed to make a choice, a choice between Woodrow Wilson and Vladimir Lenin, a choice between Wilson's democratic ideas and Lenin's announcement of international revolution. This entire process also, uh, with a sort of grim fortune, was also trundling towards World War II. In spite of the manifest horrors of the First World War and all that it had revealed about what total industrial war would be like, Europe hurtled towards the Second World War a mere 21 years later. But when the war broke out, it did so without the naive celebrations of the 1914 August Madness. And that, by the way, was something that infuriated Adolf Hitler that the German people did not celebrate and cheer the outbreak of the Second World War. He came to worry about whether the German people were up to his plans, and in addition about whether another stab in the back, which he believed in, wouldn't result. The trends of the first total war in World War I would now be intensified in World War II with more destructive weaponry and technology. 
even less inhibited targeting of civilians, even more total mobilization of all of the energies of societies for total war or total defeat. The contemporary historian Omer Bartov advances a pessimistic but haunting argument about the inner logic of such modern industrial war. He suggests that once invented, once put into practice, industrial war and industrial killing that accompany it inevitably are repeated and refined. Once total war has been invented, it's not possible to uninvent it or unknow it or unthink it. And, he suggests, in a dialectic process, genocide, the killing of civilian populations because of who they are, represents a perfected form of industrial killing. So that, in a sense, the trenches of World War I, Bartov suggests, and the death camps of World War II are linked by an infernal logic. If killing in the trenches of World War I was efficient, the far more efficient and safer for the killers form of mass murder are the death camps of World War II. The lives of many actors of the Second World War had also been decisively shaped by the First War, and their decisions were affected by it. This obviously involved millions of people. To pick out just a few particularly suggestive cases, before World War II, the experience of the future French defense minister, André Maginot, at the huge Battle of Verdun, had helped create the massive fortifications to which his name would be given, the ill-fated Maginot Line, which Nazi armies slammed through at the start of the Second World War. Winston Churchill's urgings to aim for the soft underbelly of Nazi Europe during World War II in some sense revived an earlier idea he had, the impulse that had led to the failed landings at Gallipoli in 1915. And likewise, his urging of intervention against the Bolsheviks immediately after World War I was echoed in his later suspicions of communism and Stalin. The French leader Charles de Gaulle, also a veteran of the Battle of Verdun, had learned the moral power of resistance and willed greatness against material odds that he would put into practice in World War II and after. And while it's clearly not possible to totally plumb the psychology of a dictator like Hitler to understand fully how his experience of World War I shaped him, it's important that he recalled it as a time of greatness that he wanted to recover. Likewise, Hitler's decision not to use poison gas in World War II was probably affected by his experiences, not out of humanitarian motives, but rather out of fear of precisely what had happened in World War I, allied retaliation with superior technology and weaponry. Finally, we come to a key question, the implications for our own times, beyond the resonance of the lead-up to World War II. And this notion of the implications for our own times has itself been one of the main themes of our course. Beyond its formative impact on World War II, the implications of the Great War continue to reverberate for us today. And in part, we ourselves need to make some conclusions about what the war means for us. This also has been one of the largest themes of the course, the many different meanings assigned to the war while it was going on, as well as afterwards. The ideological dimension of the Great War itself continues to work itself out in world history, as it has throughout the 20th century. And this, again, underlines another major theme of our course, the importance of ideology. The Cold War, which endured into our own times and shaped the lives of billions of people around the world, actually began not just after World War II, but in fact was already present in 1917, in that key moment of world history. And we still live today with the consequences of that apocal struggle and also seek to understand the history that we've lived through. At the same time, the claims of nationalism, demands for self-determination, 
and the ethnic aspirations which came to the fore in World War I and played such an important role in its outbreak are still present today as well, worldwide. In spite of the repeated prophecies of the end of nationalism and its fading, it's still with us stronger than ever. And indeed, we could point to particular regions around the world where regional strife, which inevitably affects our globalized context as well, whether in the Middle East or the Balkans or in Ireland or in former colonial areas, they're all still with us, part of the legacy of fractured empires, ones that broke apart in the First World War. Indeed, even a venture like today's attempts at European unification, the European Union, are often propelled by the serious determination to transcend the power politics and nationalism which helped ignite world wars. A vivid symbolic event of this that just underlines it uh, with great eloquence came in 1984 when the German Chancellor, Helmut Kohl, and the French President, François Mitterrand, met at Verdun, and there in this site, wholly to the experience of both peoples in the ordeal of the First World War, in an eloquent and quiet gesture, each one gripped the hand of the other in a gesture of solidarity and an implicit promise that this sort of disaster would not follow again. Finally, we want to address the question of the legacy of the totality of this total war. This has been another very important theme of our course throughout The totality of the war, paradoxically, is difficult for us to fully understand as we might and we need to, precisely because our own identities, our own understandings of ourselves and the world have been shaped by the experience of that total war and the totality it revealed. In some sense, World War I is still part of us. And what I mean by that is this. It includes the understanding of the power of the state which experienced such a dramatic expansion in World War I. The state retains that expansive role. What we think the state can do, or should do, we'd like it to do, or what the state can get away with doing, is most certainly in our psychology a legacy of that vast expansion of the First World War. It's also unfortunately the case, and this is so nightmarish that we probably only are able to deal with this by often simply pushing it to some darker reaches of our consciousness and ignoring it, is our own existential reality with the threat of the totality of war ever present in our own age of weapons of mass destruction, whether the ones we deploy or ones deployed by potential enemies. Total war, which in 1914 was a novelty, but in the years afterwards and in World War II has now been practiced and perfected is, we must recognize, an ever-present apocalyptic dimension to modern life and what it means for us to exist in our own times. That apocalyptic dimension is somehow, at the same time, both unimaginable, inconceivable, and nightmarish, and yet somehow self-evident and obvious as well. What then can we say by way of lessons of this entire man-made tragedy the seminal catastrophe, the original catastrophe of the 20th century. Many thinkers have spoken of the world wars, both of them, sometimes even as a a 30 years conflict of the 20th century, as representing something very profound, not just conflicts that had military and political reasons, but rather as a larger civil war of Western civilization. Some even speak of a suicide attempt of Western civilization. 
Civil wars, by their very anguished nature, are fought over large questions, existential questions, questions of identity, what does it mean to be us, and questions of ideology. And to truly understand the Great War and its long-term legacy, we need to take that ideological dimension seriously, as we've been arguing throughout the course, as a war in which contemporaries felt an intense stake and were willing to sacrifice, die, and kill in. That most certainly was not a war about nothing, but a war which had existential stakes. And the spectacle of a civilization making war on itself, it scarcely needs to be said, offers a paradoxical scene. The strange and terrible, vivid tableau of tremendous resources devoted to destruction. Resources of qualities, of of human characteristics that we consider as good. Creativity, determination, sacrifice, a sense of solidarity. All of this being offered up for the purpose of destruction. And so at the end of this terrible cautionary tale, our study of the First World War, one is left with the one profound wish that these inner resources, passion, sacrifice, determination, solidarity, could be used to better, more peaceful and constructive purposes than war. And that truly is the most basic and human conclusion of our course of study on the First World War. We genuinely hope you've enjoyed these lectures from our Great Courses series. Our courses are available to order online. Visit our website at www.teachone2.com or call our customer care representatives at 1-800-TEACH-12. That's 1-800-TEACH-12. Thank you very much. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.